rainbow. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find it. Welcome to the Nashy Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And in this, the 62nd episode of the Nashy Cast, my God, it seems like we don't we, we don't do them ever anymore. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> we are here to say hello. We have finally made it to the 10-year mark. Yes, we have. And we did this through two strange methods. One, we stopped doing these every month mm-hmm. because that mm-hmm. was killing us. Yeah. Second. We were bolstered the entire way along by the fact that everybody seemed to want to listen to the show. It was really yeah, kind of a shock. Yeah, it was a shock. <laughs> we were amazed at how many people. Yeah. Some people even listen to our shows without watching the movies, as we'll see tonight, which is strange. Which is very strange. <laughs> but nevertheless, a few hundred thousand downloads later, yeah. and you folks must kind of like us, and we're just mm. really glad to still be the Steve, yeah. still be here talking about Paul Nashie movies and mm. really still kind of excited to yeah. to bring this stuff to you. I mean, uh, it's not, things have only gotten better since we mm. started the show show mm-hmm. and uh, I would just like to for those of you who came in late 10 years ago February of 2010 Troy and I released the first episode of the Nasha cast in which we covered Frankenstein's bloody terror mm-hmm. or the mark of the wolfman the very first of Paul Nashi's werewolf movies starring <coughs> his character yeah. Valdemar Denensky focused on the lycanthropy the werewolf mm-hmm. but also of course as he usually does throw in a few other monsters yeah, yeah. Vampires, mummies, whatever he can get his hands on. Witches and, and you know. And <laughs> yeah, witches, of course. Wandering gypsies and, you know, otherwise known as prey. As you will hear later on, the, the obsession with, with killing uh, the homeless seems <laughs> yeah. to be something that you and I never thought to talk about in the entire 10 years of this podcast. And yet one of our guests on tonight's show uh, f- finds it rather uh, disturbing that yeah. Uh, yeah, if you're out wandering yeah. in the woods and perhaps don't have a, a house to live within, then werewolves just seek you out. <laughs> As if, as if there's some kind of homing signal emanating from your homeless body. Very strange. Very strange. Yes. But 10 years ago, we got the idea to uh, do a podcast about one of our favorite, most enjoyed horror legends. One mm. that uh, we felt more people needed to know about. And uh, to be honest, 10 years later, I think we can both be very proud of the fact that whether we had anything to do with it or not, and I really don't know that we necessarily did, these days... In 2020, it is much easier for people to get their grubby paws mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Paul Nashy films. There it is. Uh, we are uh, approaching uh, more than 20 mm-hmm. Paul Nashy films available on Blu-ray here in the United States, and that is an amazing feat. The uh, the yeah. surprise to us is that uh, we've been able to participate in a few of them. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing that just uh, let's say just a few years ago uh, we were. 
we were excited. I mean, we had we were amazed that there was a Paul Nashie film on Blu-ray at all, and it was crimson. But we were still like, hey, <laughs> at least it's a Paul Nashie film on Blu-ray, and that was just the beginning to the the floodgates opened, and uh, and and we like you said, nearly twenty films now that we can. I mean, count, uh, Count so. Dracula's Great Love. Mm. Uh, several, if not quite all, of the Valdemar Daninsky films. As a matter of fact, that's going to be something we're going to talk a little mm, bit about tonight sure. is the uh, the missing Valdemar Daninsky films. Uh, and, of course, the latest one just recently, Mondo Macabro, mm-hmm. came out with another Nashi film. They finally put out, for the very first time in the United States, they put yeah. out The Beast and the Magic Sword, his 1983 mm-hmm. Valdemar Daninsky film, which uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways I think is probably his last great horror oh. film mm-hmm. uh, or at least his last great werewolf film that is definitely for sure he made a lot of good movies after that yeah. but it was kind of the end of an era for that kind of gothic werewolf and uh, it's a bit of a shame but man to go out with Beast of the Magic Sword is a, yeah. is a good way oh, yeah. to go Oh yeah. if you have not yet picked that Blu-ray up allow me to plug it mm, right yes. now by plug, saying plug. it's, plug it's e, definitely e. worth it and if there are uh any incentives that we can add to that? Hey, mm-hmm. Troy and I talk mm-hmm. on yeah. that Blu-ray about the movie. We have a commentary track on the disc mm-hmm. that we're fairly proud of. Uh, we've been getting some good feedback on that pod. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm yeah. sorry on that commentary track as well. I'm very excited to uh, mm-hmm. to realize that people out there are enjoying these mm-hmm. things when we put mm-hmm. them out there. We have eight released commentary tracks right now, and we never thought we'd. I mean, ever get to even. I mean, that wasn't even. I don't yeah. think we ever even talked about that. Seems so far like off in the realm of possibilities that uh, but again we you know it's what we the decision to do this podcast led to being able to do those so this is true these days we have seen more books published on mm. Paul Nashi we've seen more mm. attention being paid to his career mm-hmm. and that is exactly the reason we started this yeah, podcast yeah. was to draw attention to a man and his work that we mm. have greatly admired for decades and that even today, with more and more of his movies available in high definition, I still think that there's room for more exposure mm-hmm, of Jacinto Molina and his mm-hmm. entire career and all his work. Because uh, if you think about it, even now, I think we've talked about this before, but I, to my knowledge, none of these films are still showing up on television out there anywhere. No, they are not. They're not right. on any of all these massive, you know, these millions of cable channels, and yet his films, I don't believe are turning up anywhere out there. No, 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 no. Not to, not to my knowledge anywhere. If, if no. there is a, a channel out there where somebody has stumbled across a an errant late-night screening yeah. of any yeah. of Paul Nashie's horror movies, write and let us know yeah, because us know I would, love to, I would yeah. love to be aware of this. I just don't think it's out there anywhere. No. Um, you know what I think of uh, what's... Uh, when I've been looking back, obviously, with these, knowing we're building up this episode, and I've been thinking back about the 10 years and how we got started, and one of the things that's kind of surprising to me was to realize that uh, how quickly from the time that you first mentioned the idea to hitting record on the first episode, how how brief a time. I mean, we got this thing going pretty quickly. Yeah, it was about a month or six weeks, maybe. Yeah, after you yeah. first, which is amazing because usually with this kind of thing, someone mentioned it, said, "Yeah, that'd be cool," and then it you fades know, away, it fades away for a few months, and someone mentions it again, and maybe finally, you know, you you know, get your ass in gear and get it together, make it happen. But I was impressed to look back and realize how quickly from the time you brought up the idea and I agreed to the time we recorded, you know, how, how really we got moving on it. And, and also the fact that, uh, as I'm sure is painfully evident from our first episode, we listened to it, but we, <laughs> we didn't talk at all about really what we were going to do. We basically said, we're going to do this movie, make your notes. We showed up and we just hit record. I mean, we didn't spend much time no, like structuring. No. And of course, you know, as you'll hear as the show goes on, with each episode, you know, we, we, we eventually, of course, started adding sound clips, and then we then we came up with the 
finally some way people could actually write into us. So all these things kind of built over the next few episodes. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm actually kind of impressed the fact that we did dive in so quickly head first and really just turned it on and started talking. I don't know if we were the slightest bit aware that it would, first of all, neither of us thought, folks, if you have any <laughs> illusions about us thinking that this would last Oh, uh, hell no. Two years, much less ten. <laughs> no. No, we did not. Yeah. Well, that was why I always told you. Is I was like, yeah, I told you one of my reasons for agreeing was like, well, if we suck, it won't matter because no one will hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, and that's the thing is that the reason we started doing this podcast is that both of us were feeling a lot of grief because Paul Nash had mm-hmm. passed away. And that's it. Is It was very shortly after he had died. Yeah. Yeah. And I was... Uh, I was uh, I was depressed about it a bit because I still had hopes at that point in time when he passed away in 2009 that we might eventually get the chance to meet the man yeah, and here. thank him for his work and, and just yeah. tell him how we mm-hmm. loved what he had done and how much mm-hmm. it had touched us. But we never got that opportunity. And so it was it was born out of a desire to share his work with other people to uh, talk about it in depth, the idea that the, the digging into these movies and, and going through them scene by scene, talking about them in uh, thoughtful, somewhat, God save me, occasionally intellectual examinations of these stories and of what Nashi was attempting to do. Mm. Because in a lot of ways, it's very hard to, to get around the fact that Nashi is fairly unique in the uh, world of horror film legends in that he was the whole package. He mm. wrote these movies as well as starring in them, and then eventually even was producing and directing them as well. So you can feel uh, however you want to feel about the auteur theory of filmmaking, but if there is a, a horror film star who could be said to approach the idea of the auteur mm-hmm. in the uh, in the horror realm, horror realm, it would be Paul Nashie. Yeah. Yeah. There aren't a, there aren't very many others that uh, yeah. can really come close. I mean, there are people who made more movies. Mm-hmm. There are people with more uh, accolades or awards, various things. That I mean, he he got plenty of himself in his own in his career as he went along. But to say a horror film auteur, you're not talking about somebody who's in front of the camera as well as behind it. You're mm-hmm. talking about someone who's an excellent director who right. also writes or co-writes his screenplays. Mm-hmm. You're not talking about someone who's also a producer and an actor. Mm-hmm. So, Or at the most, they may give themselves supporting roles in films occasionally like yeah. Franco did or something like that or yeah. cameos, that sort of thing. Exactly. And um, that makes Paul Nashi a very unique mm-hmm. person in yep. the horror cinema world. He uh, is, I think, emblematic of the kind of horror star that it's not only rare to think of one happening today, it was rare then to the point of vanishing impossibility. And the fact that uh, this man, who didn't necessarily see himself being in front of the camera when he when he wrote The Mark of the Wolfman, his first <clears throat> screenplay yeah. in, the, uh, in the mid-60s, probably did not have any way of envisioning himself as someone who would turn it into his life's work to craft films, not just horror movies, but other genres mm-hmm. as well, and be known for it around the world. Mm-hmm. What was the novelty of being, of, of, he was the novelty also of the horror star that was was wanted to be a horror star or was or liked, you know, liked yeah. that type roles as opposed to our other favorite horror stars who had varying degrees of acceptance or appreciation for being cast in that genre, but... Overall, you know, none of them ever really, that was not their chosen genre to work in. Right. You know, he right. was the only one who was actually really embraced that and loved that genre. 
This was the this was uh, that kid who mm-hmm. first saw Frankenstein meets the Wolfman when he was mm-hmm. a kid, when he was mm-hmm. a child, mm-hmm. and never forgot it. And it worked in a lot of ways through whatever nightmares and dreams that conjured in his head to yeah. bring that kind of thrill to the screen himself for mm-hmm. another generation. And I think that it's wonderful now to, to sit here in the year 2020 and realize that with new Blu-rays on the horizon, we've still got a couple of more that I think are coming out mm-hmm. later this year mm-hmm. because I think we're actually going to get a Blu-ray of uh, Fury of the Wolfman yeah. before yeah. before this year is out. Yeah, We can easily say that Starting in 1968 with Mark of the Wolfman, we're now looking at a legacy that stretches over two centuries Mm -hmm. and 50 Mm. years, five full decades, and going strong. So this is something that um, I don't think in uh, 1967, when he he was still fiddling with that script and trying to find some way to get Mm -hmm. it turned into a movie, I don't think that's something that he even had the power to envision then. Mm -hmm. And I'm just glad that it's happening now, yeah. and it's something that Absolutely. will keep going. That there will yeah. probably be things in the future that will keep his legacy alive. If this podcast has had any slight mm-hmm. glimmer of mm-hmm. allowing other people to find his work and to appreciate it and to enjoy it, if we've created any kind of little uh, group of people who can gather around and discuss these movies and find that they're not alone, yeah, <laughs> they, right. they spotted this right. weird werewolf movie or this this odd movie about mm-hmm. a disembodied head that gets mm-hmm. joined back to the to its body <laughs> in this frozen <laughs> this yeah. frozen landscape <laughs> if you are one of those people who don't have someone close to them someone that they live with or someone that they're near some group of friends who enjoy watching these kinds of movies if we've been that friend to you if we've been that cinematic buddy mm-hmm shepherding you through or helping you understand or pushing you into weird areas just because we sound funny. <laughs> then that's great. That's, that's, yeah. that's more than I thought we would accomplish oh, at, the, at the outset because right. I honestly feared that the legendary pod fade would eventually yeah. occur yeah. and we would uh, we would lose the plot or we would lose yeah. the desire or we would lose the idea mm. uh, that really initially drove this show mm. and we never have and I'm very glad for that we've, oh, yeah. we've, we've, re- we've, reass- still, we've yeah. reassessed we've re- yeah. uh, we've rejiggered we've mm. come up with different ways of doing the show mm. we've started adding different elements uh, along the way and uh, this episode will be no different. Mm-hmm. We're going to be adding some new voices to the show. And as a matter of fact, just to give you a preview of the 2020 Nashi cast plan, along with a few more Beyond Nashi episodes, of course, what we intend to do in this year is to get more and more new voices onto the show. Of course, I have a lot of guests who show up on the Bloody Pit. I, I try to keep a kind of revolving, rotating group of mm-hmm. people on that mm-hmm. show, mm-hmm. covering different kinds of movies and different kinds of uh, ideas, just keeping um, something kind of unexpected coming into the show's mm-hmm. feed as often as possible. And we're going to try to get a little bit of the flavor of that into the NashiCast this year. This episode, we've got four guests for you. Mm-hmm. And in the next episode that we do for the NashiCast, we're going to have some more guests as well. I'm very excited to start getting some people who I've a never spoken to yeah. about Paul Nashy films onto the show, and some people who I've talked with about other subjects, other kinds of movies onto the show to talk about Paul Nashy to get what their thoughts are on the record. And uh, I think it'll be pretty entertaining. Mm-hmm. Agreed. On another subject, I'm occasionally surprised by how 
popular this show can become. I'm not I'm not kidding when I say hundreds of thousands of downloads. Yeah. That that is true, and it is one of those things where you're yeah. a little shocked when yeah. you realize <laughs> that you know several least, hundred you know, people, really, you know, like, yeah. several hundred downloads of you yeah. know these these hundred or so episodes of the show mm. have have taken place. It's it's a little daunting, and it really kind of makes you it makes you feel wonderful. But mm. um, I'm not very good at at uh, pimping the show out. I'm not mm. very good at talking mm. to people about. Uh, how much it costs to mm-hmm. keep the, the the show online, to keep it uh, on server so that people can access all the episodes whenever they want to. I'm not very good at soliciting mm-hmm. donations. Yeah, I'm bad sure. at it. Yeah. But of course, a few years ago, I did put up a donation button on the uh, the blog the blog page. And so it's always just hanging out there. And if people notice it mm-hmm. and think the mm-hmm. show is worth a little money, mm-hmm. sometimes people throw some money at us, which yeah. is nice. I have to say... That over the years, the generosity that we received has been really wonderful. But at the end of 2019, it went from wonderful mm. to overwhelming. Yeah, I was really surprised by three end-of-the-year donations for people who are fans of the show and decided to throw some money our way. Uh, I don't. I don't. I hope they don't think that we were that we're a, a charity. <laughs> because we're not a charity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we of course, use this money uh, to mm. uh, offset the cost of hosting the show. Right. And I have to say, for the first time ever, those donations at the end of the year uh, completely offset the hosting costs mm. for mm. this year. We yeah, paid for it right out of that money. I was kind of stunned. Uh, I just want to thank these people. Once again, uh, long-time <laughs> donor to the show, and a one-time guest last year, uh, Mike Tatino, mm-hmm. threw us some money, and I was Thank very you, happy by that. But the other two people were a bit of a surprise because I had not heard from 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 these folks before. Definitely had not received money from them. First was uh, Vanessa Prather, mm-hmm. who explained when she mm-hmm. sent the donation that was uh, an overwhelming amount of money that she and her husband listened to a lot of podcasts. It's really mm-hmm. kind of what they do for entertainment a lot of nights, apparently. Mm-hmm. And uh, what they decided to do is at the end of last year uh, to give a donation to each other's favorite podcast. That's an awesome idea. I I was stunned. <laughs> Vanessa told, uh, Vanessa ch- chimed in with the uh, fact that uh, her husband's favorite podcast oh, wow. were the Nashy Cast and the Bloody Pit. Wow! And see, that's that's the hard thing to wrap. I know our heads around there because we we. You know, we appreciate being that people like the podcast, and that's great. But when somebody uses that word, favorite, and you think of how many billions and billions of podcasts there are out there, you know, for somebody to single us out, I mean, that's 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 pretty awesome. You know, it's it's, it's amazing to think about. So I found I found it touching, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. I was just I was just thrilled. Uh, yeah. I had to ask her what her favorite podcast was, and it turns out that her favorite podcast was, is a is a true crime podcast oh, I've cool. never heard of. So oh, I, yeah. thought, I was like, "Wow!" So they switched up and, and donated. That was very cool. That it's is so, very cool. It's so impressive. <laughs> it's so nice. The other donation came from a listener named Michael Mitchell, mm-hmm. and uh, once again, very generous mm-hmm. gift. And uh, I cannot thank Michael enough. Yeah, I, it's fantastic. I, thank I, you so much. We we never received a donation from yeah. him before, or Vanessa, and in both cases. Wow, yeah. um, I would I would just like to say I am terrible at mm. soliciting these kinds of things, mm. but I feel an overwhelming sense mm. of joy and yeah. an overwhelming yeah. sense of gratitude yeah. when things like this happen because they do they do several things. One, they they point out that yeah, what you're doing actually does have value for these people. Yeah. That's yeah. that's yeah. incredible, but it also kind of touches me in a weird way because 
I never ever saw this show as a way to earn money oh, no. in any way, shape, or form. Uh, any money that we've ever gotten from anything do, to do with this podcast has uh, mm-hmm. millipennies on the yeah, dollar right, yeah. of what we spend to kind of do the, do what we do here. Right. But if you feel the need to donate to us or the desire, if you enjoy the show and you want to send us a couple of bucks, the donation button will always be there. But I will not be. I don't ask. No, no. I don't. I don't ask. I'm just really grateful when yeah, people do this. And I just thanks, guys. Yeah, uh, Michael, Vanessa. Mike, thank you very much because December was a very was a very downbeat month for me uh, with work. I, I had all, all of December. I had uh, six days off the entire month, uh, and that does not count Christmas, by the way. Mm-hmm. So it was a very hectic month for me. And getting those donations in and just kind of feeling the 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 love and the the, the fact that uh, what we were doing actually mm-hmm. affected people enough that they would give us money really kind of uh, brightened my December in a way that was completely unexpected. I just want to thank you people very much. You uh, you make me feel as if what we're doing has value. And uh, although I don't normally need that kind of ego stroke, it's really nice to get it. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> the, yes, the unsolicited ego stroke is, is, is always one of the best. Yes, 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 yes. It's like that uh, that uh, that little squeeze on the buttocks in the crowd. And you're, you're wondering who did it, but it must be somebody. Somebody liked that buttock. Right? Somebody appreciated that plump, round. <laughs> Hairy <laughs> buttock. Yeah. <laughs> Oh Lord, man! Now, now I've now I've now I've now linked donating to us to sexual harassment. I really feel like the sleaze that I sometimes am. Yes, <sighs> we may be asked for refunds here soon. So. <laughs> so, folks, I tell you what, hold on just one second here, and uh, we will uh, we will take a quick break. We'll come right back, and we will get to the meat of this tenth anniversary Nashi Cast episode. Officially, it's episode sixty-two. But for all of you, it's the 10th anniversary show. There are a lot of podcasts out there that do science fiction, horror, and fantasy movies. But how many of them are done by somebody who's been watching this shit for half a century? Hi, my name's Terry Frost, and I do the Martian Drive-In Podcast, a podcast where I look at silent films all the way through to movies from the second decade of the 21st century. I look at fantasy, horror, and science fiction, and talk about them, sometimes with a guest, sometimes by myself, but always with an eye to the stuff that maybe has slipped off your radar, if it was ever on your radar. So go to marsdrivein.blogspot.com or type Martian Drive-In Podcast into iTunes and enjoy a bit of decent genre talk. And keep watching the skies. All right, back to the 10th anniversary episode of the Nashi Cast. What I've done for this show is I've excluded as much of Troy as possible. Uh, I wanted to make this show <laughs> damn, all get about a damn fine job of it, did you do? Yes. <laughs> A stellar, an absolutely stellar job of eliminating Troy from the equation. I didn't want him mucking up these um, interviews. I, as I do, as I do. That's what you would do. I know you. With so my, my fawning, fawning sycophantism there. <laughs> <laughs> so what I wanted to do was I wanted to get some new voices on the show. And so I threw out uh, a request to people. And I have to say that everybody I asked said yes to, to the point where, like I say, this is going to expand to something we do for future shows as well. They said, oh, God, you mean more of me means less of Troy? Oh, yes, yes, by all means. 
<laughs> get Troy off the show. Oh, only two people have asked to, to replace you as co-host, Troy. Okay. That's true. It's I okay. do. And, and they're on the list, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what it is is I, I asked uh, these, these folks that I uh, requested be on the show, I asked them, pick your favorite of the Valdemar Donetsky films, or at least the Valdemar Donetsky film that you would like to discuss, and let's sit down and talk about it. So mm. ended up over Skype with uh, each of these four individuals. In one case, the first case that you're about to hear, uh, my buddy Adrian Smith from the old UK over there, mm. who's been on the Bloody Pit Blighty. several mm. times. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's been on the Bloody Pit several times. He and I have discussed a number of different films over there, and I knew that he loved our podcast. So I also knew that he has listened to every episode <laughs> and has never seen a Paul Nashy film. Adrian, you're a special kind of psycho. <laughs> I love Adrian. Oh, Adrian's great. But the, yes, the fact that he, yes, and that's another one of those things I can't wrap my head around that somebody loves listening to us so much that they don't even care to watch the films. They just love listening to us. That's another strange <laughs> it's thing. It's so bizarre. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, well, look, let me, let me be a bit of a, a caretaker here, mm. a curator. Let me kind of give you a, a push in a certain direction. So I told mm. him, watch uh, Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman. Uh, that would be, you know, Walpurgis Night or La Noche de Walpurgis. Uh, from 1970, check that one out because for a lot of people, that's considered mm. the best or their mm-hmm. favorite mm-hmm. of the Daninsky films. Mm-hmm. Check that out. And even if it's, I mean, it's certainly regardless of your own personal feelings of it, it's it's a key. It's certainly a keystone film, uh, and is because of the way it, you know, yeah. and is because of the influence it had on Spanish horror cinema in general. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, that's it, it is the movie that really kind of jump-started mm-hmm. the golden age of Spanish horror. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is uh, this was a massive hit worldwide, mm-hmm. so I thought, let's start him with this one and mm-hmm. see what Adrian thinks of this one. So I sat down with Adrian. Uh, I made sure Troy was unaware that I was recording. <laughs> 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 and uh, Adrian and I talked for a while you about this what? movie. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, I was uh, I was excited to see what his reaction would be. So uh, here is uh, Adrian and myself speaking at length about Nashi and, uh, well, Wild Ferguson. A search for an ancient tomb of a witch takes a beautiful young girl on a mission that brings her to a house of madness. She is innocent of the dangers that surround her. The storm that rages outside is an omen of the reign of terror about to begin. A strange tale of the unknown world. A world of fear where the supernatural exists. Werewolf Shadow. All right, I am welcoming to the Nashi cast for the very first time Adrian Smith, a fellow who has been on the Bloody Pit with me several times. Uh, well, actually, you know, once a year for the past few years. Uh, I can't let him be on the show too often or he'll he'll take over the show. That's the goal. <laughs> well, uh, it is my understanding that you have listened to most, if not all, episodes of the Nashi cast. And yet, until recently, you had as yet seen a Nashi film. Well, that's, yeah, pretty much. I'd seen the one where he's running around with a head transplant. Um, oh, Crimson? Is called Crim- Crimson? Yeah. I'd that seen that one a few a, years ago. That's such a terrible movie. I'm sorry. That was the only <laughs> one that you had seen up till now. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, Paul Nashy films generally have not had much distribution in the UK. You don't get them in the shops or anywhere. I think Crimson came out on a on a Arrow DVD and so that's how I ended up seeing that one but then 
yeah, I've just never really, because I'd have to import them and, you know, go to extra trouble. And there are plenty of other films that I'm already looking for or buying. I just never quite got round to uh, to branching out. So it's been interesting this week to um, to get back into Paul Neshi, uh films. And now I can say I've seen three. So I'm basically an expert because... <laughs> I've actually I've actually watched two this week. Um, plus, I I also have that really great Paul Nashi uh, posters book. You know the Signor Lobo. Oh yeah. Um, book by Creepy Images. I got that several years ago, and that's fabulous. It and, is. Yeah. Um, so I know that book pretty well. So I know all the films, and I've seen all the images in there. Um, so it was good to now be able to to sit down and watch one of the films and then look at all the pictures in the book and think, oh, yeah, I know that bit now and see where that comes from. And so it was while I was looking at the pictures for Werewolf Shadow that I then remembered that I'd seen one in there where he comes to London, uh, The Seven Murders for Scotland Yard, and that was one I'd been wanting to watch for years, and that reminded me. So I, um, before I forgot again, I watched that as well. But we'll talk about that another time. Well, um what I asked you to watch uh, as essentially your your very first Valdemar Daninsky film is yeah. one that is often considered uh, the best, if not one of the best. It's, it, it's either you – know, some people will just claim it to be the best. Some claim it to just be one of the best. But it is certainly a good place to start. So I thought I would start yeah. you off with uh, Werewolf Shadow, a.k.a. The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman or The Werewolf versus the Vampire Women or the Spanish title <laughs> – La Noche de Walpurgis. Which um, is, is that Wal- Walpurgis Night? Yep, that is it. Okay. So Werewolf Shadow, can we start with that? Yeah. Why is it called, why was it called Werewolf Shadow? I don't recall. I have no The only idea. time, there is a close-up of a shadow at one point, but it's not him, it's the devil. Yeah. So... Uh- Werewolf I don't really Shadow know why. Is, Werewolf Shadow. The first time that I know for sure that it was that it was amended or added to the film as a title was when it re- was released in the U.S. on DVD. Now, why Werewolf Shadow was chosen as a title rather than the much more exploitive, the Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman, I have no damn clue. But the movie has gone under a lot of different yeah. titles. And I mean, the werewolf versus the vampire woman, that definitely tells you the plot. Whereas Werewolf Shadow, it feels like somebody came up with that name having not actually seen the film. Kind of. Or just just enough to know that, okay, there's a werewolf in it. Okay, call it this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, so this is considered the best one. By some people. Uh, the, so how it, many, I'm really revealing my ignorance here, how many werewolf films did he do? Well, uh, werewolf films, he did uh, a number of them. As far as the uh, Daninsky films, it gets to be a little tricky depending on how you count them, including the one that was going to be the second one, which really never got finished. Um, Let's just say that there are probably eight, nine, or ten, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, And this this one is a direct sequel because... I'm well, assuming, because at the beginning of the film, he's been shot in the previous film. Is that how it works? Kind of, sort of, but not really. That's one of the oh. stranger things about this one. The movie starts <laughs> off, it, it, it does start off with, uh, you know, our man Daninsky, played by Paul Nashi, of course, laid out on a slab, ready for, uh, ready, ready to be dissected to discover uh, what killed him, even though it's pretty evident that he's got two bullet holes in his chest. 
Um, and it does look like we're, I mean, especially with the way the, uh, the, the, uh, the doctors are talking at the beginning of the film, that this is ah a direct sequel to something else. And if you came into it thinking that you could be forgiven for being fooled because it's revealed in the dialogue later in the movie that no, this really isn't a sequel, much like every other Daninsky film. This one is a standalone. It doesn't really rely on any of the other movies. Oh, he was, okay. Yeah, he was making these things up as he went along. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it, it's, and I know it's hard for us in the 21st century with, you know, 22 film long series, you know, put into theaters over the course of a decade with all interlocking plots and slowly building, you know, ideas to realize this. But uh, at the time this movie was made, and for really most, if not all, of Paul Nash's filmmaking career, there was no concept that anyone would ever be able to, say, sit down and watch two or three of these movies in a row, or even close enough together to retain enough information to know that one thing had changed from one film to the next. So what he was doing here was finding a different way to start a werewolf movie. Let's start the werewolf movie with the werewolf dead and and see where we go from there, which is and pretty so ingenious. Is the origin, because he talks, is this the same from other movies? He talks about how he, he picked it, he became a werewolf when he was researching in Egypt or something like that, because he's some kind of a historian, archaeologist type guy. Is that how he got the curse in the other films? No. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. different. I am telling you, man, it's different in every film. That's funny. In general, in general, uh, the, the reoccurring theme is that uh, the Daninsky family is cursed with lycanthropy. But just because that uh, is uh, kind of the the one sentence uh, phrase that you could jump from film to film with, that does not mean that uh, the details are the same from film to film. Oh. I mean, uh, essentially the origin of the curse or the or yeah, the origin of him being a werewolf is different from film to film in most ways. Now I will tell you this, when you get to see the beast and the magic sword, which uh, is about to come out on Blu-ray, um, when you get to see that, you will notice that there are some bizarre similarities between the first 15 or so minutes of uh, Beast of the Magic Sword and the first few minutes of of uh, a film that you may get to see later on. At the beginning of uh, Curse of the Devil, if you uh, if you see that, which is uh, a film that uh, which is another Nanitsky film that he made like two years after this one or a year after this one, I'm forgetting the exact timeline. He uh, he kind of picked the opening sequence, pre-credit sequence, essentially, from that movie and then redid it to much bigger effect and with a much larger budget. And so he would keep pieces that he he felt a great affinity for or he thought really worked well in previous movies and kind of expand on them and to make them uh, more detailed or more interesting later on. But in general, the origin story for how each individual Valdemar Daninsky gets the curse is different from film to film see i'd quite like to see the film where paul nashi is playing an indiana jones style adventurer in the tombs of egypt uh fighting werewolves i think that would be great that one throwaway line is quite an interesting story that you'd like to hear more about but she just she just like oh and then they just carry on and if i was in the room like hang on you did what (laughs) Can tell me more. Yeah. yeah, tell me more about that story. Uh, it's really funny because it, 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 there's a lot there, p- 
potentially that's just ignored for the rest of the movie. There's not even any Egyptian stuff lying around the place, particularly that would suggest that he is a Egyptologist or explorer or or whatever. It's just a kind of throwaway line. But uh, that's funny that it's just different in every every film. Yeah, and that one of the things that uh, one of the things that's really good about that is that it allows you to be able to dip in and out of these werewolf films of his without being overly concerned about how they interconnect because quite yeah. honestly they don't. And you can um, watch watch them in any order. Yeah, yeah. Which presumably at that time with distribution being what it was, these films would just be floating around grindhouse cinemas for years and there people would be watching them. So it was good that there was no direct connection between the films because they wouldn't be seeing them in anything like the right order anyway. Exactly. And what you would end up with would be, you know, trimmed down versions shown on whatever screen, you know, wedging it into uh, a lineup of two or three other films at, at any at any point in time anyway. So overall, what you get with this movie is a pretty darn good example of what Nashi was doing with the Donensky character. This is a pretty typical uh, werewolf movie written by Paul Nashi. And this is such a, uh, th- this was a massive hit. You've got to understand that this is the movie that broke Spanish horror wide open. Okay. This was such a gigantic worldwide hit that for the next five years, any, any horror film produced in Spain was going to get a really quick buy from distributors around the world because this one really went gangbusters. No matter what title they put it out under, this thing made a lot of money. And of course, when you see it, it's not hard to understand why. I mean, a werewolf fighting a vampire woman, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's made for an audience. It's like, how do you not see this thing, right? It's pretty funny. I mean, when they were filming this, I'm assuming that they were using um, standing sets from other movies, like at the studio or something, because the interiors that, of that house do not match what you expect when you see the exteriors, and they don't feel like uh, the kind of remote, country slightly run down gothicy kind of place like there's wallpaper in those rooms and decor that is so 1970s uh well like late 60s 70s and it just reminded me of my grandparents house and it really like the well, uh, well actually th- this thing was all shot on uh, on various locations all of these are real oh, really? places oh, so they they oh, were yeah, filming yeah, yeah. it in, you, you in understand. real 1970s people's houses yeah 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 and and you funny. gotta understand that they didn't have um, they didn't have the resources really to build the kind the kind of sets that you would see. Some of those, a lot of those rooms, those interior rooms where they're, they're shooting, like the dinner scenes and the bedrooms and things like that. It's to, to, to construct those was much more difficult than just going to the places where they were going to shoot and finding appropriate rooms and then framing up the shots in a way that allowed them to shoot, you know, this room and pretend it's that and this room and pretend it's those. And it's just it it, it it's one of the real charms for me of these things is it's rare it's it's a few years from the the time this movie was made in 19 late 1970 early 1971 it's a it's it's a few years after this before any of these productions are able to uh really string together a number of sets and when you do see places you know these sets sometimes it's a little obvious especially when you compare and contrast in the same film to places that are obviously real places where they just went and shot scenes yeah well, it, yeah, I mean, I could, that makes sense then, because they do look like people's, just they look like normal people's houses. They don't look like 
the creepy bedrooms you would get in the house of a man who's a werewolf who's got a mad sister running around. <laughs> they just look like someone's regular room. And that I suppose I was expecting this to be um, a lot more gothic than it actually is in the end. Although we've got all these great sequences in the tombs and stuff, but just in terms of his house, it's all very modern. And that bit surprised me because I was expecting the whole film to look more, I guess, more like an Italian gothic movie that I've, I've got more experience with. Um, so it was interesting that they went for that contemporary approach here, but that makes sense if they were so low budget, they're just having to film in people's houses, then contemporary is the way you would keep that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a, it's, a, it's a method of keeping the budget down, but it's also something that uh, allowed them to do short little bits like... Um, like I say, in Curse of the Devil, you get a, a, a section of the film right at the beginning that's set, you know, a couple of hundred years in the past. But you only have to get a couple, you know, you, you shoot it outdoors and you only have a couple of characters who need to be in costume. So you keep that, you know, that budget pretty low and you just ramp everything up uh, into the present day because now you're dealing with the descendant of the cursed one. You know, things of this nature. Yeah. Well, so tell me, the um, this being your first of the Daninsky werewolf films, uh, there are a number of things in this movie that reoccur over time, but the weirdest one and the one that really stands out because of how how odd it is is that Daninsky in this movie has a kind of mad sister lurking around the house, as you've already mentioned, and yeah. um, she's there essentially to uh, add just a weird scene or two and then be a victim. This is a character. This is a type of character that uh, Nashi would write into into these scripts occasionally. Not every time, but he would write this character or a variation of it into the scripts just to to, to do one of two things: one, to be an extra victim, or usually to find a way to generate a little extra sympathy for our sympathetic werewolf hero. I always think she's the character that is the the one that stands out as kind of, you know, why is this character in this movie? <laughs> why is this character here? Yeah. Well, it reminded me of Jane Eyre. I thought there was some sort of connection there with, uh, you know, Jane Eyre, where Mr. Rochester has got the mad wife in the attic. And so when this woman appeared, I assumed that she was like his first wife or something. I thought that was where we were going with this. So that was interesting that it turned out to be his sister. But in terms of keeping a mad woman in your house a secret from your next potential uh, love interest is very is straight out of Jane Eyre, I think. But then, you know, that's a good point. I hadn't I had not thought about that before. But you know, yeah. you're right. But then making him a, uh, the sister instead of his wife obviously puts a slight puts that into a slightly different context. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, a, a couple of questions. One, what did you think of the look of the werewolf? Um, <laughs> well, it was a lot hairier than I was expecting. I mean, it reminded me a bit of the werewolf makeup that Oliver Reed has in the uh, in the Hammer film. Yeah. Just yeah. in terms of how much fur. They just kept putting more and more fur on his face. He's so furry. Um, he also looks a bit like Michael J. Fox in uh, Teen Wolf. I thought, I don't know. know. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's pretty funny, you know. It's just because it's clearly just you know him with a big furry face. Uh, I guess we're so spoiled now by seeing, having seen American Werewolf in London, where they make the face stretch out and look like an actual wolf. That now, when you see any of these older 
werewolf films where it's just a guy with yak fur stuck all over their face is is less credible i suppose because we've we've been spoiled by special effects but if you try and ignore that which you're supposed to do when you're watching these older films uh then yeah i thought it was perfectly fine i liked the um i liked the transition he how he i mean he again like american werewolf in london he made it seem really painful he was in agony when he yeah. was transforming and i thought that was a really interesting way of doing it that he almost looked like he was having a coronary um when he's about to transform so that was pretty good um how they did that they still use the same effect like the hammer effect as well when he was i think was it when he was turning back into a human where they just do a trend a series of transitions yeah. where they take a bit more fur off each time um as a way of showing that which is you know even by 1971 that was pretty old-fashioned way of doing it but you know but it obviously for a low budget it it works and I know that he was obviously he was a big fan of the Universal horror film, so I'm assuming his main inspiration for this was the Wolfman. Yes, exactly. Is, yeah. So, so you can definitely see visual connection to the Wolfman, and the fact that he's also still got his clothes on and all that sort of stuff. You know, um, you would assume that these guys, if you're turning into a werewolf, they'd be stretching out and tearing all their clothes off and. He's just still running around with all his clothes on. But yeah, but no, but it was good. Uh, <laughs> now, well, you know, now, what you, did you think of the, well, one of the, you know, of course, one of the joys of this is that you've got this vampire plot. You've got this, this, yeah. this, this character that is very obviously modeled on Elizabeth Bathory. Uh, and uh, the question becomes, you know, and it's wonderful because he's making up his own like fictional blood countess, essentially, to be the vampire creature that gets resurrected. Yeah, and, and all of that stuff with Patty Shepard, I just, I absolutely love. Yeah, because isn't this? I think this film came out around the same time as Countess Dracula, which is interesting. It's like two, two very different takes on the Bathory uh, legend uh, coming out at the same time. But yeah, I, I thought the the vampire stuff was great. The way that it was all done in slow motion, it reminded me very much. And I didn't know whether this was actually this is quite early, I suppose, nineteen seventy one, because it reminded me of those Jean Roland kind of vampires or yeah um the other one whose name has just gone out of my head uh the others who's the spanish director who was working in the uk and made symptoms and oh, vampires. Uh, jose Laraz. Yeah, jose Laraz. so those those kind of european vampires this definitely fits with that so i thought that was interesting i don't know whether that was because i thought that particularly jean roland kind of uh, developed that way of the dream, the dreamlike vampire. I thought that was his thing, but clearly, other people were doing that too. Because all of their every time they're on the screen, they're in slow motion, and then you cut back to the other people, and they're at normal speed, and then back to the vampires, and they're in slow motion. So it adds this kind of otherworldly: are they real? Are they a dream? All that kind of stuff to them, which I thought worked really well. Plus the uh, the vampire fangs were not as comical as they have been in other films of this period, which I thought, True. you know, sometimes they look hilarious. Some of the later Hammer vampires have got ridiculous fangs, but these guys I thought were relatively restrained. Um, but yeah, I thought the vampire stuff was uh, was really well done. Well, the uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, and, and what's great about talking to you about this movie is that uh, since you've not seen, that since you know this is your first of the of the Daninsky films to see, this is the movie that later on, just a few, you know, almost ten years later, Nashi remade himself 
uh, under the title The Night of the Werewolf uh, with a much larger budget. He uh, he thought that as good as this film was as far as, you know, jumpstarting his career and there's, I mean, like I say, I think it's, I think it's a fantastic film. I don't think, it, it's not my favorite of his werewolf movies, but I think it's phenomenal. But Nashi always felt that there were missed opportunities in bringing this script to the screen. And so he remade it himself. Oh, okay. And uh, it, it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to contrast the two different versions of essentially the same story. It's not exactly the same script. He does change a few things around. As a matter of fact, I won't spoil any of the very nice surprises that it, that that movie presents to you if you come to it cold. Because if you came to it just knowing, oh, it's a remake of you know Werewolf Shadow or this particular you know whatever you want to call this movie, yeah. uh, there are some neat little curves that it throws you, but. Um, the, the joys of this is, uh, you do have this conflict between two supernatural creatures, uh, both of whom have, uh, specific goals. I mean, the, the movie lays out that, uh, you know, the, the Ertzat Bathory character is, it has the goal of essentially ascending to some kind of, you know, godhood or uh just you know yeah. ruling the land but, or or whatever whatever yeah, mad scheme by, she has in mind so there's it's sort of weird how suddenly it's to do with resurrecting a demon which uh that seemed to i don't know if i missed something that seemed to happen quite early in the uh sorry i mean quite late in the story like i thought she was just a vampire who drank the blood of other girls but then all of a sudden, she's resurrecting a demon. I don't know if I missed something early on, or if that or, was just... or or, resur- or or bringing old scratch into this world, yeah. or just whatever it is. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting development. Although I suppose she was a witch. They killed her because they thought she was a witch or something. So I don't know. Uh-huh. That was all. That was all quite fun. How it was mixing various different things together with her. But yeah, so she, the actress that played her, which I, I thought I recognised her, but I wasn't sure what from. Is she somebody I should know? It's Patty Shepard. Um, and yeah, you probably would know her from a few things. She made, well, she well, I know her primarily from being in. Oh, wait, she's American, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, okay. But I mean, she Fair was enough. also in uh, Assignment Terror, which was uh, the previous, uh, or one of the previous uh, Donetsky films in 1970. And. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, she was. I mean, she was. Okay. She was in uh, my De- my dear killer, which is a giallo. Several several movies spread. You know, several European uh, movies spread across her the the nineteen seventies, most especially. Right, and uh, no, no, sorry, I was just going to say on. you have probably seen her face in different movies. Yeah, and then the other main the the main love interest was uh, was her character Elvira. Correct. Yes, yeah, right. Was played that, by she an was Elvira. Named, yeah. Oh, you mean? Um, yeah, the the blonde the blonde that's in love with him. That was Elvira, yeah, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? No, 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 no. Elvira, was Elvira is the, is the, the one, that... and that's played by the actress Gabby Fuchs. And I have to say, I don't remember. I remember doing some research. She was she was in Mark of the Devil around the same time. Yeah, but I don't know much of anything else. I don't. I, I don't know that I've spotted her in myself in you know much of anything else. I mean, she did a, several other movies, but uh, this is the one that this is the only one that I really remember her from. So, so was this a German co-production? Is that why she's in it? That's the question. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, it was a, yes. A, a Spanish and West German co-production at the time. Yeah. Ah, there you go. Yeah, it's interesting how that happens. You get these random actors thrown together from different countries, uh, presumably, hopefully, be speaking enough of the language to make themselves <laughs> able to communicate 
with each other. I mean, the, the dubbing is obviously something that you get used to with these kind of films. But when um, w- this film, well, I'm assuming Paul Nashi didn't do his own English. No, no, no. Uh, he was dub. uh, the, the dubbing. Yeah, definitely. His all voice. the all of the people in the English dub are are not the actors that we're looking at on screen. Uh, and this is a. I mean, the yeah. English dub is pretty good, but uh, as almost as I'm getting older, I, I have to admit that I almost want to default to a, a different language and read the subtitles because there are subtle differences in details in each of these movies that different tracks, different uh, audio tracks, simply by virtue of how they have to do things in different languages and dubbing these movies. There are different little subtle things that are able to creep through in other, other translations essentially that are, that are really intriguing and sometimes make the movies even better just by adding those odd little details or smoothing over a strange transition from one idea to another. And uh, the English dialogue, the English dub here is pretty good. There are other of this, there are other of the Daninsky films where I think the English dub is pretty darn weak. And I've all, you know, those are ones where you're just going, well, let me, let me try it in Spanish and throw the subtitles on and see if I, see if this works any better. And oftentimes that is the case, but the English dub here is pretty good. Uh, it's, it's professional and the voices actually seem to match the actors, which is often a problem. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can we talk about the, um, the big mon the, the monster mash at the end where they finally, the vampire does fight the uh, yeah. the werewolf. <laughs> I have to confess to laughing quite a lot during that because their fight becomes just the two of them rolling around on the ground. <laughs> just it's just the two like here's this vampire woman who's lived uh-huh. for centuries and she can raise the devil and all of this and and he's a werewolf and they're just rolling around on the ground getting covered in dirt and I found that to be I don't know. I just thought that was really funny. Like of all the ways they could have taken this, this big face-off between these two foes, it's just scrambling around in the dark. I think that's one of the reasons why it would and, be fascinating uh, to see you check out the the Nashi directed remake, Night of the Werewolf, because the confrontation at the oh, okay. end, uh, the, they they had they had a good bit more money, and. Uh, there are some really interesting violent motion, violent actions that take place during that sequence that are uh, a definite improvement. And while it's it's a tough call for me to decide which of the two versions of the movie I like more, uh, I do have to say that the ending of Night of the Werewolf is much more dynamic and interesting because you do have these two okay. supernatural creatures fighting each other. And in Night of the Werewolf, the supernatural nature of it is much more in evidence. So, because okay. <laughs> it's also mostly shot on a wide, looking down. So it's just yeah. the camera is back, looking down at these two people rolling and, around. And on the when floor. he finally comes in, and it's a tight <laughs> like, shot because it, it, when when the werewolf is like trying to get at her neck and to, and to get his teeth into her, then it actually becomes pretty tense because like okay now you've got these two creatures actually grappling in close-up and it actually looks fierce but yeah i I know what you're talking about yeah it just looks like two drunk people outside the pub (laughs) (laughs) oh my god oh lord but yeah a a bit more of the kind of is she gonna bite him on the neck first or is he gonna bite her on the neck first all that kind of stuff might have 
made it yeah. a bit more dynamic than just r- r- wrestling. Well, it, 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 it always but, it uh, always asks the yeah. eternal question amongst first time viewers. Well, wait a minute. Can a werewolf become a vampire? What? What, hap- what what happens here? You yeah, know, and, yeah. and it, it, it's it's those ideas that that <laughs> sequence is kind of built to make the audience, you know, ask itself. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What what would happen here? I don't understand. What, how would this work out? And did he ever explore that in one of the sequels? Because no, not be quite. quite. Cool. Uh, he didn't. The uh, he didn't throw vampires into the mix again, except for the remake. Um, he threw witches. Oh, okay. uh, he threw, you know, different types of supernatural creatures occasionally, uh, especially when he uh, went to Japan for Beast of the Magic Sword, and you've got this amazing sequence in the middle of the film with this uh, Japanese witch, uh, which is phenomenal as she raises up uh, various ghosts and demons and things of this nature to attack him. Fantastic, fantastic stuff. Cool, but. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me highly recommend Beast and the Magic Sword. He made uh, two movies, uh, two werewolf movies uh, there in the early 80s with uh, financing primarily from Japan. Uh, Night, uh, Night of the Werewolf, the remake of this, and Beast and the Magic Sword. And uh, man, he was able to finally realize some really amazing stuff on screen just by, have, just by virtue of having access to, um, well, Big studios in, uh, you know, Toshiro Mifune's, uh studios, essentially, there in Japan, and, and uh, uh, enough money to actually put some of this stuff on screen in a way that makes it look a lot more interesting. So, yeah. Cool. Can we just talk briefly about Paul Nashi's physical resemblance to John Belushi? It's something that too many people bring up. <laughs> In his early in his early <laughs> days, that's I think quite... he just he looks he he looks so brooding, and uh, I, I'm always amazed because it never occurs to me. But I was watching this movie just the other night <laughs> with my dear lady friend, and she she just turns to me and she goes, "Wow, he was a really handsome guy when he was young." <laughs> I was like, I never I I never think of that. Yeah. Oh yeah, you can see that, and but he just—I I found it unintentionally funny because I just kept thinking it was John it's a, Belushi. It's a, it's a common thing. Quite yeah. a lot of the time, he's quite—he—he's he, physically—he's not an actor that you would naturally associate with horror films because uh-huh. he's quite short and stocky, and and a, you know he doesn't seem like the natural actor to to be a vampire or a werewolf or. Or an acrobat, or whatever it is. Oh no, he's, he's very, more he, like he very much has that weightlifter physique, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I just, I guess, again, thinking of the more classic interpretations of vampires and and werewolves. Although I suppose, to be fair, Lon Chaney Jr. was quite stocky, wasn't he? So I suppose that's fair enough. That's very true. But he, yeah, but he just doesn't seem to to naturally his looks and his physique to me don't naturally lend themselves towards horror. So it's interesting that that's basically what he did for his whole career anyway. I mean, I guess with the, the more kind of crime th- films, he, he fits those a bit better uh, in my limited experience, just, phys- just physically anyway. Well, I mean, but, um, he... Uh you're right, and he made a, he made a lot of crime movies, especially across the uh, '70s and '80s. And the more, more the more of those you see, I think you'll find some really interesting movies in there. Uh, Death of a, Death of a President, and uh, blah, 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 blah. well, you've seen Seven Murders for Scotland Yard now. And when you see things like that, and um, 
uh, the the couple of giallos. When you see something like Blue Eyes the Broken Doll, I think you're going to be I think you're going to find that really intriguing because it's essentially a Spanish giallo. Cool. Yeah, that's what's one I definitely uh, have on my list. Yeah, and obviously Seven Murders for Scotland Yard has a lot of giallo elements but again let's i won't go into yep. let's not go into that too much now well well, well tell me something uh, overall this being your first nashi werewolf film uh, did you enjoy it i mean what was it like yeah you? yeah i would definitely watch more um yeah it was really interesting um because i mean spanish horror is something i'm very limited in in my experience so uh, it's yeah. nice to see what else was going on in europe because so much of my particularly in the last few years so much of my viewing has been italian or or french uh with the occasional jess franco film thrown in so i guess that's that's about as spanish as i've got um yeah so it's interesting to finally be able to make some more comparisons with what was going on in the genre in it's in uh in europe at the time well cool man i want to i want to thank you for for giving us your thoughts on this movie because it's uh i i just when you told me that you've listened to so many episodes of the podcast and have never seen one. I just, yeah. I think my head sw- just nearly fell off my shoulders. I thought, what the hell, how do, how do you do that? How do you listen to this, <laughs> a show on a particular subject and then never, di- you know, never dip into it? But Well, I mean, it's because I, I just like listening to you guys talk about films, you know. I mean, most of the films you talk about on the bloody pit, I haven't seen either. So <laughs> it's all it's fun. I just enjoy hearing people uh, talk about films that do it well. There are a lot of bad film podcasts out there that I've tried once and given up on, um, but I really enjoy what you guys do. So even if I'm not familiar with the movies, I'll uh, I'll listen to it anyway. I'm fairly sure I've heard quite a lot of spoilers over the years but i figured by the time i get around to watching the films i'll have forgotten anyway so and 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 i've I've tried to keep from uh spoiling certain things so if you rush off now to see the to see the remake of this uh the the surprises it has in store will probably still get to you so but i also you know i'm always trying to learn more and so i'm learned i feel like i've learned a lot about spanish horror and i could quite easily hold a conversation with somebody about spanish horror thanks in part in mainly to uh listening to you guys so you know i enjoy listening to you and learning from you even if i haven't seen the films and probably won't see a lot of them uh, i just don't think it matters i'm still learning from it so so thanks you've been doing a great job for all these years oh well thank thank you very much i'll pass that along to troy and also <laughs> I, I i do think i'm going to try to get you onto the show uh later in the year to talk about uh, uh, at least one more Paul Nash yes. So Count me in. All right, man. Well, Adrian, once again, thank you very much. Thank you. Adrian, appreciate that. Awesome discussion, guys. Awesome discussion. You almost didn't miss me in that. <laughs> in that. Um, but yeah, his, his reaction was cool. He had a lot of uh, things, uh, interesting things to say about that. And I like where you guys talked about the, it guys about continuity in the Daninsky films. And uh, I was afraid he would do that. Yes. Well, it's, you know, I know you hate to let him down uh, uh, there that hard there, but you got to. But I think it's, uh, you remember, you got to point out that, that Paul Nashi himself had said that he was never really interested in establishing a continuity for the character, and yeah. it's it's it, and he waited until his 
his final epic, The Beast and the Magic Sword, to give people something they could sort of build, kind of build a thread on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but and, it, and I think yeah. in that particular film, he did an excellent job. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 wonderful. But yeah, the, to, mm-hmm. I, had to, I had to break it to him. That, no, if yeah. you were looking for some kind of continuity, you kind of yeah, kind of give that up. So uh, and uh, he mentioned. Uh, that there's a reference to uh, Daninsky's uh, Egyptian, yes, you know, yes, yes, and he he mentioned when you love to hear that Egyptian, you know, know more about the Egyptian adventure, and I was I was I agree with him. I was thinking, yeah, it's too bad we don't know any writers out there, but you know, it's, it's bad. I would love to I would love to to read about uh, Valdemar Daninsky's Egyptian adventure. There, well, so. I mean, we get another little quote Egyptian, you know, sidebar adventure that we don't get to see in the Beast of the Magic Sword. Yes, Speaking we do. That, we absolutely is, do. Yeah, which is we get that moment. Where uh, mm. we we're just related uh, mm. a couple of different places that mm. uh, the Daninsky in mm. that movie mm. and his consort have visited, mm. trying to find a cure for lycanthropy. And one of them he mentions is Egypt, and you're just, at that point you're just like, well, why didn't we go? So, why didn't we see that? And it's the yeah. same here in this movie. Yeah. Where you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, why do we? Let's take, let's make yeah. that movie. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's make let's make the werewolf in Egypt story. Hold on a minute, holy crap! But those are signs of great sagas when you read or watch films about characters that you're really invested in. They make some sort of little reference to something and just, I want to see that. I want to see that, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly. But, oh, and, uh, it, and Adrian, good, uh, uh, well done on the Jane Eyre, uh, um, tie back there. It probably oh, took, it probably took an Englishman to do that, but, uh, something we didn't spot. Oh uh, yeah, but that's nice by mentioning the mad sister, Daninsky's mad sister as being a kind of Jane Aryan sort of character there. It's like, yeah, good job, man. And of course for uh, us, it was just like, well, he needed another victim. In the yeah. Movie, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, I, and I got—I'm totally with him on. I always thought that uh, the—that as much as the Cheney werewolf was kind of inspired his love of monster movies. I've always felt like the Daninsky, the look of the El Hombre Lobo, was much more closely tied in with Oliver Reed's look. Yeah. In Curse of the Werewolf. Um, now the the Michael J. Fox when I I have to admit would yeah. not have that would yeah. not have crossed my mind. But uh, <laughs> I still to this day have never seen. Teen Wolf. I have not either. I've never seen it. I've not. We probably isn't that weird? How is it? How is it? I mean, think about it. Think it's about a, yeah, it. Yeah, it's a Wolfman. The, the age yeah, we were, yeah. and it's a as Wolf much as, as much as that movie made the rounds, you know. But it was a Wolfman. Yeah, yeah it is strange. I've, I've got nothing against Michael J. Fox. I always enjoyed him. You know, it's it's. I don't know why I've never gotten around to that one, but uh, I don't know. I I think part of it is that I don't know how I would react to a comedic werewolf film. I just don't know and, how it would fly. With yeah, me. yeah. I mean, it, and that could be it. Is maybe just the fact. Although we've enjoyed horror comedies, but maybe just something about that that fact that it that, yeah, that it was know. just, just kind of it didn't really have any appeal for me it still doesn't have any appeal for me that's the weird part yeah yeah you know it's it's yeah it's i feel like at some point i'll probably give it a shot but maybe i won't i don't know but uh <laughs> we'll i have it at this point the movie's like 30 plus 33 years old or something yeah. it's like i don't know um, that i am man also uh you know you guys talked about countess dracula and you're absolutely yeah. right to point out that the hammer countess dracula came out in the same year as this film yeah and I didn't think about it till listening to your discussion, but I know it was only I think recently here you posted a a poster of of Fury, um, excuse me of uh, Werewolf Shadow that was that actually was going under the title uh, Black Mass of Countess Dracula. Yes, and that boy whoever distributed that version of the film definitely had that in mind, and I'd never seen that before, never thought about that. But you know, the Elizabeth Batory that um, was just a very there was a great bit of mining you could do in that character for at this time in film history because yeah. late sixties and seventies when there was you know lesbianism 
more blood and, and, and eroticism was coming into horror movies. You had, a, I mean, look at this character. I mean, she, you know, she kidnapped young girls and, you know, and bathed in their blood. blood. I mean, it's yeah. like the, the possibilities are endless for, for that type of cinema. So it's not surprising that, you know, that, that everybody kind of picked on her, you know, picked up her as the new character to exploit for our purposes there, you know, for, for the, for horror cinema. I do wonder, and I'm not, I've not looked this up to figure it out. I do wonder how many uh, horror films in the seventies did use Elizabeth Vittori as a, as a character, mm-hmm. I can think of the uh, the Jorge Grau film, mm-hmm. uh, Legend of Blood Castle, mm-hmm. uh, is one of the titles it went under. That was mm-hmm. very much a an Elizabeth Torrey uh, story, mm-hmm. and uh, Countess, you know, obviously Countess Dracula, and then this one. There, there. I know there are more. I just can't think of them off the yeah. top of my head. But. You'd, you'd probably be interesting to do a comparison to to see between Elizabeth Torrey and the character of Carmilla. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. From which of the, those are probably the two, maybe the two most common. Female, female suckers, yeah, characters that popped up in the sixties yeah. and seventies because of those two reasons, or because of those same elements that they could exploit from those characters. Yeah, yeah. Once the seventies rolled around, and uh, we could, we could show uh, naked breasts, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we could, and we could let blood slowly trickle over mm-hmm. the nipples. Then mm-hmm. it suddenly became something <laughs> that, you know, mm-hmm. what yeah. we could do is link it to this historical thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Sex good. it up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think everybody would be interested in that. <laughs> R-rated, yes. <laughs> and uh, you guys were, um, of course, I'm always with you on uh, extolling the the uh, charms of Patty Shepard, you know, how yes. awesome she is. But it got me interested again in looking at her filmography. And I have to say, I, I hope I won't have to push you too hard to do this, but at some point on Beyond Nashi, I want us to cover this film called The Man Called Noon. Okay. Because when I was looking at her filmography... It's it's interesting because if you you know on on IMDb where you have your like selection of photos from actresses, there's virtually nothing from Werewolf Shadow, which is odd, you know, of hers the that vampires. Is, yeah, that is odd. But almost all of them come from the Man Called Noon, and they have her in various poses as a female gunfighter, really? and she looks really badass. And I'm thinking, Patty Shepard as a female gunfighter, I'm I'm there. Directed by Peter Collinson. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Richard Richard Crenna. Richard Crenna. Richard Crenna. Stephen Boyd. Mm-hmm. Rosanna Schifrano. Oh, yeah, and yes. Oh, I'm sorry, Schif, 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 Schifino. I don't remember. I know she's absolutely yeah. gorgeous. Oh, man. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but now if you see all these, this great, Farley you know, Granger. Yes, Farley. Oh, and uh, and just as more, and look, Julio Nugarta, who's uh, your favorite dancing vampire from Mark of the Wolfman. <laughs> there, so you know, Bartabari's in it. I mean, so we can tie this in. We can justify yeah. this as beyond Ashley. But but just check out some of the when you, you go to go go to her page and just check out some of these photos from it. And and uh, she just looks like I, I saw her and I thought, oh yeah. I I think that it won't be very difficult to get me to uh, cover mm-hmm. a man called Noon. Uh, it, it is apparently an Italian film mm-hmm. from 1973. Yeah, it looks like Italy, Spain, UK, so it looks like maybe a co-production possibly. Definitely yeah. shot in Spain, of course, because mm-hmm. that's where most of the mm-hmm. spaghetti westerns were shot because mm-hmm. of the... Right, the, the terrain and all that. So. Yeah, well, I tell you what, folks, I think that uh, later this year, mm-hmm. whether we can find a legal copy or not, I mm-hmm. think we'll cover The Man Called Noon for a little dose, mm-hmm. extra dose, mm-hmm. of Patty Shepard. Absolutely. Maybe we'll even get Adrian <laughs> to watch it and get, what, get his thoughts on it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, let's go on to our second yes. victim. I'm the guest, well, the person, the person on the show. <laughs> guest number two is uh, Derek Cook, the monster kid in Monster Kid Radio, who's been a guest over on the Bloody Pit more than a few times. Uh, he and I are doing a uh, series of podcasts where we talk about the Western movies 
William Castle made for Columbia in the 1950s. We're doing two films, a podcast on that because they're pretty short movies. And uh, it gives us the chance to explore what William Castle was doing to kind of learn his craft before he struck out on his own and become the horror maven, the 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 uh, <laughs> independent producer and gimmick-laden lunatic that uh, we all know and love from the 50s and 60s. Uh-huh. And uh, that, that's what Derek and I have been up to on the Bloody Pit for a little while now. I occasionally guest on Monster Kid Radio as well, talking about the occasional bizarre film. But the uh, joy of this is that he is a major Nashy fan as well. Uh, he loves Har Rises from the Tomb more than, uh, more than uh, possibly most people love chocolate. He <laughs> worships that movie with a blood-red passion. And uh, I told him that I wanted him to focus on one of the, the, the Daninsky films. And the movie he decided to focus on is one that just came out on Blu-ray. And because it had just come out on Blu-ray, he was very mm-hmm. excited to crack that sucker open and watch this movie that, well, has had a bad reputation for years because it's mm-hmm. never been widescreen. And right. This is a movie shot very wide. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's just say the new Blu-ray from uh, Scorpion releasing. Yes. And uh, it is a Blu-ray of sheer joy if you're a fan because it gives you the it gives you the, the chance to really completely evaluate, reevaluate mm-hmm. Assignment Terror as a, a kind of different experience altogether. So here is uh, Derek and myself talking about Assignment Terror, and uh, we try not to take too many side roads, but mm-hmm. when Derek and I get to talking, it's going to happen. <laughs> so I kind of apologize oh, yeah. for those <laughs> up front. <laughs> The first objective is Blaustadt Fairground. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's Rod back on the Nashi cast and first time caller, long time listener. Derek is on the line. Uh, <laughs> What I have here is uh, one uh, one of uh, he's been a collaborator with me on the Bloody Pit for uh, a little while now. Uh, he's he's come on. He's had me come on to his podcast a few times. This is Derek Cook. Say hi to the people, Derek. Hi to the people, Derek. Uh, it's been too long <laughs> since I've had you on my show, man. We need to rectify that next year. Uh, be, I'll be glad to pick uh, pick the uh, the the film, the time, and the place, and I will be more than happy to arrange such a thing. Sounds good, but. Today, I have rooked you into doing something. I have another first-time person on the Nashi cast. I'm shifting you from the Bloody Pit to the Nashi cast, and so you will get that werewolf smell all over you. Well, I took my uh, my allergy meds this morning, so I should be okay. <laughs> the, the dander is pretty rough. You have to care, you have to be careful with it. Um, we're trying this year, uh, and especially in this 10th anniversary episode, to have as many new voices as we can get onto the show to talk about Paul Nashi. Because after 10 years, you're probably pretty sick and tired of Troy and I. But Derek has only occasionally placed his opinions about Paul Nashi out on the World Wide Web. So today, I allowed him 
to choose one of the Valdemar Daninsky werewolf films, and he chose one that just came out on Blu-ray. And uh, I have to say, it's 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 not an it's not a normal choice for the Valdemar Daninsky series, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go. Derek, tell me, uh, have you seen most or just a few or only one or two of? Nashie's werewolf movies only a handful uh, my experience with paul Nashie is incredibly limited i've been living vicariously through the Nashie cast over the years uh <laughs> you know and I, I keep meaning to and even at one point i threatened to start a youtube series where i went through all of the paul Nashie films and just never pulled the trigger on that so my experience with Nashie is pretty limited i knew he was a werewolf guy and, and did all this other monster stuff I think I've probably seen more non-werewolf Nashi films. Uh, and, and I really enjoy like Horror Rises from the Tomb and uh, The Mummy's Revenge and a handful of other films that I've seen. But as far as his Daninsky ovoir, uh, wow, it's awfully early for a word like that. Uh, as far as his, his <laughs> werewolf films, uh, pretty limited. So I was excited to get into this one. Oh, cool, cool. Um, when you when you named this one, I thought this would be great because uh, I've, I'm getting a lot of different people onto this show and am, in general, trying to uh, let them choose. Um, and they're sticking with uh, some of the some of the bigger titles, you know, Werewolf Shadow and uh, doc, uh, uh, Werewolf uh, versus Doctor Jekyll and things like that. Mm-hmm. And these are these are big titles, and uh, you see you see that you see the name, and it just kind of scream Paul Nashy werewolf movie. But this one, I gotta say, when you talk about Assignment Terror from 1970, um, the title does not say werewolf movie. It really doesn't. And even the cover art that they use for the Blu-ray, which is a version of the and we were actually talking about movie posters before you hit record, uh, is a version of the movie poster, the one sheet. Yeah, there's a werewolf on it, but it really feels more like a like a monster mashup kind of thing in this in the vein of maybe some of the older Universal films. Uh, so it doesn't really say werewolf film when you look at it. And really when you watch it, is it really a werewolf film? Well there's a werewolf in it, but Still, I mean, it was a fun watch. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, it really is very much in the vein of the House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein movies right there in the mid-40s from Universal. It's very much a monster mashup where the whole idea seems to have been, I can get as many monsters in this as possible because... Uh, you know, if you look at the continuity, I'm not the continuity. There is no continuity with Paul Nashy werewolf movies. If you look at the uh, order in which they were produced, this is the second one that got made. Uh, there was one, but there was Mark of the Werewolf, also known as Frank, uh, Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, over here, and then there was an aborted film that got that. You know, there was a script written for, but the production never, never happened or partially got shot, and it's never been found and never will be seen. Called the the Knights of the the Knights of the Werewolf, and then this one went into production. Nashi was very excited about this because the uh, producer of the film wanted to get in on this uh, this whole Mark of the Werewolf thing that was going uh, great guns with that first movie because it was quite profitable. And so he told Nashi that he was going to have a pretty good budget, and uh, he he wrote the script with that in mind. And so you can see how when you have aliens and you have uh, the Frankenstein, the Frankenstein monster, or something that is obviously the Frankenstein monster that we're going to call something else, so Universal doesn't sue us. Uh, <laughs> you have uh, a vampire character that is very obviously uh, supposed to be Dracula, but we're not going to actually call him that. 
and you have a mummy character and a werewolf. Uh, oh, and by the way, there was going to be a golem character as well, which gets mentioned in the film, but uh, they... I think they that's when they suddenly started realizing and we need to pull back on just how much money we're spending on this thing. <laughs> True. Uh, yeah. 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 So the whole idea was to, you know, for Nashi, he was just, Oh, I can, I can make one of those movies. I can do a monster mash film. And uh, then of course, and there's no way you miss this. Of course, near the end of the movie, Nashi even gets to recreate the fight at the end of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, that classic universal horror film that was the kind of light bulb that went off in a young Jacinto Molina's brain. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I enjoyed the film. There are a few parts where it kind of bogs down a little bit, but you know, in a movie like this, you're always waiting, you're always waiting for the monsters to meet up and, and throw down. And this one gave it to us. And you're right. It is definitely inspired by, the the Wolfman Frankenstein monster clash in a handful of the Universal monster movies, the two house films, and then Abbott and Casella meet Frankenstein as well. There's the Wolfman doing stuff, but it was, it was it was nice to see. But it's not just a carbon copy. It's not you know they, they didn't match it beat for beat. They kind of did their own thing with it too, and and I really enjoyed that. You know, you're just waiting for it, and it delivered for me. Well, it's such a weird. Well, here's the thing. It's it's such an amalgam film. It is. Uh, it's very clear that the the narrative kind of it either you either can look at it as it, the the narrative meanders or the the narrative kind of gets lost for sections because there'll be there'll be um, portions of the movie that seem to be completely on track and we're chugging forward and then suddenly we 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 are introduced to a scene where <laughs> where we're seeing people walk around uh, and then walk around some more. <laughs> And then there's a little bit of dialogue. It's just that the, the the film is very start and stop. There's a lot of uh, hurdy kind of hurdy gurdy feeling to it. Whereas this grinding thing along, and then we take a break to watch the monkey dance. It's very strange. <laughs> I don't I don't understand. <laughs> oh man, no, I, I totally get it. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, I was, no, I was that's okay. Go a, ahead. There's a lot of this film where Michael Rennie's just kind of wandering around, and you can't help but wonder how Cloud Two. Uh, you know what he's yeah, I was clapped too. How yes. did I end up in this film? You know, there's just a lot of that look on his face where he's just kind of wandering around. And, you know, well, there's mean, an absurdity to it and a bizarro feel to it. But I love it. <laughs> so well, so, yeah, so do I. But it's it, it, you're right. I mean, there's no way to look at this and not think, man, this is kind of nuts. I mean, even for the kind of movie this is, it's kind of nuts. There, there, there's some great sequences but uh, as a whole, the film doesn't really fit together very well. There are stretches, you know, sometimes, you know, between five and ten minutes in length where you really feel like you're able to kind of get in the groove with it. You know, you're, you're like, oh, okay, good, good, good. And then out of left field comes some strange thing that just kind of drags the movie to a dead halt. Mm-hmm. And you're wondering, wow, that's that's odd. Why are we doing this now? Uh some really strange choices at times that I don't know if, if it seems like there was a good idea or two that were on paper that didn't quite make it in through the camera lens. Yeah. Yeah. That, I could see that. And didn't this film though have a, a start and stop kind of production history? Well, it had a really weird problem in that it started under one director, uh, a guy named Hugo Fragones, who's uh who's from uh, originally from Argentina. And uh, he, 
according to Nashi, he directed about 70% of what the you see in the finished film. But he isn't even credited on any of the prints of the movie. Uh, the guy who came in to finish up the movie is the guy who's the credited director. But Nashi insists that he only directed about, you know, the credited direct, director only made about 30% of the movie. Uh, and the, the Hugo uh, Faragonis fella was, was really well respected, had made a, a number of films. I mean, he'd made uh, some, some movies in Hollywood, including uh, Man in the Attic. That uh, It's a Jack Palance film from like 1953. He made a number of films in Hollywood, and so he was somebody who really knew things. He he directed uh, The Death Ray of Dr. Mabusa oh. in 1964 and uh, Old Shatterhand, one of those uh, German-made westerns uh, that same year. And uh, basically, he was seen as quite a get when they, uh, when they signed him on. But uh, for whatever reason, and nobody's ever specified exactly what happened, uh, but knowing that, uh, let's just say the producer promised more money than he was able to pre- to present, one suspects that uh, the money problems may have had a may have been a factor. Let's just say in how the original director walked off the project. Mm, okay, and you, you mentioned the Gollum earlier. I'm sure that was one of the casualties. Uh, of having yeah. You know, yeah. not as much money, which it would have been great to see. I think it would have been awesome just throw in another monster that you don't normally see in a monster mashup film. Oh, I agree. You know, that would have been that would have been a thought, wild card. Yeah. Oh, it would have been great. I mean, you, monster rally movies, of course. You've got the vampire, the Frankenstein, the mummy, the werewolf. Throw in something new, man. I would have loved to have seen a golem in that, but oh well. No. Yeah, things were things were not to be, and as, as a matter of fact, Nashi has always complained that uh, the makeups done for this movie are one of the worst of any of his movies. Oh boy, the monster! <sighs> speaking of which, Frankenstein's monster. Wow, it's <laughs> pretty bad. You know, it it leaves an impression. Um, okay, wow, that is the most neutral phrasing I have ever heard. For that was some shitty makeup, but I'm not going you know, to say that was some shitty makeup. So there are no bolts on the neck, so you know you're you're away from the universal model. You know, you still got the flat top head though, and the green skin and all that. So, it, oh man, um, my biggest issue with the Frankenstein makeup. Okay, let me take that back. My two biggest issues with the Frankenstein <laughs> makeup. Strike that. There are three big issues I have with the makeup. Okay. Uh, it's my clear five, that he's wearing a wig. My five problems yeah. with the Frankenstein. No, go ahead. Yeah. It's clear that he's wearing a wig. I hated the hair piece. I hated the hair yeah. makeup. It was just too clean. It, it should have had some texture or life to it. Um the color, the I, the color, the green is so freaking bright. Oh, wow. It's it's just, he feels like he's from a different film. Uh, yes. the, the color of his skin, it just doesn't seem to fit. And it's so flat. There, again, there's no life to it. And I know they even say at one point in the film, he has no heart. He doesn't have feelings, you know, whatever. There, there's no life to him, though. He no. just seems like something has been kind of painted onto the film. And, and thirdly, I hate that he never opens his eyes all the way. Um, I really hate that squinted kind of look. Yeah. Um, most of the time he looks like he's not even opening his eyes. Uh, and in the one time that you can actually see the whites of his eyes, it is so jarring because we haven't seen that at all in the entire film that it almost takes you out of the moment. It's just really weird. I have no idea what they were thinking. It's, it's a terrible makeup. It seems to me as if the, the Frankenstein monster 
makeup is the is the is the makeup that got the least amount of attention. Uh, sure, the, the makeup guy did not paint himself in glory with what he did with the vampire character, but at least it was, you know, less, less, it was, it's less, less bad. And it's at times pretty effective. The, whatever, you know, color that, that is, that is all over the, the vampire's flesh and the fangs are, you know, that color is okay. And the fangs are okay, but it's, uh, oh man, the, the movie does have one standout piece of, of uh, makeup and one alone, and that is The Mummy. The Mummy's great. You know, uh, I know we just kind of brushed over the vampire, and just hearing you talk about the color of it, I bet the Frankenstein monster would have looked much better if this film was in black and white. And yeah. looking at the vampire's makeup, I bet that would have looked amazing, too. Yeah. And now I kind of want to go in and take some of their scenes and... Not that they really have a lot of scenes together, if any, if I remember now. No, <laughs> but I would like to take some of those, yeah, take some of those still images and just kind of black and white them and see what that looks like. Just I wonder how that would have held up. Anyway, uh, the Mummy. The Mummy looks great. I love me a Mummy movie. I've talked about this on Monster Kid Radio. I love Mummy movies. It's one of my favorite um, monster tropes or stereotypes. And the Mummy in this, I thought, had one of the coolest looks. Uh, the makeup is cool. The guy they have playing him looks great. Yeah, it's it's a good monster. I really enjoyed it, and I think I enjoyed the werewolf mummy fight most of all. It's the hi- it's the highlight thing. of the movie. The, oh that yeah, fight at great. the end. I, I will say that one of the things this movie gets right is that uh, the whole you know final like twenty minutes or so are the the most exciting sections of the movie. There are other good sections of the movie. For instance, the entire sequence where they uh, go to, uh, quote-unquote, Egypt and uh, dig out the tomb of the mummy, that whole section is actually pretty damned effective and, and uh, kind of oh, yeah. creepy and atmospheric and just well shot. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of really, I was noticing this time through with the fantastic new Blu-ray that's you know got the right aspect ratio and everything, just how cleverly and artistically a lot of the setups, a lot of the camera setups are for this movie where it's just beautifully framed. Everything is nice, and and there's a lot of smart camera movement and very effective uh, just ways of technically filming certain things that keep you within the scene instead of, you know, thinking about the fact that you're watching a movie. There's a lot of good stuff there. And, of course, it's broken up with with a lot of stuff that that feels a lot more choppy and feels... um, feels like it's it's kind of ham-handed at times which you know probably is part and parcel of having two different directors coming in and and having to weld their footage together i guess anyway yeah yeah but i think you're right i think i like the monster fights i like all the stuff with nashi but in terms of scenes and sequences the resurrection of the mummy and when they find the mummy and bring him in it's really cool. <laughs> I, I like I said, I love the mummy thing. I love the Egyptology aesthetic. I love all of that stuff. And I feel like I've seen lower budget films that have had maybe a more authentic looking Egypt set. But yeah. there's just something cool about digging around a tomb looking for mummies and it's just neat, man. Well how cool <laughs> well how cool was that um the their method of uh 
both finding the tomb, finding the place where the body is, and then resurrecting the mummy. That um, that weird mirror, the the Ankh mirror. Oh yeah! Holy yeah. crap! What a what a great idea! And of course, it's it's yeah. wonderful because it's you know I'm sure it's complete balderdash. But at the same time, they sell it effectively within the body of the movie to the point where you're willing to go along with it. It's pretty well oh, done. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're sitting there watching and you're like, yeah, I, I I see why they have to do it this way. It makes sense in context of the film. Exactly. And that's all you really need. As long as the, the whatever is go- going on fits within what your sense of reality for the movie is, then it functions and it does its job and carries you on through it's and that and that's some great stuff oh you know what i noticed (laughs) we haven't here really quick i've got a quick summary of the film for those of you unaware (laughs) assignment terror uh is uh here's here's a quick description the uh alien civilization of umo is dying in order to uh to survive the aliens must find another environment which is comparable to their own they find it in the form of the planet Earth and hatch a plan to infiltrate society using mankind's superstitions as a means of exerting control. Dr. O- Odo Warnoff, who's played by Michael Rennie, uh, spearheads the operation and gets, sets about reviving a host of monsters, including, of course, Valdemar Doninsky, in order to realize their grisly mission. It's a little weird. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, it's, I mean, think about it, man. This movie was shot in 1969, released in, you know, in 1970, the earliest it was released in different countries. It was released, you know, like 71, 72, 73. This is the type of plot that feels much more at place in maybe the 1950s, you think? I got a real Plan 9 from Outer Space vibe off of that setup. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, it feels very... Uh, Ed Woodian. (laughs) (laughs) You are aliens that have found a way to travel from wherever it is you are to Earth. And you're impersonating human beings and doing all this crazy science stuff. And your big idea is, let's set Frankenstein's monster loose. Let's just see what happens. (laughs) Let's turn a vampire (laughs) loose. Well, well, I I do say this, and they they never quite get there because... Uh, they're hamstrung by different things, but the whole idea is to get these monsters and then create duplicates of these monsters and have these monsters wipe out humanity. And of course, they explain that they, you know, they could they could just do it with atomic weaponry, but you know, then the ha- the planet they want would be useless to them. So okay, that's cool. I understand, and I kind of get a kick out of the idea that these aliens don't have these ridiculous superstitions. So this is not going to bother them to have this stuff around. So we'll just use this horrible thing or horrible things that terrify humans. And uh, that'll be our, that'll be our way of dealing with this, this, this uh, eradication of humanity problem. And um, I don't suspect that um, this idea was workshopped on Umo at all. I, I don't think there was a meeting at any point where uh, people got together and really, really dug into the presentation of this idea in a way that would allow them to um, to realize, you know, there are a lot of points at which this is probably going to fail. Oh, uh, yeah. Who did Michael Rennie upset back on their home plan <laughs> to set him up to be the guy to go do this? That was well, okay. How, how much of a shock is it 
to see Klaatu. I mean, you know, of course, Michael Rennie is the the, oh, the lead actor boy. from the day who are, they the day the Earth stood still, and it's one of those things where yeah, he was in a lot of other things as well, but this is near the end. This is near the end of his career, and sadly, near the end of his life. Uh, because I mean, just a few months after this movie was completed, he passed away from emphysema. So it's one of those things where you look at this and it is kind of interesting to have him playing as his last role, a variation on his most famous role. Um, Mm -hmm. but he does, he does look kind of frail. I mean, he does look ill to a degree and um, I mean, he's give, he's given it his all, but he, there is a certain uh, when you think back to the vitality he had in that 1951 film, and mm-hmm. and realize that what you're looking at is a man who uh, clearly not only has aged, you know, 18 or so years, but has also seems to have physically lost a step. It's kind of it's 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 kind of uh, it's kind of weird, <laughs> I gotta say. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me as far as watching the movie, but it, it, if the fact that they're specifically casting him to call back to that to that characterization to that role, um, it, you know, you do put the the two images side by side repeatedly in your head if you're you know a science fiction movie nut. Yeah, I I can't watch it without, and I think I said this earlier. I, I can't help but wonder what's going through his mind, especially in some of these walking around the carnival or whatever scenes yeah, where yeah. he's just kind of wandering around. It's like, he's got a great look. I love his eyes in this. I mean, he, he really has, he's delivering great face, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yes. And, yes. And, he, he really is. Yeah. But God, you, you know, he's just thinking to himself half the time. How did I end up here? <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? How, how, why am I here? I don't, I don't get it. But, you know, I mean, a, a job's a job. You know, I don't know what his job prospects were at that point or what. But well, by this point in his career, he'd been doing a lot of episodic television. He uh, uh, just the year before was in a great Antonio Margheriti film uh, that started out as a Mario Bava script called. Uh, uh, it's released on the DVD as Naked You Die or The Young, The Evil, and The Savage. It's essentially a, uh, a giallo set in a girls' school, and he's the uh, inspector. He's the <laughs> inspector who comes in trying to solve these murders. Okay. And once again, he's just he's an older, distinguished man in that, and he's he's there's a he's visibly. Uh, I gotta say, I think he's visibly healthier in that movie, even though there's not that much time between the two films being being made. But he was doing a lot of television, a lot of television. I mean, some movies as well, like Hotel and Death on the Run. But he was doing Man from Uncle and Hondo and I Spy and Time Tunnel. And of course, he was uh, the Sandman on the Batman TV series. So it's he was working all yeah. the time. But what what can you say? He even and I did not know this. Um, until just recently, but he played the the he played Harry Lime in the Third Man TV series in the uh, from 1959 to like 1965. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I know it's really weird. How, how do you replace Orson I, Welles? Yeah, I. Hmm. You know, I, I'm not as familiar with his career as I, I probably should be because he is really good in the Day of the Earth. But still, I mean, he's fascinating and he, he's iconic. You know, and as a monster kid. Yeah, he's going to be right up there with with a lot of these classic sci-fi actors from the fifties. But I'm not overly familiar with a lot of his work. In fact, I'd even forgotten he was in Batman until you said something. Yeah, I mean, it's so, something I'd forgotten too. But it seems that he spent the sixties mostly doing TV. Well, I mean, as much as he seems a little lost in this film, uh, he's still good. Oh I mean, yeah, I still enjoy it. 
Well, just out of curiosity, had you ever seen uh, his Alien co-star, the the uh, the absolutely gorgeous Karen Dor plays? Doesn't matter. <laughs> M- uh, Maleva, she plays Maleva. Yeah, it kind of doesn't because as soon as I see her, I'm just thinking, oh, that's Karen Dor. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, Karen Dor is kind of famous for being a Bond villain. Uh, well, I mean, not a Bond villain. She was just a Bond girl in uh, You Only Live Twice. Uh, mm-hmm. just a couple of years before this. But I really have seen her in so many of the German-made Krimi films. It's just a joy to see her because she's she's so pretty and she's incredibly talented. She seems to have been able to do just about anything they threw at her. Uh, and if you, if you were to just sit down and say, I'm going to watch five movies made in the 60s that star Karen Dorr, oh man, you would be seeing some great stuff. Uh, I'm serious, like Treasure of Silver Lake or The Strangler of Blackmore Castle, uh, mm-hmm. Room 13. Uh, she was in at least one of the Winnetou films, I think maybe maybe more than one. Uh, she was in uh, The Face of Fu Manchu with uh, Christopher Lee, of course. That would be the uh, the first of the, the Christopher Lee Fu, Fu Manchu films. Um, Which... I really enjoy. I do too. <laughs> Which I do too. Is probably not politically correct to say so, but I do like this. She actually appeared in a film that I've covered on Monster Kid Radio with uh, Troy Howarth, uh, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism. Yes, exactly. And that's, that is so, a great little movie. Yeah. yeah. It's not, not to sidetrack too much, but yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a really cool film that suffers because of its title. I think if, and, and we talked about with this, this with Troy when we had him on MKR to talk about it. That it was a movie that I always kind of avoided because I thought the title just made it sound sleazy, and that's not the kind of movie I'm into. Yeah, but you know, it's a good little film, and she's great. She is like you said, she's gorgeous. Uh, I, I love her eyes, um, and she's a really good actress. The uh, so. the other actress in the film, uh, Patty Shepard, she plays. Uh uh, well, a, a potential victim. She doesn't. She doesn't really. She almost becomes a victim. She's certainly on the plate for the vampire at a certain period. But she, she's played by. <laughs> she's played by Patty Shepard, who. Um, <laughs> no, I want to see a movie called The Plate of the Vampire. The plate of the, yeah, that's, that's, plate of the vampire. That's what I want. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. I thought about. That. I, I never know exactly what I'm going to say or how I'm going to phrase it until it pops out of my evil face. I'm sorry. Um, oh no, I love it! I love it. But uh, Patty Shepard uh, was in a number of uh, Nashi films. She was uh, she played the the evil vampire woman in Werewolf versus the Vampire Women, also or Vampire Woman, also that that film's also known as Werewolf Shadow, and uh, she was in um, uh, a film called Crypt of the Living Dead or uh, The Hanging Woman uh, over here. And, uh, but I mean, she was just in a lot of European produced films, you know, Giallo's like my, you know, my dear killer and a couple of, uh, police films as well. And the, uh, Oh, even a couple of spaghetti Westerns. She was in, uh, uh, blood money, which is an Antonio Margariti Western with Lee Van Cleef. I mean, Patty Shepard was in a lot of movies and she's, she's quite fun here because she gets to play. Sad to say, Patty Shepard, usually when she's in, uh, uh, the movies that I see her in, she's playing a villainous or she's play, she's playing uh, some kind of uh, darker tinged character. And in this, she's a very happy, uh, happy go lucky uh, woman who's who's who initiates a romance between herself and the investigating cop, uh, and is just clearly having the time of her life. And the character she's playing is just so full of life and vivacious. It's just wonderful to see her playing a role like this because I'm used to her, you know, playing a character in which she's having to. Uh, 
uh, you know, kill people or threaten people or uh, stalk people, things like that. And it's really nice to see her in something else. I I hate to say this, but I get so much joy out of knowing that the last three roles that Patty Patty Shepard played were in films that I absolutely love and yet can't completely... (laughs) Cannot completely defend. Uh, slugs. I was going to say, why haven't you brought up Slugs Oh, it's yet, coming. You, you had to know it was coming. Uh, slugs, uh, Rest in Pieces, which is a, a, a Jose Larraz film, which ain't particularly good, but then she also was in Jose Larraz's film Edge of the Axe, which is just about to come out on Blu-ray. And Edge of the Axe is a movie that I really actually thoroughly freaking enjoy. And I can't... I mean, if people watched edge of the axe and then you know called me on the carpet to ask me why i recommended it i would just have to say because i liked it i'm sorry i really i like it i can't (laughs) can't do more than that but i mean it's got patty shepherd and jack taylor and the two of them share a bunch of scenes together hey man what the hell more do you need as far as i'm concerned that could be a movie we all have movies in our uh in our collection that yeah it's sometimes hard to (laughs) and and i get it i mean and you and I actually in the past have kind of ribbed each other about Dracula versus Frankenstein, the Al Adamson film. Yep. I know full well what that movie is and in particular what that movie is not, but I <laughs> love it. And <laughs> before we were recording, before we started recording, we were talking about these movies that end up in our collection over and over and over again. And that's one of them for me. I have had Dracula versus Frankenstein in various forms in my DVD and VHS and Blu-ray collection over the years. And I have no shame, man. I love that film. And <laughs> I, you know, I, I have, I I have owned that movie one time and I shot, put it that son of a bitch right out of my collection as quickly as I could. <laughs> that thing went sailing over an imaginary fence and into somebody oh, else's man. collection. You know, and I, and, and I get it. I know. I know. Oh, that movie should, by all rights, not be something I love so much, but I do. I've introduced it at a local theater here at the Joy Cinema in Tigard, Oregon, uh, a couple of times over the years. I, I, I love it. I will support and, and promote that to bring it up on your podcast. Um, you know, I <laughs> just love it. I mean, I and I get it. I know. I know what that film <laughs> means. I, I understand. But I still love it yeah, so much yeah. that I found a way to bring it up on your podcast, Rod. <laughs> And that's perfectly okay. I think, and that's the thing, is this is something that I think a lot of casual film, you know, f- film enjoyers. I, I can't call them film fans because if you're a film fan, really, that that word is short for fanatic, and that means that you actually kind of love this stuff to a certain degree. And I think the most casual film watchers don't have a tendency to do what we do, which is we watch so much, so we watch so much cinema then inevitably you're going to run across a film that even though you don't particularly admire it as a great piece of art, you do admire it for what it does to you. (laughs) And And that that movie does a lot to me, for sure. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's not the path I was walking down, but that's a valid path. That's good. I like that. That also illustrates what we're discussing, which is there are some movies that you're not, you know, you really can't, defend you know you can't say 
no, this is a great film and I'll fight you and I'll explain and I'll go through details. It's like, no, 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 I just like that movie. I know that it's crap. <laughs> just, mm-hmm. it's, I know that it's terrible. I can't really explain to you why I love it as much as I do, but I just do. There, there are lots of films like that, I think, that you said fanatic, you know, film fanatics, film fans have, that it's really hard to justify. And, oh man, I... Uh, all over the map on your podcast. Sorry to make your editing so difficult. No, don't worry about it. That's part of the joy. So, some of these films that I own are movies that I own because when I first watched them, watched them, they had an impact on you and they're important to you at a particular time. But over the years, and I hate to use the word outgrown, but you know, you kind of, I guess, outgrow them a little bit. But they're still so important to you. I, I have a a really good horror film in my collection that I will go to the grave with that I know full well that it is lacking in so many ways and is so okay <laughs> I, it's so I'm sorry it's, it's, I'm sorry. it's so it, hold on hold on it's so what it's called Neon is... Maniacs and oh Neon so, Maniacs okay I mean I and I know I know it's so lacking in so many ways but when it first <laughs> came out when I first saw it uh-huh. it had such an impact on me that yeah, I mean, I bought it on VHS. Yeah, I bought it on DVD. And when it came out on Blu-ray, you know I signed up for it. <laughs> you know, because of what it is. And I, and I know, and it's totally not the kind of thing that I'm into much anymore. You know, I'm a monster kid. I like my classic monster stuff. Why do I have this almost exploitive, low-budget, really low-budget <laughs> horror movie in my collection <laughs> that, you know, I don't know. I couldn't tell you, but I can quote it. I, I <laughs> You know, I can tell you how the movie starts. I can tell you, I can lip sync the dialogue as it goes along because I watched it so much growing up. I don't know. Well, some, I don't know where cases, I'm going with this, man. I, I, I just, in some cases, I think that some of this is, and this may seem kind of bizarrely facile, but sometimes it's the age at which you saw something. Sure, sure. It kind of, and it can kind of imprint on you. It kind of becomes the way you think about certain things. Um, I know that's definitely true of uh, a lot of children's literature. I think that one of the reasons why it's so good to uh, read fairy tales to kids is not to give the kids the idea that, you know, these things are real and out, uh, you know, at real or out in the real world, you're going to run across trolls or whatever. But it's because these stories not they they give uh, not just morals or or the I, the ideas behind uh, the the positive things and the negative things in life, but they also kind of imprint patterns in how we expect stories to go or how we can kind of anticipate and enjoy a story that withholds certain elements uh, until we're conscious of the fact that we're kind of expecting them. And there's a, a way of presenting this when you're a kid. And like I say, when you're younger, these things are much more able to imprint themselves on you and therefore kind of become the way in which you, uh, your, your brain and the way you think about these, the way they kind of bend around them so that you're, even if you're not consciously later in life comparing one thing to another, unconsciously because of those early things, because of those things that you saw when you were younger, you still kind of are. Those things were the standard because they were your first experience. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when you say that this movie that is so, you know, uh, 
different from the kinds of things that you absolutely love as an adult. You probably saw it at a time and in circumstances that made it important in how you see other things. And therefore, it's never really going to lose that luster. You could probably watch it and rewatch it and, and it would become less something you'd want to return to because of the familiarity. But the the joys that you get out of it are part and parcel of what it did to you when you first saw it. Oh, yeah. And I think there's probably at least uh, a YouTube series in me about how, why I love this movie so much, Neon Maniac so much. <laughs> so um, stay tuned for that, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? 20, 2020 can bring many strange things. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't. Mm. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> Assignment terror. Yeah, what are we talking uh, just, about? <laughs> just briefly. So uh, to, to, to kind of wrap this up in a, biz, in a bizarre wow. way. I am so sorry. No, we went no. totally off topic. Um, it, d- it doesn't matter. That's what the joy yeah. of this kind of thing really kind of is. <laughs> With Assignment Terror, it is a hodgepodge. I mean, not, not only is it just a, a giant monster mash, uh, he throws in just almost everything but the, but the golem. And it becomes kind of a thing where um, the pieces... For me, at least, the pieces are much better than the whole, but the pieces are pretty damn good. It's worth seeing because of the individual sections of it that really work. Even though, man, for a Valdemar Donitsky film, I think he has like less than nine, eight or nine lines of dialogue. So you're not really getting your full on Valdemar Donitsky in this movie. But, you know, there are other joys in it as well. Oh, yeah. There's some great set pieces. There's some really cool performances. I love, like I said, I love the fight scene between uh, the the werewolf and the mummy. That is yeah, the, yeah. the standout. And it's not just a slugfest. They are thinking creatures that are trying to not just beat each other up, but kind of outwit each other while they do it. And it's it's really kind of cool to see. And that that to me, I think, is the highlight of the film. Yeah, I would agree. But overall, I mean, I, I loved it. I had a great time watching it. I said earlier that with the Paul Nashy films, I, I don't have a lot of experience with them. Right. I did try watching this one before, and I really had a hard time with it because the transfer that I had was terrible. It was yep. really difficult to watch. So to be able to have an excuse to open up the Blu-ray and pop it in, man, it was like a revelation. It looked so good. Did so you did, did you treat it as homework? Well, I'll do this for Rod. <laughs> that might have been the start, the seed. <laughs> but I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I did. And you know, it, it really kind of is on brand for me as the Monster Kid Radio guy. I mean, it's it's a monster yeah. rally, you know. But it's still it. It's a good film. I mean, I really enjoyed watching it. I had a grand time with it. Uh, it's something I'm going to go back and rewatch. When I watched it last night, it was the subtitled version. I'd love to watch it again because it's dubbed on the Blu-ray too, right? There's a dub version of it. Yeah, I wonder got, how it's that... got both versions. And yeah. uh, Troy, Troy Howarth uh, provides mm-hmm. a commentary track. I listened to about the first half of it last night. Uh, well, no, not last night, uh, but the, the night we watched the movie Wednesday night, and it was just a blast to uh, to just have him going through it and pointing out he, he was pointing out a few things it's just it's just really nice to have that kind of uh that kind of addition to a film that like i say until now you could see it but it was going to like crap so yeah this is a revelation in a lot of ways and not just because of a commentary track you know and i mean it sounds good i like the music in a lot of it uh, some yes. of the music feels a little out of place 
it feels like it'd be more at home in like a Euro spy film, but I don't care because I love Euro spy films as well a lot. Uh, and it's, it's apropos that we're talking about this movie now, because this is the time of year where I start getting into like my spaghetti Westerns and my Euro spies and that sort of thing. I was just talking to somebody about the Ken Clark films, uh, like mission bloody Mary and things like that the other day. Uh, you know, I just, I love, that subgenre so much and for whatever reason after halloween i typically dive headfirst into spaghetti westerns and euro spy films not sure why i just do <laughs> it's just something i've done for years and i love it so to even have that flavor kind of sprinkled throughout this film for whatever reason inadvertently or not was a treat there is a, a, a strange kind of euro vibe to this and that's that's kind of cool you're right i that 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 is there and the music does enhance or maybe even kind of just create that because uh there's only a few elements of the film on screen that would really conjure that up the lab sequences maybe you know yeah yeah well just the opening credit music even just it feels like you're about to go into you know, Roger Brown's going to walk across the screen in a tuxedo and he's going to do something and, you know, just, <laughs> you know, and that's great. I love it. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. All right, Derek, I want to thank you once again for coming on and talking for a little while about assignment terror. I mean, we did meander all over the place, but that's actually <laughs> what I expected. Things, yeah. And a few other things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. I'm always saying this on monster kid radio. You get a couple of monster kids together, start talking about one thing. And 20 <laughs> minutes later, you're talking about something completely unrelated. And apparently that happens with Nashy kids too. Oh, so <laughs> yes, yes, it does. If you, oh my God, there's some, there, there was a period of time in the show when episodes began to stretch to three and three and a half hours in length, when Troy and I really kind of had to finally realize, you know, we need to reel this back. <laughs> this is, this is ridiculous. We are taking way too much of the time of our listeners uh, for side for little side roads that have nothing to do with what we're doing. But in brief, and talking specifically to someone other than myself about these things, these side roads are good, and they enhance things. So do not feel bad about it, because <laughs> hey, you're monster, you're monster kid radio. You are Derek Cook. You are good at this. And oh. there's a joy to knowing <laughs> that these kind of movies, they, they, they still, they still light the, they still light up the brain cells, man. They still light up the, the areas of the brain that make you uh, love this stuff. So thank you once again for being here. Yo, thanks for having me on. And it's been an honor to actually appear on the Nashy cast, you know, proper. I've really enjoyed our conversations we've had on the Bloody Pit. And I can't wait to get back to that at some point in 2020 uh, with the William Castle films that we're doing over there. And this was just, it was an honor. Rod, you're one of those guys that I wish we podcasted more together. So let's definitely get you on Monster Kid Radio at some point. We have a couple of other uh sci-fi italian sci-fi films that we need to talk about on mkr at some point plus uh another edgar Allan poe film at some point Ooh. too so we, we've got uh what was web of the spider is that what it yeah. is uh, yeah so we that's got to happen at some point we got to do it i think i think it's an excellent plan and and don't uh, don't tell everybody out there but uh yeah i i'm gonna ask you to come back on nashi cast later this year so yeah okay i won't say anything to anybody <laughs> <laughs> talk to you again soon buddy all right thanks man spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, 
Derek M. Cook and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on... Monster Kid Radio! So yes, this is a um, you know it was essentially Nashi's House of Frankenstein, you know, is what yep, this was. Yep, but yep. but you know what it really um, reminds me of, and I don't remember if we talked about this when we were on our original episode of Assignment Terror, but it was occurring to me while I was listening to you guys talk about it that this is maybe Nashi's film that feels the closest to Mexican horror movies for me, ah, because of not only the big monster mash because nobody threw in more monsters than the Mexicans, you know, <laughs> and then their monster mashes, but also the science fiction elements because you think about the Santo films. Always had, you yeah, know, they always yeah. had the monsters, but then they always had Santo's lab with all his high tech equipment and his, you know, his amazing viewer True. that he could just look in on anybody with, you know. And I hadn't thought and, about uh, that, but you're right. Yeah, yeah, so it has that kind of uh, feel. It made me think of, uh, you know, you mentioned the golem, and I do wish the golem had been in this. You know, yes, that, yes, but, very much so. But uh, it made me think of uh, the the uh, Santo and the Blue Demon against the monsters because you remember they had love the, that movie. Had, yeah. Oh yeah, but they had the classic monsters in it. But then they just threw in a cyclops because why not? You know, let's just have a cyclops in there too. <laughs> and you know, so it's those kind of elements. It made me think of this is actually kind of close to a, a Santo film, and I never thought about it in that. Uh, Respect, but I never had either until yeah. now. You're right, though. Yeah, but it, but it is kind of an oddball story that that, that Deni- you know, d- like, dude, it's not kind oh, of an odd. It's story. a very odd. Let's just go over. Well, first of all, Valdemar Daninsky's just a, a, you know pretty much a supporting character. I know it's very strange. Like it's like yeah. we like we pointed out. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't. There, I think Daninsky has fewer than five or six lines yeah. of dialogue in the entire yeah. in the entire film. Yeah, and uh, and you know, and and you you guys are right about the the pacing problems <laughs> at yeah, times you yeah. know gets a uh and uh and something i always thought was really strange about the film is is why not uh you know the vampire you know why not make him count dracula i mean i have i have some ideas i'm th- i don't know if maybe if they made him count dracula they would almost feel like they had to make him too much more of a major character than he is because the really the vampire doesn't do a he's kind of the more and more underused yeah, monsters yeah, in this so. film you know like I, I feel like they didn't really do a whole lot with the vampire in this just making him count something I can't remember what the name they gave him uh, now but it wasn't Dracula but I'm wondering if maybe that's one reason but I was sitting there thinking why not why didn't you just make him count Dracula Cause that, and make him more of a bigger character because that would have been so much more interesting and something you know? else about not calling it the Frankenstein monster when it's obviously the Frankenstein monster I, oh, something, yeah. that, something that didn't occur to me when Derek and I were talking mm-hmm. but maybe the reason they decided to not call it the Frankenstein monster Mm-hmm. Is that the the Hammer Frankenstein films were still a going concern at that time? Yeah, yeah. We're talking the late '60s. Yeah, that was still something that was still mm-hmm. going. Yeah. So maybe they were afraid if they if they did that, they would uh, maybe get a cease and desist order from <laughs> Ray Studios. Could I don't know. Um, but I'm with you guys totally on the you know the the werewolf mummy fight is fantastic. 
yes, in this. Fantastic. And I think it's it, I mean, I, it may be the best classic monster fight, really, that we ever saw on the screen. Because, I mean, it's kind of like Nashi gave us what we always wanted, yep. you know, from, from, from the old movies. And uh, what he always wanted to see. And so he really, he, you know, the fight between the werewolf and the Frankenstein, or the monster, I think, as I recall, is okay. But the mummy, the one with the mummy is the one that just really kicks ass. I mean, that's a great fight. It really is. And it's one of those things where... Once again, the touchstone mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. for Paul Nashie, for Jacinto Molina as a kid, it it's always it always goes back to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. But there's no way of getting around the fact that when you see that movie as an adult, no matter how much you mm-hmm. love it, mm-hmm. and I do love it, oh yeah, there is a sense mm-hmm. that there needed to be more mm-hmm. of the title of the film mm-hmm. in the film. In other yeah. words, oh, sure. that That's, fight yeah. between those two characters needed to mm-hmm. be bigger. Mm-hmm. than it eventually ended up being yeah. in the movie itself. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's almost as if little Jacinto Molina mm-hmm. is like thinking the same thing yeah. as an adult and going, well, we're going to have a werewolf mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. a mummy fight, and mm-hmm. it is going to be a knockdown drag out. Yeah, and get back to what you and Adrian had talked about in the last segment about the uh, he expressed disappointment in the final fight between the, <clears throat> the werewolf and the vampires yeah. in uh Werewolf versus the Vampire Women, and that might have come down to possibly what Patty Shepard was willing to do. We'll never know. True. But, we, you know, you mentioned how much better the fight at the end of Night of the Werewolf is between Julia Sally's vampires and, and, and El Hombre Lobo, and I think that uh, Julia, uh, Julia Sally was probably just, I think she was more willing to take abuse, you know, than <laughs> it's possible that Patty Shepard just said, hey, this is what I'm doing, and not any further, and you would certainly rather him still use her than get some hairy-armed double in there you know to which would be really distracting so it could be possibly that she may have put a kibosh on getting too physical there i thought about that whereas i think julia sally was she's just ready to like yeah let's 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 throw down down this thing and so uh um she was probably ready to kick paul nashie's ass by that point by all the stuff he put her through you know in those films (laughs) but uh good point but uh but anyway yeah but but so getting back to this i think this was the one of the best classic monster battles we've we've ever had on the big screen is this one between him and the mummy it's it's really really you get your good bang for your buck there well with this blu-ray how do you do you did it make you reevaluate the film Mm reevaluate the film a bit because it did for Mm -hmm. me because (laughs) assignment terror has always been definitely a lesser sure to the point where Mm -hmm. i've always felt that it's just Mm -hmm. it and i still do feel even with this new blu-ray giving me uh, a much better impression of the movie overall i still feel that it is uh, a mess of a movie oh it is no question it's uh it, it doesn't hang together there are parts that mm. that are that seem slightly slightly disconnected and mm-hmm. some pieces that are mm-hmm. connected only by the thinnest of tissue mm-hmm. and uh sometimes it's very obvious that the focus is on the wrong characters and the focus mm-hmm. is on yeah. uh, it's not carrying a, a good through line <laughs> through the story but the good parts are very good. Yeah, and I agree. I didn't. I didn't. No, I, I do enjoy the film now more than I used to. Yeah. Uh, I agree. That I, I'll never. You know, it will never rank highly on my list of of, of Nashi films, but it's still one that I do enjoy. It certainly helped by this Blu-ray presentation because it is a very comic booky film, and so yeah. the more visually it can be enhanced, the better the better that it that it will be. Um, I, I I've also I, I can't I can't let Adrian I'm excuse me I'm sorry I'm getting my segments mixed up I can't let Derek slide on his uh, his love of mummies but uh, however <laughs> I can get totally hey. behind, I know hey. I know I know but I can totally get behind him on his love for uh, um, Dracula versus Frankenstein so <laughs> all, you like that Alan? well it's it's, it's it is awful it is awful yes it is it is terrible but point. I do just have such a great affection for that film and and you know that is a film that by rights I should have hated because when I. When it came on TV, I was still, you know, very young, 
first time I saw it listed, you know, Dracula versus Frankenstein. Wow, what's this? And that was, you know, now we, of course, you know, we can recite chapter and verse all the films that came out under Hammer and Universal. But at that time, you know, my still only connection to that world was like Famous Monsters. Right. You still, I still knew that there was a lot of things out there I hadn't seen. And literally, so I'm looking at the paper. I see Dracula versus Frankenstein. I see Lon Chaney listed. I'm thinking, ooh, we're going to, you know. I'm, this I'm, is going to be good. This is going to be a classic monster. I'm picturing Bela Gosi and Lon Chaney going at it, you know. Boy, was, <laughs> was, was I, you know, disappointed. But, you know, even then, I just couldn't. You know what needs to happen? What yeah. needs to happen mm-hmm. is I need to either on Monster Kid Radio or mm-hmm. or on the Bloody Pit. Mm-hmm. What needs to happen is I'm going to have to get you mm-hmm. and Derek mm-hmm. and just set you down, and we will go through that damned Al Adams film, <laughs> and we will and make you love it. We will make you understand. I doubt you will manage that, <laughs> but I am willing to have the experiment attempted. Well, okay, we'll take you up on that, won't we, Derek? We'll take you up. We will make you watch. But you guys ragged on the makeup of the monster in Assignment Terror. Man, that looks like a Dick Smith creation compared to the Did monster. In, yes, yeah, because, I mean, it looks like you, that monster in Dracula versus Frankenstein, looks like you put a bag over someone's head, smeared it with peanut butter, and then popped the bag or something. <laughs> <laughs> and oatmeal. Peanut butter and oatmeal and popped the bag on the guy's head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the humanity. Okay, folks. Uh, okay, hold on. Let's uh, whew, let's get ready for our next segment. <laughs> I'm recovering from this one. Oh, my goodness. All right, folks. Our third guest on the 10th anniversary episode of the Neshi Cast whew, is, is our buddy Steve Sullivan, the uh, writer. Uh, yeah, Steve. Awesome. Of many, a writer of many, a, a novel that uh, I've enjoyed, and uh, someone who is a major Nashi fan and has been kind of uh, geeking mm. out pretty hard lately. Uh, I think the his, uh, his his spastic spastic postings on social media about uh, finally getting to see Beast of the Magic Sword <laughs> have been truly amazing to read. But uh, Steve and I uh, did a couple of episodes on the Bloody Pit uh, a couple of years ago, where he and I went through the two uh, Doctor Who movies made uh, made in the '60s with Peter Cushing. He and I went through both of those mm-hmm. and compared and contrasted our feelings. He liked one more than I liked the other. I, basically, we both liked one of those movies more than the other liked it, and so that was that was fun. And uh, Steve and I have some plans to do some other such podcasts again in the future. Not necessarily Doctor Who, but something slightly weirder mm-hmm. and. <laughs> I asked Steve, hey, since you're turning into such a Paul Nashy lunatic, mm-hmm. uh, pick one of the Duninsky mm-hmm. films and let's sit down and discuss it. So he decided that uh, what he wanted to talk about was Curse of the Devil, The Return of Walpurgis from 1973, El Retorno de Walpurgis. Let me throw in it. In 10 years, point. folks, we haven't gotten any better at that aspect of the but show. Somehow, <laughs> me trying to say a Spanish title comes out with a fake bad German accent. I don't know how that works out, but that's just what occurred. I apologize. By the way, in Germany, this film was called Night of the Fiendish Orgy. Wow, no, that... Now that... That would have you first in line at the exactly, drive-in right there. Exactly. Well, how about, how about death, death Grip of the Cruel Wolves? <laughs> that, that's pretty intriguing. I would have to see that film. Yeah, then there's the gener- generic Night of the Killer. That's that's more. Yeah, and I see that's even worse when they go with a name that you can't distinguish from any other film. See, in the last segment when you talked with Derek, you guys mentioned a film movie I love, and I know you guys do too, uh, The Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, because oh, you were talking about movie, Karen yeah. Dorr. 
which I do love the movie. You're talking about what a terrible title that is. But if you look at the original name of that movie, it translates as The Snake Pit and the Pendulum, which really isn't that much better. <laughs> but The Snake Pit and the Pendulum at least sounds like somebody... It sounds like it's linking itself in some weird way to mm. Edgar Allan Poe. Right. The film does right. feel kind of Edgar Allan Poe, especially yeah. those Corman Poe films from the 60s. Yeah. So that would at least have been yeah. a title that would have hinted at it being yeah. in that same style. Yeah, but that the, good. Right, but now a third title for it, getting back to what we're talking about here, the generic, the other third title is Castle of the Walking Dead. <laughs> now, that, of the Walking now that Dead. sure makes it, that that makes it easy to distinguish. <laughs> so, yeah, that's not... It's yeah. like all these titles either go for the totally insane or they go for the totally generic that you can't distinguish <laughs> from 10, 15 other films. Well, the thing about Curse of the Devil is, is that it is one of the uh, Valdemar Daninsky films that sadly... Has not had a debut no. on yeah, Blu-ray. Yeah, we're still waiting yet. on that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and I just thought we might. It might be a good idea before we we listen to Steve uh, mm. and I talk about this to 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 make a remark on the Valdemar Daninsky films that are not yet available on Blu-ray. Now, mm-hmm. later this year, we're supposedly getting uh, Fury of the Wolfman, mm-hmm. which, as problematic a film as that is, I can't wait. Yeah, because oh, sure, yeah. It's, it's like Assignment Terror. It's the chance to reevaluate the yeah, movie. Yeah. But we still don't have a Blu-ray of Mark of the Wolfman, a, a.k.a. Frankenstein's mm-hmm. Bloody Terror. Right. We do not have a Blu-ray of Wild Purgus Night. I know. Werewolf vs. the Vampire. The big, the big, the and big. man, man, that's going to that's gonna uh, be a seismic shock, man, when that movie, yeah. when the announcement ever gets made about that one coming out, man, that's going to that's gonna be the one that people are going to go nuts over. We don't have a Blu-ray yet of Dr. Jekyll and the Wolfman, nope. which is a bit of a shock because that is a really great great, great entry mm-hmm. in the series. Mm-hmm. I think it's phenomenal. And there is no Blu-ray of Curse of the Devil as yeah. yet. Mm-hmm. Very strange. We do have Blu-rays, of course, of... No, I'm sorry. Not, now, didn't, was there not a Blu-ray of, uh, from Code Red of Dr. Jek- uh, Dr. Jekyll and Wolfman? Was that not a Blu-ray or was that just a DVD no, no, that release? DVD. That was just a DVD release. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. I, I, wish, I got you. I, I got there you. had okay. no Blu-ray, okay. but there's not. Uh, we do have a Blu-ray of uh, Night of the Howling Beast or mm-hmm. Werewolf and the Yeti, of course, and mm-hmm. there's there is one of Night of the Werewolf, right? And now we have Beast of the Magic Sword, mm-hmm. uh, Simon Terror, of course, mm-hmm. as we just spoke about. That's it. We're missing mm-hmm. three biggies, yeah, in yeah. the Valdemar Daninsky saga, mm-hmm. and it's it, and of course I, you can always throw, I mean, you know, Lockentropo in there too. That's not one of the big I guess ones, you but could. you know, I mean, if they did come out with a Blu-ray of that, you and I would oh, snatch, be, snatch it up. You know, be happy to see it there. I'd love to see it. I really would. <coughs> and, uh, there's <coughs> Tomb of the Werewolf. I know we want to see. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I see. don't understand what that film. What's yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. Let's not talk about that. So <laughs> I'm hoping that eventually we get Doctor Jekyll and the Wolfman, and we get Curse of the Devil, and we get yeah. Mark of the Wolfman, yeah. Werewolf yeah. and the Vampire Woman as well, oh, or Vampire yeah. Woman as yeah. well. Absolutely. Uh, we need to, we need to get those movies out on Blu-ray as well. Hopefully, mm-hmm. there are people out there doing things that we don't know about yet, and those yeah. will show up one day. Yeah. But uh, right now, let's talk. Uh, let's talk with Steve about uh, Curse of the Devil. Blood of a virgin. The jaws of a wolf. The night of a full moon. Thus will it descend and the Terenius become one of the truly damned. In the night of Valpurgis, Ilona accomplishes her mission. Valdemar, Melitza came to see me. She told me the whole story. Now you know that I murdered your father and Maria. But you're not culpable. You didn't invite this malediction. I want to help you. Only I can save you. My love will destroy the gray shadow, darling. I swear that you'll find peace. 
I'm joined now by Steve Sullivan, someone who uh, has not been on the Nashy cast before, although I have had him on the sister podcast, The Bloody Pit. We talked about a couple of strange Doctor Who movies from the 1960s. Steve is a writer and uh, someone who uh, I've read quite a bit of his work. Uh, Steve, how are things going on your end, sir? Hey, they're going pretty good here. I mean, things things are pretty pretty keen in my life, although I'm also waiting for my website to... uh, be migrated to a new system so currently uh it's not looking so swell but hopefully by the time people hear this it'll all be back up and running and have a a new (laughs) facelift and and really be looking good so you and i have not really sat down before and talked in depth about paul nashie's films much less his werewolf films which is what we're focusing on right now and uh i just wanted to get a get a handle on uh, how familiar have you been with paul nashie's work in the past I, you know, until you guys started talking about him, I probably wasn't, and I think I probably heard this on the you talking on the B movie cast at some point or something. I wasn't really familiar with Paul Nashie's work, or indeed with a lot of Euro horror in general. You know, I I know a huge amount. Well, I know a huge amount. I have watched pretty much every classic monster movie made in America that I could find. There's always, you know, one or two that elude you that you, you know, it's like, oh, that was made by a, an obscure uh, f- film company in the 60s or the 30s or whatever. There's always something you've missed, right? And those are kind of gems. But I've long been familiar with the Universal Classics and then the Hammer Classics uh, as well. And because of that, you know, it was like, seemed like that was all the horror that there was for a long time. But then you start seeing like little little hints of, you know, the what's this Aztec mummy thing? Or there's another werewolf film? And through all that and through the, the joys and wonders of public domain uh, DVD sets, managed to get to expose to, to some of Nashi's films. Well, yeah. I, I can remember thinking long ago when I was when I was a young film fanatic, uh, I can remember thinking that man, there really weren't very many werewolf movies. I mean, there was like those uh, those classics, you know, with Lon Chaney Jr. in the forties, and, and then the there was that Hammer. one from Hammer, and then suddenly in nineteen eighty there were two: American Werewolf in London and, and The Howling. It's like wow, they're just that's weird that there'd be a, a classic monster. There just weren't there many examples of it. And right, uh, yeah, 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 that was and, essentially and you'd have some TV movies like Howl of the Wolf, yeah, yeah, or yeah. the uh, the the or Scooby Doo episode, or Scooby Doo episodes, or Scooby Doo, yeah. or Johnny Quest, yeah. or you know, there's there's things like that, and there was the the one that's got Peter Cushing in it, which is like Who's the Werewolf, which I forget the title of right now. Oh yeah, I love that. that aren't, yeah, they're, they're pretty cool, but but I'm a big fan of the Wolfman kind of werewolf movies, right? You know, not the not the Nina the Nina Foch movie from the 40s, which in which it's an actual wolf. That's kind of cool, and I kind of like the. The Sam Kathman, the werewolf, which is a man-like werewolf, but it's got a scientific explanation. Yeah. Same as teenage werewolf, and I'm I like the supernatural werewolves better than I do the scientific ones. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine with scientific uh, experiments giving us giant bugs and Godzilla and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but for werewolves, I like ones that are connected to the full moon. And aside from the stuff you mentioned, there was, of course, uh, a couple of werewolves on Dark Shadows, which is a film, oh. uh, film, a series that I completely grew up with. There was the uh, the 
Chris Jennings werewolf and then the uh, the Quentin Collins werewolf later on that were connected through history. Um, but yeah, there weren't a lot of werewolf films. Until, until you realize that actually there were. <laughs> <laughs> that actually, I wasn't the only one that was watching Lon Chaney Jr. Howl at the Moon and thought, this is the coolest thing ever, except maybe for the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, so, yeah there was a little fellow named Jacinto Molina who saw Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and had his life changed. Right, yeah, as as a lot of us did, you know that that remains my probably my favorite Universal sequel, and I know that's kind of sacrilege when there are people out there pulling for Bride of Frankenstein, which is a great film. Yeah, but for me, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, man, that's that's got it all. It's even got a song. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only that, just from its title alone, it kind of sits it kind of sits in place and sets the template for a, a kind of film that would come along later on. Uh, the, the thing of, well, they, of course, Universal would do it uh, even more with the two house films where you're combining two types of monsters or three types of monsters or however many monsters you can slam into one, you know, 75-minute long story. Right, and then Abbott and Costello, too. Of course. So, so that, that kind of cranked everything open in a way that, I, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm sure it would have eventually happened somewhere down the road, but it is that flashpoint of Frankenstein meets the Wolfman that is responsible for a lot of the flavor of creativity that has been present in monster movies throughout the decades since. Right, right. And it's, in, in some ways, it's, it's surprised me that there wasn't more of it at the time. And there really wasn't a lot more of it until Paul Nashi, Jacinto Molina, started making the kind of films he wanted to see when he was a kid. Yeah. And, you know, you, you started with Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, which is not what it was really called. But no, Mar- Mark of the Wolf Man is what I try to call it, yeah. There you go. But uh, in the U.S., it was supposedly a Frankenstein film because <laughs> contractual reasons and need for a Frankenstein film. But... Uh, whatever title you go by, it's it's pretty cool, and what I always forget that it's it's a monster mash movie as well. It has yes. more than one monster, and we haven't mentioned this now, but recently I decided that I was going to watch all of the Nashi Werewolf films, starting with the first one, mm-hmm. and then watching them in chronological order, skipping the one that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of hard to see that one, and if you do manage to see it, I need you to get me a copy. So. We we all want to know about that, and I'm sure that Jacinto <laughs> <laughs> Molina's family, yes. Sergio yes, and company, indeed. would like to see that too. Yes, they would. Yeah, you get into the into Nashi's work, and suddenly there are werewolves, there are vampires, there are all Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. There are all sorts of things yep. going on, and it's it's a wonderful revelation. At the same time. They're not U.S. films. They're European films. So they have a slightly different sensibility. Yes. And they're not the kind of big-budget, well-thought-out, slickly-produced films that you get out of Hollywood. So Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, in some sense, it's a B-picture. It's more of a budget picture than, say, Frankenstein or the Wolfman were. But it still benefits from a Hollywood system of movie production, which is ongoing like a factory. So if you get the idea in here, 
at the end you're going to get something that has a very coherent plot it's very slickly edited sound effects the whole thing the whole package by the time it gets to the end of the line is a beautiful well-produced thing even if it started off kind of dodgy european films are much more kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants films, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there are some that are very slick, but a lot of them are, hey, let's hey, let's make a movie kind of thing. It's like, I have this great idea, let's make a movie, we're going to gather just enough stuff to get it done, and then we're going to make it as quickly and as, as cheaply as we can, given that we don't have a lot of time and we don't have a lot of money. So, as an author, a lot of times the story elements of European films... European horror films, specifically, don't quite hang together yeah. as well as a standard Universal or Hammer film. And part of the joy of them, for me, is that weird take on things. The feeling that there's a well, there's two two elements. The the kind of kitchen sink aspect of them to a degree, where it's almost as if, look, we're just going to throw here are all the elements that we can get. We're going to throw them all in this film and try to make them work. Right, and then another part of it is that some er- some areas of the story, some parts of the movie, are are smoother and and click easier into place than others, and the the skill with which they get past the rough plot spots and get to the pieces that really work effectively, so that you kind of forget about the clunky clunky bits. Those, right. you know, the, the the films that do that as well as they can, those are the best of the lot, in my opinion. Right, no, and I I agree, and it's it's, but it's kind of an acquired charm or an acquired taste. Oh yeah, yeah. To be able to get over the fact that these are not going to be slickly produced nineteen forties Universal or nineteen fifties sixties Hammer, that there's gonna be there's gonna almost always be something in it that makes you go, huh? Why why do they keep that? Why did they do that? Why did that not get rewritten in the edits so that it worked that so that the connecting pieces are usually what suffer so that the connecting pieces were better and that's and where you come into that's where you that, that's where i think that it's it's really interesting to take note of the fact that there are many junctures at which these particular films these spanish produced horror films that or mo- spanish produced monster films when you're talking primarily about paul nashi there are several junctures at which the film can get really weird and one of them is of course if you're de- depending on which dub you're dealing with often the english dub of these movies can add or detract from them in a way that the people actually making the film at the time could not have foreseen. Right. Because what you end up with is one version of the film that is probably pretty close to what was intended, but because the translators are having to do the best that they can and get the voices in there and the try to get as, as much of the story and character across as they can in really you know sometimes rough circumstances when they're having to match things to characters it becomes right. it it becomes a, another point at which the film can become either better or worse sometimes right. it works for these movies because they're often going for some kind of otherworldly or uh d- distinct vibe that feels different from normal everyday living it becomes a it becomes a, a part of that. It becomes something right. that adds to that atmosphere in a way. Right, and that was one of my epiphanies with European films is the point at which I realized that they were more 
often about mood and setting and a specific idea than they were about story. So, for instance, Suspiria is beautiful and it's got terrific music and it's got good production values. And it's exciting. Yeah, and you never know what's going to happen, but in, in a story sense... It doesn't make the most sense. <laughs> you know, it's not Robert Wise, it's The Haunting. No. Okay? I mean, and, and that's what one of the things that makes Suspiria, that's one of the reasons Suspiria is such an astonishing film, is that it is possible to read into it different stories, different ideas about what's happening on screen, and the, and the details are there to feed those different ideas. Right, but they're not laying out the story for you in really explicit terms. No, they're letting you get caught up in in an American film. Right, they're letting you get caught up in the mood, atmosphere, and just the sheer beauty of what you're seeing. And the same is true of a lot of of what Nashi does, which is he's trying really hard. He's got a story. He's got the template. And for the werewolf films, they're almost always a variation on the same theme. So what he's trying to do is use the details that he's hanging on that same basic story. There are there are there are differences as he goes along, right? In different in, in the different movies, but what he's really aiming for is to tell a variation on the idea of the cursed individual trying desperately to control this horrible thing that's happened to him and to stop himself, the worst part of himself, from harming others. Which is the basic story of the Cheney Wolfman series, too, right. and why so many of us love that character above pretty much all the other Universal monsters is because that's a character, when he's human, we really identify with him. And when he's the monster, there's part of us that identifies with that, too. It's kind of a, a Jekyll and Hyde thing where we all know that in, inside us there is at least some small portion of Mr. Hyde, some small portion of the werewolf. And Nashi really got that. That was his kind of central idea. And it's a really good werewolf central idea. It's, it's one that makes you like the character, even if maybe sometimes he does stuff that you're like, wow, he just crushed that guy's spine. <laughs> when he, to, yeah, And yes, the guy was trying to to kill the girl and that kind of stuff, but that's not the werewolf there. That's that's actually Nashi crushing that guy's spine, and oh, he just smashed that guy's head with a rock. Okay, <laughs> we're going to go with this. We're going to just assume that that's that's okay in this scenario. But you, you have to realize that they're trying for mood, they're trying for feeling, they're trying for certain set pieces and ideas more than they're trying for story. And if you can do that, then the Nashi films, especially become kind of a real joy to watch most of the time because you're always it's always he's always going into these things at least as far as i know with not enough time and not enough money and often not enough help because something you've talked about and you know maybe people are hearing this and as an anniversary show for the first time that you know this was nashi wrote directed and acted in a lot of these films and a lot of time he was writing and acting at least in the films so a lot of it was falling on his shoulders and it was always he wanted to make films enough that he took on that burden but then he was always kind of digging himself out of the hole that he'd gotten himself into so there's kind of a fly by the seat of the pants wonderfulness 
about a lot of this stuff. And as you've said, and as, as I've read other places, he wrote this stuff very quickly because he had to. I yeah. mean, that's the way the film industry in Spain, which was still a fascist country at the time, he was under the dictatorship when he started. That was the only way you could get it done. You had to kind of, it was always a fly by night, fly by the seat of the pants kind of operation. So, unfortunately, without a big film industry to support him, sometimes the plot gets a little muddy. The, you know, the transitions aren't as good as they could be. And you have to, you have to be willing to forgive that and, and not dock the film however many stars you give. I usually rate on a five star rating. But within that five star rating, you know, the, the five-star Nashi film is not going to be the same as the five-star Kurosawa film. <laughs> it's just not. <laughs> well, I asked you to take a look at a specific movie for us to talk a little bit about today, just as a good example of one to discuss. And it's one that I hadn't returned to in a number of years, and I was I was happy to sit down and re-watch it, which is uh, here in the States it was released as Curse of the Devil. Uh, its original title was uh, El, Re- El Retorno de Walpurgis, The Return of Walpurgis. And uh, although it, uh, you know, you would think with the, a title with the word return in it, uh, it you'd think it was a sequel. But of course, none of these are sequels. They're all reboots. Each new Daninsky story starts from the beginning and tells it all over again and doesn't adhere to any of the facts from previous movies. All plots previous to this are forgotten because, damn it, we've got a whole new story to tell. And so, right. Although, there's a lot of overlap, actually. I've been surprised watching them in order. How much... They, they're not, strictly speaking, sequels. Right. But they share a lot of elements. They share, obviously, the character named Baltimore Donitsky. They're, they share a lot of concepts in terms of, you know, you can't just shoot the werewolf with a silver bullet or stab him with a silver knife. You actually have to love him in order to kill him. Otherwise, it's always going to come back. There are pieces like that that you can almost make a continuity out of them. And I, I still remain convinced, and I, I know you're skeptical of this, that with a little tweaking of time and place and that kind of stuff, and maybe rearranging the order that you watch them in, I almost think you can make a, a continuity out of it. Now, we're not talking the Marvel Universe here, but you have to remember this was, you know, started in the 1960s, so it's long before the idea of an overarching universe story for monster movies aside from universal uh probably more than hammer i mean hammer has some too especially the dracula series but there wasn't really that idea that we're going to make one that follows right along the other it wasn't the way it is today where people expect that where you know in the 1960s every television show was a street episode unto itself if whether it was invaders or voyage to the bottom of the sea or star trek or whatever they didn't follow on each other. They were all had to be unique because you never knew who was going to tune in, who was going to tune out, whether they were going to just come in. And I, this is Curse of the Devil is, I think, the sixth Nashi Werewolf film, right? The net, yeah. sixth in the Dan Ninsky series. And you couldn't count on anyone having seen any of the other ones. Exactly. And that's one of the joys of them is that you don't have to, if you're coming to them fresh, you don't have to assemble them all and watch them in, in, in the order in which they were made because they weren't made to be seen in that way necessarily because the people making them knew damn good and well that you probably weren't going to be able to do that. This is long before the days, 
here, here we're stretching back people pointing out how, how we, we were part of this time as well. So we're old folk. Uh, you didn't, you didn't necessarily know as a distributor, or as a filmmaker, whether or not anybody was ever going to be familiar with any of the characters in this movie. So restarting from the beginning or just ignoring the fact that you'd made a previous film with this same character, that was the smart move. That's what you did because that's how the audience was probably nine times out of 10 going to come to what you were showing them. Right. And that's why you don't call this one, the return of the Walpurgis or the return of the Wolfman or something like that, because then people are saying, Oh, I missed the first one. I'm not going to go see it. So instead, right. you slap the the curse of the devil, which is kind of appropriate for the film. And, and I I do think, despite the fact that there is no grand arc continuity, having gotten up to this film, I mean, ironically or, or fittingly, in my rewatch, I literally just got to this film again, and. Having done them in chronological order, I do think brings a different depth and appreciation of what was going on and what was happening. And this one, the Curse of the Devil, is it's a clear kind of break in some ways. Yeah. From the earlier films. If people talk about him redoing the origin of the Daninsky character, and in some sense that's true, but in another sense the earlier films were all pretty much set in modern day, uh, as I remember. And this one is not. This one is set in 1900. So suddenly we're actually in the yeah. past. And not only do we start in the past, but we actually start with a a past flashback or a scene from medieval. It's kind of a pre-credit sequence, yeah. Right, yeah. Although, ironically, the credits actually run over the battle sequence, which seemed silly to me in the, in the U.S. It's a little, it, yeah, it's a little disconcerting. I wish, I wish that they had not quite done it that way, yeah. Right, yeah. It would have been much better to run that sequence and then run a credit sequence. And then, but anyway, you get the credit sequence. And then you get a, what turns out to be a framing sequence. And I watched this movie just before I started my watch them in order thing, because you and I had been talking about doing this. And when I watched it that time, the post-medieval sequence before the meat of the movie, I did not realize was a framing story. Right. Because it's very short. One of the things that we've talked about that's a problem for this film is the, the transition sequences. And, are and sometimes I, yeah, and I definitely want to talk about that. Yeah, they're, 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 the problem I have, and it is really only in the first half of the movie, and this is the problem that most people have with Curse of the Devil, which is that for the first half of the film, the transitions from different scenes are clunky as hell. There are points they're, they're at which... Kind of you know, this not technically this i don't think but they're basically smash cuts yeah they are where they are suddenly you know you're in one scene and suddenly smash you're in the middle of another scene with no context with no establishing shots with none of the stuff that you know you would, would have expect. smoothed the way things that would have made it right would have made it more obvious that oh okay okay so a few weeks have passed or oh okay we've moved from the the events of that to this new situation yeah right or oh we're we're no longer in this location. We're now in this location. Right. You don't always get that. Or, you know, it's like, okay, which characters am I following now? And what are they doing? And, and how do they relate to the other characters? And, and this is not helped by the dubbing, I think. 
because agreed, agreed. It this, the... I have not seen the Spanish version of this, and I, I hope at some point, uh, the version I have is a very good version. It's a the print is really good, and and you know it's straightforward in the dubbing and stuff. But I wonder if maybe in the Spanish version there's a little more context for the transition from the medieval to the framing story to then the flashback uh, with him hunting in the hills. It's like you're giving, of- you're giving voice to exactly something that I was thinking the other night when I was rewatching this, which is. I need to find the Spanish version of this with subtitles to see if it's smoother in the first half. Because the second right. half, the second half of the movie doesn't feel that way. The second half of the movie feels like it was almost edited by a different group of people somehow. <laughs> right, or directed by a different group of people. Even though you know, as far as I know, no, 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 it was just it was just directed by Carlos Allred, but uh, the whole film was. But it, it right. feels as if a different editing team took over because of the editing. And the kind of smash, the jump cuts and this kind of stuff, it doesn't feel to me like it's, like you said, it's by the same people. And whether, you know, since we know it's our Carlos Arred, we know it wasn't a different director, but could it have been a different set of assembly people, a different set of editors? It could have been. I have no way of knowing, but it, it feels... It feels almost as if a different hand was on, you know, had was on the scissors essentially, right, or on the steering wheel, depending upon how far back you want to take it. So yeah, yeah, and it's, and that's one of the things that's disconcerting about about this film, but about some of the Nashi films in general is that there's the transitions, man. It's just we don't need different scenes; we just need better transition between yeah. scene of woman, scene of the. Uh, the medieval witches being hanged, scene of the woman at the graveyard, and then seeing flashback of Nashi hunting wolves in the in the Carpathian Mountains or wherever he is. I may have said this even back as far as when Troy and I first covered this movie, particularly on the podcast, but I am I am convinced that if there had been just some stock shots of sunsets or the sky or of panning across the uh, the landscape or the area or just exterior shots of various places that were inserted in various places in the first half of this movie, it would have smoothed things out to the point where it didn't feel like you were being jerked back and forth for the first 40 minutes or so. Right. Right. You know, if we'd had an establishing shot of the exterior of where the witches are hanging out, and then an exterior shot of the castle as we go back to Daninsky, and then an exterior shot if we'd had the inn, if we, you know, if we just had a brief establishing shot, it would help. And there's also scenes that, um, where it's like there's a shock factor where something gory will be on screen. And a lot of times, Whatever it is isn't on screen long enough for you to really make sense out of it. For instance, there's the the point at which the the witch woman who's cursed Nashi is suddenly attacked by the axe murderer who's been yeah. mentioned in a previous scene, but then it's like, okay, here he is, here he is, and suddenly he's out of the woods, he's attacking her, and she's dead. You know, not to give too much away because it's very early in the film still. <laughs> Lo- but, lots of char- lots of characters get killed. It's a werewolf right. movie. But then she kind of appears as a ghost in another scene, and it's just like if you had a little more information in a lot of these scenes. There's even a scene later on where the werewolf jumps off of a balcony and mauls someone, but you don't actually see him maul that person. You see the kind of, I'm 
on top of the person, and then yeah, but it's it's a it's a little old lady who's blind. Do you really want to see that? Right, I mean, but but if that moment were just a bit longer, if we had a reaction shot from his point of view looking at her for her looking at him then we'd have a little more time to digest that before we move on to the next scene well i have a question for you i have several questions for you first of all what did you think of the method for creating the werewolf curse the whole thing with the wolf skull i thought that was really cool (laughs) it's such an inventive thing and it's it's so bizarre it is it's very bizarre and i on the second wa- recent watching I had on this last night, I really like the fact that, okay, so he's he's killed the werewolf, who he thinks he's just killed a normal person, right? He doesn't understand that there was a werewolf there and he killed it with a silver bullet because the guy that was helping him put loaded silver bullets in the gun. He's killed the gypsy kid, right? Yeah. Who may or may not be related to the ancient witch that cursed cursed him because that part of the dubbing is very unclear as to how this curse is supposed to work so he's killed that kid and then we're with the gypsies who are the band that that guy was with and they decided to get back at Nashi that they're going to make a pact with the devil the curse of the devil and they summon the devil and let them have his pick of the women that are with them the devil has sex with these women and then they send one of them with the wolf skull to seduce and curse Nashi. And, of course, they they pick the most attractive one, which is the smart thing to do. Right. I mean, what's the devil going to do? <laughs> <laughs> also, let's just, uh, as an aside, the sequence where the devil is, uh, shall we say, having his way with all the various possible women to send after Doninsky. Wow, what, what a sequence, because that's a transgressive idea to put on screen in a movie of this type. It is. It is, and I love the fact that the the devil is a shadow being. That he is yes, he is entirely he's black. He's a guy in a basically a full suit body stocking, and uh, it looks like it's, it almost looks like black velvet because it just blends perfectly with shadows. It's right, incredible. It's, a, it's like a living shadow, and if. Nowadays, you'd CGI a couple of places where you could see the seams, right? <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, but but the the fact that they were but, uh, they were audacious enough to try something like this is just incredible. Just the idea of it is is so cool. What I love is that it's a scene that if you're telling this story, you don't necessarily need. But the fact that they had the audacity to film this and to shoot this and have this be the process by which the woman is chosen, it's 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 it, it speaks to everything I love about these kinds of movies. First of all, lots of lots well, of lots of everything. nudity, lots of sex. <laughs> so you've got that end of things covered. Then it's and it's it speaks this, to what I love about Nashi's films in particular. This is so typical in some ways of a Paul Nashi. I've got this cool idea that I don't think anyone else has done. And it's kind of, it's especially transgressive given that I'm working in, have been working in censorship late in Spain at a time when the film industry is really just kind of starting there in terms of horror movies, right? It's Nashi kind of breaking all the rules to produce a really cool sequence. It's, it's amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I love that. And I love the fact how that carries through. But as I was watching it last night, I was really glad that this was the second time I'd seen this film in a relatively short span of time. Because suddenly it was like, oh, I see what they're doing. Because the dubbing and the smash cuts <laughs> don't always support the through line of the story. Which is why you and I were saying it'd be nice to see 
a really good Spanish language print of this original language. Well, print this is it. true. Well, my my next question for for you is, what do you think of? And I know you've seen several of them recently, but for this right. one specific, I've seen every one up to this one recently. Well, what do you think of the? Seen, what do you think of the werewolf makeup? I actually really like the werewolf makeup in this one. In a lot of the scenes, some of the scenes it looks kind of weird and clunky. But in some of the scenes, the best werewolf scenes, it looks a lot like the beast from Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, uh-huh. which, by weird coincidence, was on TCM yesterday afternoon, just before I watched this. And I was, like, flipping channels, and suddenly there's La Beta from the Beauty and the Beta. And I thought, that is such a werewolfy-looking beast. It's not nearly as threatening as the Nashi version. But this one... It's like the vicious version of, of Cocteau's Beast. And I really think that works. There's something charming and almost fuzzy about it. But then, because it's Nashy and because he brings this physicality to the werewolf, the way he plays it is very, very threatening. Except there are a couple of sequences where you can see it's like, oh, the girl is there. I really should go down there and kill everyone but oh it's it's the woman i love yeah he seems reluctant <laughs> there's that there's that uh, that pausing and crouching where he doesn't he, he doesn't seem to want to advance because yeah it, it's it's pretty interesting look, stuff like his head will tilt back and he'll turn away a little bit yeah. but i think the makeup in this is really good and that's one of the things in the the Nancy werewolf films is the naked makeup is it comes and goes. <laughs> sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it looks like a very heavily bearded guy <laughs> with fake teeth. Um, but this one, it's got a, a lot of shots that really are really nice. I'm not convinced it's the best of the werewolf makeups. Uh, and I know that the ones that are just on the other side of this, the werewolf and the Yeti and the return of uh, the return of the werewolf, uh, which is called night of the werewolf, yeah. right? Those two are, what I consider some of the best of Nashi's werewolf films. And I know they're right on the other side and I haven't seen them as recently enough to compare with this one in terms of the, the werewolf design. But the, this one, I think it's, it's really generally, it's pretty good, but it's, it's a still unequal. There's like one scene where they show his feet shuffling across the, uh, I think it's a, a barn or a, a hut that he's killed the people inside. And it looks like he's wearing fuzzy slippers. And then there's another one where it looks more like the Lon Chaney werewolf feet from, from the Wolfman or, or any of the Wolfman films yeah. where it's like real wolf feet. And I'm like, okay, Clearly, I don't know if they picked up that insert shot later or if they did it earlier or how that worked, but uneven production values. <laughs> well, so for this what do one... You think, what do you think of the makeup on this oh, Well, I think the makeup in this one is solid. It's not the best that he ever had as the character, but it's it's very solid. It's very clear that uh, the uh, the team that was doing this had some time to spend to get, especially to get the uh, the stuff around the uh, the eyes and mouth to look really good, because it right. responds beautifully to his facial movements. Uh, you right. really get a sense, and this was usually true, but in this one, it's really it's, it really stands out because you can see every movement of his eyes and just the and the skin around his eyes. The makeup is is enhancing that and moving with it, which is which is fantastic. Plus, 
I really kind of enjoy the uh, the way in which they they do the transformation. I, I like the the old style version of of having to do lap dissolves or just you know move from you know from like uh, move from one scene to you know one shot to another, and in between the shots is when more of the transformation takes place. I like that kind of stuff because that's just old school Hollywood trickery right. of uh, trick photography. I like that because that that to yeah, me. me too. That sells this stuff more more than uh, you know some rather ropey and and overly fluid CGI will do for me sometimes. Right. Yeah. No. I, I totally agree with that. I, I much prefer a good good set of lap dissolves because you see the the craftsmanship is far more evident. Than yes. That, than, agree. You know, and, it, and even as someone that works with CGI as and part of my artist life, uh, you know, working with three D models is wonderful, but. Looking at a film where you can see there's a guy or a woman or a team there that is applying yak hair to his face, and darkening his skin so that it's going to look like wolf skin, and then it's going to do this whole thing and watching that happen in a time lapse or a lap dissolve or however they want to do it. Yeah, there's something handmade about that and wonderful, and that's one of the reasons. I, you know, honestly, for all the the great twisto changeo effects that Rick Baker and others pioneered. Those are really cool, and I like them. But in some sense, I almost prefer just put on the yak hair a couple strands at a time, you know, dab the makeup on, put the fake teeth in, and do a, doing a, a dissolve against the background for that. And, you know, Universal got really good at that. And yeah. this film has, you know, a shot where we're looking straight at his face and he turns into the werewolf through that, and it works. It's cool. <laughs> it's so cool. I mean, you know, maybe modern viewers, you know, can't enjoy it as much as you know we do, who grew up with that being the way these things happened on screen. But God, it's just it's just such a joy for me. Right. You know, in the in the age of CGI, where anything can happen, things become less special in some sense. Yeah. When I was yeah. watching. When my kids were little, and we saw the first Star Wars movies, the first in the continuity Star Wars movies, one, two, and three, it was like anything could go. They they enjoyed them and whatever. When I showed my son, who's now works in the film industry, Star Wars the original one, which they now call four, A New Hope, I showed him the original one without any CGI ads, and I said to him, "Remember, this is before there were computers." to do any of this stuff before there was any CGI. And he watched that, and I think it was maybe the, the point at which the speeder is, land speeder is traveling across the, the desert of Tatooine, and it's kind of a medium-long shot, and it zooms from one side to the other, and it's floating on air. And my kid turned to me and was like, how did they do that? exactly (laughs) how did they do that and that's part of what drew you to those movies is they were fooling your eyes and it's not like it is nowadays you know how they do it it's just they they just cgi out the background or cgi whatever's holding the the object up they just cgi that out of the background and you don't see it right now we know it's like now we know and that's and that's the easy fix and it's like so yeah we know how they did that they cgi'd it but in the old days, it was like, how did they make King Kong move in 1933? How did that work? How did they make King Kong move with Fay Ray in the scene down there? And she's clearly a real person. He's clearly not. There's a magic to this handmade stuff that. And that is part it, of the joy of these werewolf yeah. films, because we know these guys were working on low budgets. We know these guys had more passion than cash. 
And right. damn it, that passion is what gets these movies across. It's what makes them so joyful. And it comes through, even in the clunkier moments, it comes through and it becomes one of the reasons you return to these things because the people making them were working their ass off out of passion, out of joy, out of the desire right. to make these things as good as they could with the, the the means that they had at hand, which was just not much. Right. And that... That handmade aspect, that the love put into this and the energy is what makes all the flaws forgivable. I, because you're yeah. you're seeing it's almost like these ideas came right out of Nashi's brain onto the film as fast and as cheaply as they possibly could. But it's it's almost like they sprang right out of his head because they didn't have the money, they didn't have the resources, they didn't have the time. But damn it, they were going to get this. We're going to make a monster movie. We're going right. to do this. We're making a werewolf movie, period. Right. Well, out of just about Curse of the Devil, um, so far you've seen a number of them. So uh, where do you feel, do, where would you rate this one? Do you think this one, is this mid-range? Is it better, worse? Which So far you haven't gotten to, to a couple of them. But in the Valdemar Daninsky series, where would you place this one? I would. Just, uh, I would place it mid-range, but mostly because of the the problems with the transitions. I okay. think the, in terms of the story and the the ambition of it, I think it's it's pretty ambitious. But I don't think it's as well directed or comes off as well as Doctor Jekyll uh, and the Werewolf, which is the one that I saw immediately preceding it. So it's a kind of not a bad starting point. But it's not, you know, it's not that higher level that, that uh, Jekyll was or the uh, Werewolf versus the Vampire Women, uh, which is Werewolf Shadow, which yeah. were the two right before it. It's kind of a step down from those. By the same token, it has more ambition than his earlier films. And the fact that he's kind of changing up the formula here, I think, really helps it as well. I rate on a five-scale scare, uh, a five-star system. And... Uh, three Star is a, a good film that I like enough that I'll watch it again yeah. and again. It's like a solid film. This is a, a good three-star film. It's If I gave half stars, which I don't, <laughs> it would probably be three and a half, but I'm a purist. So it's either three or it's four. And Dr. Jekyll versus the Werewolf or the Vampire Woman would be a four-star four Nashi film. This is a three-star Nashi film. So I think it's solid. I don't think it's brilliant. I think it's... Like I said, it's a lot of that is in relationship to the transitions between between the scenes. It's that I don't really feel they work well, which is again why I'd like to see it, the full version of it uh, with the nudity, if that's possible, in Spanish. Oh wait, you're oh in Spanish? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think that may be possible. I think I need to do a little research. I think that there is a, a, a version of the film that someone has probably laid the Spanish dub over the you know the version with nudity. Right. And so it's best to get it, it's possible to get uh, the, those two different worlds kind of colliding in a single print. I'll check into that. Right. Yeah, and that that would be nice. I, I would like to see the Spanish version just to see how the whether the continuity plays a little better in the Spanish version and whether maybe this is in Spanish, it could be a four star picture. It could be still a three star picture for me. And again, three stars, people are like, Oh, that's right in the middle. That's mediocre. Like, no, 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 that's no. not mediocre. That's good. That, yeah. That's good. <laughs> Two stars is if you like this kind of thing, maybe you'll dig this, but three stars is 
pretty much anyone who has any affinity for it should be able to go in and enjoy it and say, yeah, this is, this is a pretty good film. This has got, you know, it's got some interesting characters. It's got pretty good makeup. The werewolf scenes are interesting. It's certainly got uh, its share of beautiful naked women. Uh, beautiful <laughs> Beautiful women were always in the Nashi films, but this is the point in his career, this and, and uh, Jekyll just before this, where suddenly it's like, suddenly he's discovered he can sell this better if they have, if some of these scenes are reshot in the nude for the yep. European, for the European market, which was more sophisticated <laughs> than the Spanish market at the time, or read more sophisticated is less censored. Exactly. So, you know, so as, as Nashi went on, there was more nudity in his films, which is not a terrible thing. It's you know you can't have to remember this is the seventies. People were really comfortable being nude in the seventies, so it's like, okay, there we go, we're off we go. So uh, yeah, but it's like I, for just the ideas alone, I'd give this four stars. But the execution kind of brings it down a little, and the transitions are the the real problem. But we've got the again things he never did before like the medieval sequence and like the not really well done in terms of transitioning the framing sequence that then comes back at the end of the film where we get the quote unquote shock little shock ending which is kind of a nice thing too it reminds me of night gallery and of you know a little bit of rod serling a little bit of uh you know some of the the better uh, ghost stories or monster stories where there's a little twist right at the end to just carry you forward and think you know nowadays we think oh there's a sequel there <laughs> well i think you're going to be uh i think you're going to be pleasantly surprised as you move to the uh the 80s when you get to night of the werewolf and uh, beast of the magic sword i think you're going to be surprised to see just how many elements from the 70s films get repurposed and reused and kind of uh conjure up whole different concepts he'll 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 reuse some of the ideas you'll see in this and uh, werewolf shadow and Mark of the Wolfman, he'll reuse them and kind of uh, put them through a different filter for those films later on when he's got a bit more of a budget and a bit more time. I think you'll be fascinated by it. Right, it's- yeah. I've seen the Werewolf of the Idiot, and I've seen Werewolf Shadow. Uh, werewolf Shadow. I've seen the... Night uh, of the Werewolf? Night of the Werewolf. Yeah. I've seen both of those. I have both of those on Blu-ray. I think they probably both have commentary tracks by you and Troy, right? <laughs> um, uh, werewolf Shadow does not. Uh, Werewolf Shadow. Well, wait a minute. You said, "Oh, Werewolf of the Yeti." No, no, no. It doesn't. That one doesn't have a commentary track. There's a. Oh, there, it? Uh, no, no, no. Sadly, not. It was going to have a commentary track from us, but uh, we we <laughs> let's just. That's a story for another time. <laughs> but the Night of the Werewolf has your commentary. Or yes, it does. Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay. So I know those are coming up. I've seen them both. I like those, and I actually think those uh, Night of the Werewolf may be my favorite Nashi werewolf film. Oh, but, good choice. Yeah. Yeah, but I haven't seen Beast of the Magic Sword yet. Oh, I, I think you're going Le- to. I think you're going to be. Uh, I think you're going to be enthralled because it uh, it has enough enough uh, elements that you're going to recognize with enough new stuff that it's going to be really intriguing. Right, and I got my start writing novels, writing samurai fantasy novels. So clearly, <laughs> there's stuff for me there. But I'm waiting for the Blu-ray. I have a copy, but it's an off-the-net copy, and I'm waiting for the. I'll Blu-ray. wait for the Blu-ray. Yeah, it's, it's going to blow your mind. The, the, uh, the, print, the print they have is mind-bendingly good. And then we've got like Contropo, uh, which I haven't seen either, I don't think. And I, I don't expect as much from that. And then f- finishing with the Uncanny, I think, right? And I've seen that. And yeah, I like, yeah. I know. You mean, I know you you mean the Unliving? 
Uh, that's that's what I mean. The unliving. Yeah, or I've, yeah, yeah. Moon of the Wolf. Or I've yeah, seen Tomb of, yeah. of the Werewolf and Tomb I've of the seen Werewolf, the Unliving. Yeah. And that's I like, the same movie. Yeah. Right. I like the Unliving better. That's actually a better cut, I think. Though I haven't compared them side by side. Anyway, there's ones I know I like right in front of me, and it's going to be great to co- be able to compare those with the with this one. And the ones that came immediately before it, and see how they stack up next to it, and knowing that there's one I expect is going to be really good, the sword one coming after that, and then like Tropo, which I'm expecting is, I'm not really sure what to expect with that one. <laughs> Don't I, th- think I think there are, there there's enough in it in like Tropo for you to enjoy. But Steve, I wanted to I wanted to go ahead and thank you very much for uh, sitting down and doing this with me. Uh, this is uh, this is the kind of thing uh, we've not done this before, where we include a bunch of different people in an episode. And uh, I was so happy that you were willing to do this, and that it seemed to just flow naturally from something that you were already kind of doing, just in your uh, rewatching of the films in the first place. Right. Yeah. No, the timing was really perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, tell tell the good people where they can find your work, my friend. Uh, assuming that the website gets uh, back up and running fully, they can find my work. Easily at sdsullivan.com or stephendsullivan.com, but then you have to be able to spell the PH version of Stephen. Uh, those are good for me. Uh, you can also go to cushinghorrors.com. That'll take you to my Patreon, where you can throw a couple of bucks at me and uh, get what I'm working on now uh, in advance sent to you. And what I'm uh, serializing now, we finished up Dr. Cushing. I'm not sure I'll have out for Christmas or not, uh, but we're now doing the first of the Frost Harrow books, uh, which is uh, something that I've worked on for the last 20 years. So, <laughs> so well, if, finally, if, you, if you get finally, if you get hard finally. copies, as soon as you have hard copies of the Doctor Cushing story available, I'm going to be giving that as gifts to people. So, oh, cool. Uh, well, the, where I keep falling down is I've had. Would you wouldn't believe the trouble I've had with uh, trying to get cover artists for it. <laughs> Oh, my. Well, Steve, once again, thank you very much, my friend. Oh, you're very, very welcome. It was a great pleasure to be here. Nashi lives, man. (laughs) I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the Monster vs. Monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Hey, before, uh, before I comment directly on uh, you guys' discussion, I want to out myself as the idiot I am, and which everybody else knew already, uh, for the fact that uh, Steve um, Sullivan here I met uh, at G-Fest a couple of years ago. We all oh, yeah, hung, yeah, hung out yeah. with Steve at G-Fest. Talked to him the weekend, had a great time meeting him. Um, 
and totally didn't realize that he was the creator of one of my favorite role-playing games called Chill, oh, yeah. uh, which was a classic horror role-playing game. Uh, one of the few games that I actually, you know, ran as a uh, dungeon master, sir. You did? I, I did, uh, because it was a horror one. I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, I could take a stab at that. So the only two games I ever actually ran as the game master, whatever you want to call it, was that and Call of Cthulhu, because, again, those were horror-oriented, so I felt a little more comfortable with trying something like that. Yeah. But Chill was a great game, and... You know, and I I started looking at wanted to read Steve's writings. You know, after meeting him, and and then realized, oh my God, this is the guy created Chill. And I talked to him that whole weekend. I didn't even thank him for. <laughs> Since then, I have mentioned to him that if I ever I'm gonna have to dig up my uh, first edition uh, uh, box, you know, game box of that, and get him to sign it next time where our paths meet. Oh, you dad. still have it? I, oh yes, I do. Uh, cool. So uh, so next time our paths may meet, I'm gonna try and get him to sign that one for me. But uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed that discussion, guys. It was very much so. I, I like that Steve uh, pointed out, you know, the the thing about realizing European cinema, you know, was kind of based more on atmospherics and visuals than storytelling cohesion. And I think for me, my first discovery of that probably would have been the Fulci films, you know, when I saw things like... Fulci and Argento. Yeah, yeah those were the two names that kind of yeah. most... Their films were the kind of the, the early exposure to European horror that made me kind of realize that, about, especially with... Uh, Something like, um, you know, obviously the Beyond from Fulci is is that sort of that the whole plot of that, if you can call it that. I mean, it is just sort of one big nightmare, and so he can it sort of fits more with what he's trying to do there. But then when you see Gates of Hell, or also called speaking of generic titles, uh, its other title, City of the City of the Living Dead, Living Dead, or whatever, um, that's one where you know the zombies that are taking over the town just sort of act differently from scene to scene depending on what looked cool. You know, one thing that kills them in one scene won't kill them in the other. You know, yep. they do exhibit powers in one scene. They don't in the other. Gotta, it's totally just winging it as you go. You got go. a yeah. rain of maggots in one yeah, exactly. scene. Yeah, no exactly. So, God, yeah. No, no damn reason mm-hmm. at all. Those are the films that just teach you early on to just roll with it, you know. And, and, yep. and Argento's wonderful, celebrated, justifiably celebrated set pieces, murder set pieces that totally fall apart if you apply any, any, <laughs> any kind of logic to it. Oh, but you don't do that. You just, you know, roll with it and go. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, um, you know, so I think that he was kind of, you know, you, you guys tie and curse the devil in with some of those things too. You know, it's it's uh, it's some of that. You know, the plot is obviously more coherent than oh, than yeah. those other films there, but, uh, the, but yeah, the things don't things don't fly completely out of control. There's there's mm-hmm. a narrative to follow, mm-hmm. whether or not mm-hmm. you feel that there are chunks of it that yeah. are missing that you wish were there. Well, I think y'all realize too that, and with Nashi, Nashi didn't do himself. In those respects, a lot of favors because of how many ingredients he wanted to throw into his stories. And we love those things, but he certainly could probably, you know, muddied his own, you know, waters a bit sometimes (laughs) with with how much he wanted to incorporate into stories. And so then you suddenly reach the end of your 90 minute running time and you, you know, you got to sort of race to the finish line there. So also, I think that one of the reasons that uh, this film in particular, Curse of the Devil, does does uh, get a bit of a bad rap that it Mm. deserves is that um, there is a, a, an inability to communicate effectively the passage of time, mm-hmm. which is something that the movie desperately needs. It needs the mm-hmm. occasional intertitle telling us yeah. that a few weeks or a couple of months or whatever length of time has passed, because just going from one scene to the next, you have to surmi- surmise this mm-hmm. passage of time yeah. because yeah. of just 
little details here and there. Mm. And it's a bit distracting because it immediately pulls you out of the movie to go, well, wait a minute, why are they talking this way now? Why do they seem so familiar with each other? Mm-hmm. They just met yesterday. And mm-hmm. the, because the film isn't effectively communicating the passage of time, mm-hmm. the dialogue just yeah. barely hints at. Yeah, and you're right about the weird editing at times, the smash cuts and things are, you know, are a bit, are a bit uh, distracting. But, uh, but yeah, but I do really enjoy this film a lot. I mean, Curse of Devil is one that, that I always have really liked a lot. And, and uh, you guys are right about the, would you talk about the makeup scenes, the classic way of showing makeup transformations? Oh, yeah, yeah the lot dissolves, yeah. It made me think of something I was watching. Uh, I, I, I like this anecdote from, uh, you know, Steve Johnson, you know, the, the, the special, special effects. Special effects man, yeah. uh, There's a documentary on Ray Harryhausen that I was watching not too long ago. And, and hearing you guys' discussion made me think that, this of this anecdote, which I really appreciated from Steve Johnson. I've not really heard someone describe it this way, but he was talking about the difference between practical effects, you know, hands-on craftsmanship and CGI. Yeah. And one thing he talked about was the way that the hands-on effects, like whether it's monster makeup or, or the Toho films or, or uh, Ray Harryhausen and stuff, that you were involved as a viewer in a way, like you're a participant in it because, first of all, you know you're being fooled and, you know, you're trying to figure out how you're being fooled. You know, you also are aware of a person's craftsmanship, you know, the what the skill yes, and the yes. time that's going into that as you're watching it. And you also have to contribute your kind of extra from your own mind to make it to, well, to kind that, of complete that process. The willing suspension of disbelief, yes, the desire yeah. to be yeah. fooled and mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. be in, to enjoy the story enough mm-hmm. to not care that. Yeah. You're yeah. all, you also have those other ideas yeah. going on while you're watching right. it. Yeah. Whereas with CGI, you know, and no matter what wonders it can show us, and it can. And CGI has been, you know, I appreciate what it can do. I mean, it's, it's basically sure. the whole reason these Marvel films that we enjoy so much, these Marvel Universe films, so much of what makes them able to tell comic book stories now on a comic book level and be able to do even the new Godzilla films, be able to show the monsters doing things that they really could have never pulled off with men in costumes and with creating right. that, you know. But if you're going to picture, ultimately at the heart of it all, if you're going to picture somebody, an artist behind this, and they are artists, but you're going to picture somebody at a computer, you know, and it's just not quite it's not the same. The same, even though they are they are artists with skills, it's just it doesn't require you to be as much of a participant in the process. Which well, I thought let's, was let's, let's, let's put it this so, way: yeah. this is a way I think mm-hmm. that it's it's good to think of mm-hmm. the the disconnect mm-hmm. between how we admire mm-hmm. really well done. CGI versus really well done practical effects. Mm-hmm. I would l- I love seeing the details of how practical effects are done. Yes, I have no desire to yeah. watch someone at a keyboard constructing yes. a special. Uh, there effect you go. On a that's screen. that's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a yeah. That's a good way. It, to put it, it. doesn't like, engage yeah. me, and I don't yeah. think it would engage many people beyond yeah. people who are aware mm-hmm. of the talent necessary mm-hmm. to effectively code. The imagery mm-hmm. in whatever process that it takes to make it appear on screen. Yeah, it's just not the kind of thing that engages. Mm-hmm. Right. I, it didn't engage me. I don't know how many people it does engage. I'm sure there are people, but it's a vanishingly small bit of the yeah. American public or the world public, really, mm-hmm. compared to the people who would really be fascinated to see someone crafting, say, were- werewolf makeup mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. someone's face. Yeah. Then yeah. you can get into the te- the detail while this person explains and shows mm. and and demonstrates mm. the exact technique necessary to make this thing look good mm-hmm. and to function with a with a person's face so that different mm-hmm. you know di- you, you see what you're talking about where you, where you get di- you know different twitches of the face cause different things to happen because of how you lay the pieces on a person's face mm-hmm. knowing where the muscles are knowing mm-hmm. how this person's 
smile does what mm-hmm. to their cheekbones. And it, it, it's mm-hmm. that kind of thing which you can get just in theory, as I am right now, mm-hmm. interested in. Yeah. Whereas I don't, I don't yeah. want to watch. It's yeah. like I don't want to yeah. watch somebody else play a video game. I don't want to watch somebody yeah. else code CGI yeah. imagery. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. That's right. Good point. So I like also uh, I, he brought up as I have before, uh, the feeling of uh, the influence of Beauty and the Beast on the look of yes. Daninsky. And I never really thought of it as much in Curse of the Devil. I think I mentioned it more with the later films, uh, Night of the Werewolf and also uh, Beast and the Magic Sword because of the the kind of shirts, the uh, costumes that he had Daninsky right. wear in those films were much, much closer to uh, the uh, costumes from Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. True. So it really set off that type of makeup even more. Uh, but yeah, but I always thought that that was a big influence on, on Nash's. That, so I always saw his werewolf as kind of a combination of Oliver Reed from Curse of the Werewolf and then from Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast, the beast from that. Similar similar look, especially mm-hmm. in the costuming for yeah. those two characters yeah. as well. The so, kind of yeah, the older, yeah. the kind of uh, billowy shirts and, you know, and that kind of more older shirt. style. The poofy shirts, you know. <laughs> As opposed to the leisure suits, you know, the, the leisure suits. Yes. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, 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 the 70s contemporary yeah. versus the, the classic. The Madrid, the Madrid pimp suit. Uh, yes. Madrid pimp. Yeah. Has Nash himself. Has Nash himself. Precisely. Yeah, but I did enjoy y'all's discussion. Very well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, well, I think for our fourth and final guest on this the 10th anniversary show of the Nashi cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's time to venture, uh, well, uh, well outside the box. This is someone that I had not podcasted with before at all. Mm-hmm. He's a longtime fan of the show, both podcasts, actually, and someone that I've gotten to know uh, the past few years at Monster Bash. Uh, he and I share a very large affection for uh, beer. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're always uh, we're both beer hunters, and uh, we have a tendency to try uh, different types of beers. And mm-hmm. so at Monster Bash, we've kind of started this thing where we both bring things that we want the other to try. And he's written into the podcast on several occasions. We've read out his uh, emails on a ser- on several episodes mm-hmm. of the past few years. It's a uh, Matthew uh, Matthew Kowalski. And like I said, never never uh, sat down and podcasted with him before. And uh, when I threw this idea at him, he was very enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. And so I, at the beginning of this piece, I have him introduce himself uh, because uh, this this is someone who really hasn't been in mm-hmm. front of a podcast audience before. And I thought mm-hmm. it would be a good idea to let people get a, a glimpse into who he was. And then uh, I took the opportunity to try to uh, to, to discuss with him some of my favorite aspects of not just the particular film which we discussed, which is another discussion of Werewolf versus the Vampire Women, which is his favorite Donetsky film, but also to kind of talk a little bit about the the joys of what the werewolf as a monster represents within the human psyche and why mm. it is uh, one of those eternal creatures, not just a shapeshifter, but mm. something very primal about the, the human way of dealing with the, the, the split, that natural split within the human mind between, uh, you know, emotion and reason. And so uh, here's Matthew Kowalski and I talking a bit about uh, the Mordenitsky werewolf movie and getting probably a little too heady at times. Joining me now, another first-time visitor to the Nashi cast, 
a man that I first got to know online when he uh, became, or at least uh, acknowledge, and to the larger world that he was a fan of the Nashy Cast. Something that you know most people hide in shame, and yet he paraded it around in public. <laughs> I'd like to introduce to you someone who has written into the podcast on several occasions, a man who I'm tempted now to just call the professor, but uh, I will allow him I will allow him to introduce himself so that I don't possibly further embarrass him. Sir, what do you want the people to call you out in the great, wide, wonderful world? I am, well, first of all, just calling me the professor. It sounds like that uh, character from the, Cor- no, not Corbucci Western, uh, Vengeance. That you- oh, yeah, the Antonio Margheriti yeah. film. It's uh, G. Marie Volante's brother, right? Well, that, you know, honestly, that's a better reference than, uh, you're right, but that's a better reference than Gilligan's Island, which is all that, all that came up in my head immediately. Uh, well, anyway, I'm uh, Matthew Kowalski. I'm a professor of history at both Temple University and Delaware County Community College. And uh, my area of speciality is 20th century, mostly Eastern and Central European, but more broadly just European cultural history. And as the 20th century is the century of, well, mass death, uh and having grown up sort of a monster kid, you know, horror films sort of loom large in my universe, right? I mean, we create monsters to explain the real horror, the the real monsters, which are human beings. Agreed. They always are and uh, always have been, which is, of course, why I think it's good to, to occasionally focus in on uh, one of the monsters, one of the classic monsters, I should say, that most closely resembles, even on the surface, uh, an examination of the human psyche, which is, of course, the Wolfman. Yes. When you look at a Wolfman, you are seeing, portrayed in hirsute fashion, a, a man battling his own inner demons made manifest. This is what the Wolfman has always been, that that lurking demon within ourselves that has a has a bad tendency to break loose and ravage the countryside and or the people that is that are nearest him or who care most about him to the detriment of that man once the demon is put back in his box i don't know if you uh I, a lot of youngsters get fascinated by the wolfman because of probably just the physical presentation, the same reason that kids get fascinated by dinosaurs. Were you fascinated, or at least uh, did the Wolfman appear uh, very appealing to you when you were younger, or is it something that came to you as you grew older? Uh, well, I, I would say probably yes. Uh, the Paul Nashy films and the character of Valdemar Dodinsky in particular, I found fascinating because I'm, I'm sure we're going to get We'll talk a little bit more about this as we talk about the film itself. But, you know, this notion of a werewolf figure from a, you know, country or different culture, uh, not the United States, not the Lon Chaney films, uh, not, you know, Hammer's One Stab at the Wolfman, was somewhat appealing and hard to find. I mean, you know, growing up uh, in the 80s and the 90s, you know, these were not readily available films. And then added on to that, and I should probably just say this right now, I am Polish-American. So once I got some information that, well, wait a minute, there's a there's a monster, and he's Polish. Well, shit, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I, I was fascinated by all the classic horror stuff at a relatively young age. I think partially because of, you know, my interests beyond that, but also to growing up in the 80s and the 90s, if you had a half-decent cable package, you got a pretty good education in classic horror, almost by default. I think you're probably right in some regard, but I think you would have to have uh, the predilection, the, the desire to actually like dive into those films, especially um, when you start talking about the classic monsters. You described yourself as a monster kid, and of course that means you, like myself, would be a, a different generation of monster kid. We're not, you know, we're not the original crew that uh, grew up in the the 50s and 60s seeing these things in uh, reruns on television. As, as part of a standard, I think to a large degree, I first saw most of these movies, especially the classic, you know, Universal and even Hammer stuff. I didn't see them until uh, really the, the days of the VHS tape were around. So did you actively seek this stuff out or was as it, it seems like you're just implying there, it just, it's, it's just kind of in what you're soaking in. And so it becomes something that you see and then realize that you're being drawn to it. Or was it something you were drawn to and sought out? Before, uh, before it kind of was in front of you without you really realizing what was going on. A little bit of both, I think, because my father certainly grew up in the generation, the, the first Monster Kid generation. Yeah. So when these films were on television, it was like, oh, boy, come here, you know, the House of Wax, uh, you know, or the original King Kong or something like that. And then, you know, being a fairly smart, you know, pugnacious little kid, you start going to the public library and digesting all the sort of literature available on the topic. And, you know, once VHSs became affordable, because I'm I'm of an age where, you know, early on they weren't, but then they all of a sudden were. Uh, yeah, you start, you know, seeking this kind of stuff out. Yeah, that was a, when, when VHS became affordable, when home video collections became something that were actually possible, um, that, that's something that became, um, evident when you entered people's homes. I think, uh, that's, that's something that I always found amusing is that, you could not only like look at the bookshelves to see what interested these people, but you could also look at the videotape shelf Absolutely. and get an idea of what they thought enough of to want to be able to rewatch at a moment's notice. Absolutely. And that, I mean, that pretty much bookshelves and old VHS is what was my college dorm room. <laughs> so, I mean, very bare bones, you know, uh, the books, and a bunch of very strange VHSs, some of which, because I guess at least with Euro horror, that was the least accessible at the time. Yeah. But by the yeah. time I was like in high school and, you know, in college, I was like actively seeking out these things on, well, let's say the gray market. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, mail order catalogs. uh it's good to, you know, have a mentor uh, and a dear friend, still is, who's into the same weird shit that you are. So we used to, mm -hmm. like, tape exchanges. Well, just out of curiosity, um, for, for instance, you, you wanted to talk about Werewolf Shadow yes. today. And that's, a, of course, you know, a seminal film. It's one that it's kind of a flashpoint for Spanish horror and definitely uh, jump-started and invigorated the career of Paul Nashi. But when did you first see it? That's a really good question. I definitely saw it under the American 
title of Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman, and I have to say it was sometime during my college years. On television or, or tape? No, it was a, it was a tape, and I, I remember hmm. the print was not great, to say the least. I had I was aware of Paul Nashy by, you know, reading stuff, and actually I think my first you know, image or glimpse of the Donensky character was actually, do you recall, I think Ted Newsom was responsible for them. Uh, three, three collections of just trailers. Uh, one for all the Dragon, oh, films, yeah. one for all the Frankenstein films and one for werewolf films. And I saw this trailer for a film t- entitled Frankenstein's bloody terror. Right. I couldn't figure out, where the hell was the Frankenstein monster was? I remember this, you know, image of this, you know, werewolf, which was clearly different from anything I'd ever seen. And then later, you know, reading stuff, I started putting things together, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, that's it's the first Paul Nashy werewolf film. I started getting into Nashy stuff during my college years, and I'm not certain this might be. This certainly was the first Donansky film I saw. It might have actually been the first Nashy film. Ooh, okay. Well, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, the you know, d- different entry points. That's the, that's one of the beautiful things about the Valdemar Daninsky films is that any film can be your entry point because none of them rely upon the others to support the narrative. Everything can be an entry point. There's no there's no barrier there's no barrier to entry as long as as long as you can watch the thing you can understand what the hell is going on essentially. Continuity is not necessarily the series' strong points. There are certain tropes that appear in almost all of them, but. Yeah, I mean, you can literally step into any. Fi- well, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack a little bit on that. Fury of the Wolfman is insane. Uh, it's a mess, yeah. but it's something which you know it not 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 for continuity issues. It's just bizarre. But yeah, you can jump into the series at any given point. Well, if if you're saying Werewolf Shadow was possibly your first Nashi film, it, it was. It had to either be this or Horror Rises from the Tomb. Okay. Well, if, if so, uh, do you remember uh, what your initial reaction to the film was, and what what it uh, you know did it appeal to you? Was it just something weird? Was it something? I guess what I'm saying is, did you like it immediately, or it's or is it something that snuck up on you? It it, it probably more or less snuck up on me because. And the re- one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this one, there's so many very inter and a lot of the credit here goes to Leon Klamovsky, the director. There's a lot of really interesting touches in this film yeah. Uh, yeah, that yeah. makes it a little bit different. And it's strange because I recently rewatched the essentially the remake of this film, Return of the Wolfman or Night of the Wolfman, and I struggled because. On the one hand, you could argue that that is the better film. In some ways. In some ways. Yet, there are certain elements, particularly the sort of trippy, dreamlike aspects of Werewolf Shadow, which I just find really interesting. You know, different. Well, when you compare and contrast the two versions of that story, it depends on, I hate to say it, it depends on the almost the day of the week which one I prefer to the other. Because each one has a lot of good points that outweigh the, the weaker elements, and it just kind of depends on your taste and how you're feeling day to day. That is true. That is true. Uh, the I would argue Return of the Wolfman's a, a bit more dark, a bit more straight. 
But again, there's some of these non-sequitur elements in Werewolf Shadow, including the soundtrack, I actually really quite like. Really? So some of the weirder uh, musical moments appeal to you in a way? Yeah, I mean, I, I recently rewatched this uh, with a buddy who is a degenerate Jesus Franco fan. <laughs> there was nothing about Nashi's work, and I'm like, okay, we got to we have to sit down. I was debating which film to show him, and I was like, well, the Werewolf Shadow's pretty safe, and I'm like, well, if he's a Franco fan, then some of the weirder elements of the film might actually appeal to him. And when those opening credits roll after you know the you know kill blood boob shot yeah he just looked at me with this big goofy smile on his face and he's like this is good <laughs> this is good and it's like yeah it's you know you you get that scene and then you get this weird like psychedelic euro uh lounge song uh which is weird because the soundtrack is at times very traditional and very effective yeah but then it's just like this weird, jarring, let us remind you, you're in Europe in the early 70s. <laughs> yes. Let us never let us never allow you to forget that. Yeah, we should remind people this movie, uh, depending on where you were, either came out in uh, 71 or 72. It was uh, shot, I think, in uh, late 70s. So if you're looking for that uh, 60s hangover visual style, this movie's got it in spades. Check out, check out, my God, check out the fashion and uh you will see that uh, what you're looking at here is uh whatever the europeans thought at the time was both hip cool and for the now generation <laughs> and so there are choices made on the soundtrack as well i think i may have cra- i think i may have cracked up matthew uh, I, <laughs> uh there there are choices made on the soundtrack that that kind of mirror that attitude because that's you know once again it's that that feeling of you don't know what you're in the middle of you're just reacting to the way things are at the time and that that rubs off on these movies and i think sometimes in a lot of wonderful ways that no one could have foreseen at the time no and it's funny because it came up in conversation after we watched the film i wonder how much of that because i like how you said sort of 60s hangover is actually a byproduct of this being shot and made in Franco, Spain, which had up until the mid-60s kind of been sort of a closed society. Yeah. And yeah. So they're getting stuff from, you know, the United States and Britain. It's, it's, you know, being a historian of the Soviet Union, but also a closed society, that you see a sort of similar dynamic where, like, they're getting this stuff just a little bit later and just a little bit off. Yes, yes. I'm reminded, as you bring it up, I'm reminded of the, the Soviet fascination with uh, American-made blue jeans and clothes like that yeah. in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's something that I think in some way that we can't really, we can't really uh, comprehend because we you know, are not Europeans of the 70s, that if we were, we would know, oh, yeah, yeah, this became like a big thing because it showed up in this movie or some celebrity was wearing it or something like that. Mm-hmm. So... This werewolf movie has the distinction of, much like his first werewolf movie, uh, Mark of the Wolfman, or Frankenstein's Bloody Terror, whatever title you want to use, uh, of, ha- of, of having not just a werewolf, but of course it being a, a battle between werewolves and vampires. Uh, it seems that almost from the get-go, although this was the uh, fourth 
Valdemar Daninsky film that actually uh, got predicted, or the, was it, no, 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 uh, yeah, the fourth that got shot. Depending on where you are, they got released in odd order. So you have Mark of the Wolfman, and then the uh, then you have, you know, Assignment Terror and Fury of the Wolfman. And this is the movie, this is the movie here with Klamowski behind the camera where things got back on track after yeah. the bizarreness that is Fury of the Wolfman and the everything but the kitchen sink style of Assignment Terror, which which has so little Valdemar Daninsky in it, you wonder why it's a Valdemar Daninsky film. So what you have here is a movie that starts off almost as if we're going to just ignore those those previous two movies. This is this is the the real follow up to Mark of the Wolfman, and so this is kind of in some ways taking the idea within that, which is okay, uh, cursed werewolf and a couple of vampires, just taking those elements and constructing a different story completely around the idea and really cementing what would be, going forward, the focus of the Daninsky films, which is the the cursed lycanthropy, the, the cursed man, I should say, cursed with lycanthropy, who, uh, in the in the course of attempting to alleviate his, his hideous situation, uh, ends up having to deal with all these other supernatural bastards, and it not going well. And so what you have is um, monster mashups. What you have is, although the titles don't always give you this information. What you have are that flashpoint film from Nash's youth, Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. I was just going to go there. Yeah. Yeah. What you have is him doing monster mashups that are his own monster mashups where you get to the point where even a couple of films later when he does Dr. Jekyll meets the Wolfman where you're like, yeah, yeah. Why did no one ever do that before? Yeah. And there's something Maybe one of the reasons I like this film so much is because it's it, it's that moment when you know harking back to his youth and his love for Frank Sun meets the Wolfman that you know the formula for these you know monster mashups monster rallies this is where they they, they really get it. it it all comes together it crystallizes yeah. yeah it's also the first film where he deals with a character which he constantly goes back to. Uh, the name is obviously changed, but, uh, you know, Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah. Uh, he was a, a voracious reader of history and was fascinated by this stuff. And when fascinated, he would dig deeper and deeper into it. And of course, part of that was because he wanted to use it for his own stories. And of course, that's very clear here in a way that probably would not have been clear from the first three Valdemar Daninsky movies. Yes. So the literary reference within this, well, there are literary references throughout uh, a lot of his work, but the historical reference specifically to this real character is, is kind of fascinating. And, and as a, as an, as an historian, I wondered, you know, do, do you take issue with his portrayal here, or do you find this just to be a, a fun fictionalization of it, or do you, do you stand indifferent and just are happy that it's fun narrative? I don't know. It uh, more the latter. Uh, what long ago I stopped getting my feathers, you know, ruffled when you know, particularly genre films took license with historical characters. Like for years, I. As much as I love Christopher Lee's performance in it, I would like cringe at Hammer's Rasputin film because yeah, yeah. My, this is nonsense. But having rewatched that not too long ago, I'm like, okay, this is just not Rasputin. 
This is just, you know, the filmmakers having their go at the character. And, you know, if you think about if you step backwards just enough, it's you can still enjoy it. I remember the first time I saw this, I the one thing that confused the hell out of me was, you know, here you have a well, actually, it, it'd be technically Slovakia now, but a Hungarian countess being portrayed in what clearly isn't northern France, but has to be northern France, yeah. made by a bunch of Spaniards. And I couldn't make head nor tails of that. Uh, <laughs> only later is actually, you know, reading some of the literature and, you know, listening to you guys that, you know, I came to understand that, look, I mean by the early late 60s early 70s you could start making these kinds of films in franco spain but you can never set them in spain yep yep nothing bad happens in spain nothing bad happens in spain you can you can have undead knights templars in portugal you know you crap on the salazar dictatorship just remember you know nothing bad happens in spain uh no i mean that character in particular is ripe for you know exploitation sort of cinema and whether you get the historical facts right or you know you embellish certain elements uh, that's not really a big deal well plus i mean now she's making monster movies here exactly and in a way if you you know going back to the very beginning of this conversation you know that's an example of an historical very real monster so in a way you know cinema is again taking what the re- the real horror and transforming it into you know sort of a this dark sort of fairy tale and dark fairy tale is another wonderful way of looking at these things i was always fascinated to learn years ago how terence fisher the great director of so many fantastic horror films for hammer uh, how he viewed the horror movies that he made was as dark fairy tales for adults. And once you know that that was his approach and that's the way he looked at these things, uh, not that you didn't already love the films or you wouldn't have been trying to figure out what Terrence Fisher thought about what he made. But as soon as you hear that, it's a realization that makes a lot of other things click into place. And actually that statement fits so many other types of monster movies. Yes. The, the, the filmmakers almost invariably take that tack. That is their viewpoint. And having that as a, as a point of view points very clearly to one of the reasons why Paul Nash's werewolf movies have so many layers to them and why they're so, so much fun to revisit at different points in time as you get different perspectives perspectives on them simply because much like no one you know no man enters a river twice because he has changed and the river has changed these films are that way as well and it's something that i think as you get older and rewatch these things occurs to you is that there are so many ideas buried in these movies uh and sometimes not so buried where he's examining himself, he's examining, um, strangely enough, the human condition, because what else are these types of fairy tales for other than examining the way humans interact with each other and the way we talk and do things? It's It's a beautiful thing to realize that as these movies age, and you do as well, they have other facets that can be seen within them that aren't always apparent on first blush or when you're 25 yeah. there are things within them and i i i'm all i'm always fascinated by what can be seen in these movies there's always every time i rewatch one of these things there's always at least one or two little elements which pop out 
to you, which you never saw before, never thought about. I mean, even just going back to the sort of soundtrack and the weird 60s styles that are just a little bit dated. You know, I never thought about that until, you know, after I'd rewatched the film and I was like, well, wait a minute, maybe maybe the fact that this is being made in a closed society might have something to do with that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the, and the perspective of, of when you when you learn about the situation under which these types of films were being made in Spain at the time, that adds to, uh, it, I'll just say it adds a level of realization to uh, the acute end viewer about what you're watching and why what you're watching might be about more than just, you know, a werewolf fighting a vampire woman. Yes. And I, it's, well, actually, I shouldn't say this because Nashi then later did, even though he did not consider himself political, more political films. But there's one thing that sort of runs throughout a lot of his work, and it's this sort of critique, almost disdain for aristocratic or semi-aristocratic characters and like, you know, again, reading the situation, you can't but help to think, is he, you know, commenting on the society he lives in? Oh, I think that a lot of times he was commenting on the society he lives in. He and other Spanish filmmakers who worked within uh, genre cinema, I mean, you know, those that, you know, survived past the Franco years would later on say, well, yeah, of course, you know, this is how we hid how we were commenting about that. I mean, it's very, it's very easy to see that, that one of the themes, and of course my, my cohort, Troy Gwen, uh, my, my cohort on this podcast was one of the, he wanted to bring that up immediately. The first few episodes where we, we were talking about these movies initially, the first year we were doing the podcast, he was, he's, he was saying, you know, one of the themes of the Paul Nashie films, uh, regardless of whether the werewolf movies or not, is this, Pull, push and pull between the old world and the new world. Yes, and uh, how Nashi clearly was a, a a product of the old world, but as an artist, he felt this push and this desire to be a part of the new world, and so that push and pull was within himself, and it's something that came out sometimes unconsciously and sometimes very consciously in the stories that he created. Well, and also too uh, because. By the mid-60s, Spain has opened up quite a bit, mainly due to tourism. You know, usually when I teach the Spanish Civil War, the aftermath, it's like bad guys win, and then for like 25 years, nothing happens in Spain, literally. Uh, there's also this weird tension between the not just the modern and the old, but also the rural and the urban. That I think is a reflection, too, of this society – you know, in the Spanish society, which is undergoing serious transition, and that these contradictions between the old and the new, the rural and the urban, are really, you know, for the first time, pretty much since the Civil War, being brought open and being, you know, laid to bear. Mo- I, I'm a big fan of Leon Klamovsky's just style. Uh, there's something about his work and you know it's the themes that he constantly goes back to and not even just the stuff he did with Paul Nashi uh there's sort of a coherency there a familiarity that I like yeah this is just about I mean well again Fury the Wolfman is extremely but uh this is again where the the certain tropes 
of the Donansky films all sort of come together. I mean, the first film, Mark the Wolfman, is very good, but it's clear that they're still trying to work through what you know this character is, uh, what these films are going to look like. I think it's really here where the the series comes together, and you know you see these sorts of things in almost all of the other. Again, each film is very different. But yet there are certain recognizable tropes, be it the themes of, you know, the beast within, uh, this old versus new, the character's tendency to kill vagrants. Uh, I, I just rewatched a whole bunch of them in a row, and I was like, I think I actually contacted you, and I was like, yo, does the Donetsky character have a problem with homeless people? Because he kills a lot of them. <laughs> But it is something that certainly sticks out. Yeah, and again, one of the things that always draws me back to this one is the way that Klamovsky handles all of the vampire stuff. It is, it's borderline surreal. And I, it, it works so well. And that's an instance, too, where as goofy as the soundtrack can be at times... It works brilliantly in terms of, you know, meshing with what you're seeing on screen. And look, Yulia Sally's great in Return of the Wolfman, but Patty Shepard, I for someone who barely says anything, just her presence in the film, uh, she's great. I don't know. I mean, again, maybe the it, it doesn't look like northern. Having been to northern France, this is not northern France, but you know the exterior uh, shooting, uh, the location shooting, I should say. Yeah, there's a lot of things that that come together here, and I, going back to what you sort of said too, this is. I, I think this is the point in the series where Paul Nashie's personal stamp really comes out. It starts to come out and emerge. But yeah, what this movie did was, as you said before, bring kind of everything together in a way that allowed, it kind of put fuel in the in the rocket ship and allowed a, a feverish amount of creativity over the next few years. And so he was, you know, producing a, a ridiculous number of movies per year, but it also set the template beautifully for what he was going to do going forward. One of the best things about the Daninsky werewolf films is the sheer creativity that he allowed himself to kind of include anything and everything, having started out with, okay, in the first movie, it's a werewolf versus vampires. In the second movie, uh, which is kind of weird, you, you've got, you know, aliens and a Frankenstein monster and a mummy and uh, a kind of fake Dracula. You've got kind of a little bit of everything. And in Fury of the Wolfman, you have, you know, like a werewolf versus sanity and, and cohesive narrative. So it's just, it, does, yeah. it doesn't really... It, wolf versus drunk director. Yes, wolf versus drunk director. Very well put. Uh, but with this one, he brings it all back in, and it kind of does set up an odd uh, template that he doesn't always adhere to, but that you can kind of see the broad outlines of moving forward. Because what you have is... Dr. Jekyll being put into a story, a Yeti being pulled into a story. You know, you have these various, uh, although they aren't really always acknowledged as uh, mashups, like the title of this one, Werewolf Shadow, although the American title certainly points it out pretty heavily. There are more than one monster within the storyline. And 
correct me if I'm wrong, this film and the first Blonde Dead film came out the same year. Uh, very close to each other, yes. And I, I think between the two of them really set off the Spanish horror boom and its international appeal. Uh, because there were, you know, films, Spanish horror films done before, but I don't think I, I don't think uh, other than this film and the Blondette film, they had such a big international box office impact. Yes, pretty much. I mean, uh, you had a a true classic that did do quite well, but wasn't the flashpoint of this, which is the uh, the house that screamed, which oh, lot of Valencia. Yeah, yeah, which is a fantastic film, but it was uh, what, what you know Spain became known for producing were the monster movies uh and of course the house that screamed is a lot of things but it don't it don't got a universal monster running around in it no and actually weirdly enough i defend that movie vigorous oh it's there's i there's nothing to defend i think it's brilliant from top to bottom i it's probably in some ways the more the most openly critical or self-critical of spanish society agreed but yeah, I mean, I that was a film I really had to go and dig out because it seems that Polish werewolves and blind undead Templar knights just did better in terms of box office. Well, you know, monsters translate to other cultures much more easily than societal critiques. That is true. Well, Matthew, uh, I, th- I want to thank you once again for actually putting your voice on the podcast. We've had your uh, your emails on the podcast numerous occasions. Well, thank you very much, and uh, it, it, thank you for having me on, and it's a pleasure doing this. Oh, great. Ben, this is great. I'd love to have you on again when uh, both you and I and Troy, uh, where Troy can join us, and it can be a, a three-way conversation, and uh, that sounded wrong, so I will, I will skip right over that. <laughs> we'll see uh, my my vision going forward for the for the 2020 Nashi cast is to get more and more voices on the show and to bring people who want to back because uh, the more voices the better and uh, the Nashi fan base does nothing but continue to grow. Well, thank you. Uh, as I said, thank you again. Happy 10th anniversary. And this you know doesn't just apply to you, but Troy as well. You know, thank legitimately thank you guys for doing what you're doing. Speaking as a fan of these films who, again, got into them, you know, you know, a particular time and place, you guys opened up an entirely new world in that regard. I mean, I, I, I knew the Donansky films, I knew some of Paul Nash's genre stuff, but, I mean, stuff like The, Evil Incar- uh, the Devil Incarnate, I would, I'd be totally unaware of them if it wasn't for you guys. Well, I'm... I, I blush to hear such things, and uh, you are more than welcome, and we just hope that we can continue to do such things. Uh, just keep on doing what you're doing, man, uh, and uh, thank you for having me on. All right, Matthew. Thank you for – oh, sh- I'm sorry. Thank you, Professor. Ah, spasibo. <laughs> See you later. Take care. So if uh, you and I are the skipper and Gilligan, Matthew's going to be our professor going forward. Then. So uh, uh, I can't get away. I like call, I like the I like having someone I can call. Professor. professor, I know. Now we just got to get our Ginger and Marianne, and we'll be we'll be set. No, so, uh, <laughs> maybe we should stop right there. Maybe we should. Maybe I we think should. Gonna, that's going to get us in trouble. But uh, I I love uh, Matthew bringing his 
perspective in there as, as, a, as a professor and what he said about the European cultural history. I never thought, I never really considered how the mass de- mass deaths of the, the wars, you know, just how much destruction and death, you know, it affected the whole world, but boy, yeah. being right there on the in the heart of, you know, in Europe itself, I mean, I'm, you know, just uh, how natural a breeding ground that was for horror cinema and the particular types that came out of there, Yeah, you know. And well, I we we've always considered how far-reaching the uh, the effects of the Spanish Civil War mm-hmm. were on the Golden Age of Spanish <clears throat> horror because right. it was that fascist dictatorship that lasted for so many decades that kind of informed both the form and the content mm-hmm. of a lot of the Spanish horror films that mm-hmm. we love so much from that mm-hmm. period. But yeah, I never really thought that much about how the mass death, especially mm-hmm. in World War II really kind of carried forward and did more. I mean, we've examined Spain pretty pretty thoroully. Yeah. yeah. And Spain was very much, you know, kind of separate from that <clears throat> whole endeavor uh, while still, as, as more as more history comes to, <clears throat> to light, uh, still actually kind of involved in a rather <clears throat> underhanded way. But the mindset that would have said, that, that obviously <clears throat> did become a part of the way that the European people looked on mass death mm-hmm. uh, violence mm-hmm. the the possibility of your government turning on you the possibility of another mm-hmm. government turning on you and having mm-hmm. to take up arms to protect your loved ones mm-hmm. it's not something that we here in the states really have ever had to worry very much about mm-hmm. there's not a lot of paranoia or at least right. not enough not a not a lot of uh, valid paranoia right there you that go. way yeah that really kind of enters the American mind mm-hmm. when you talk about invasion or mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, foreign governments mm-hmm. acting in a violent fashion on mm-hmm. us. I think that's why uh, it wasn't until the 21st century and the you know the the, the 9/11 attack that mm-hmm. first brought home the concept of that mm-hmm. kind of attack on American soil. Mm-hmm. Really, the first time ever, yeah. where something that large that large scale had ever happened to us. But for the Europeans. Mm-hmm. Two world wars within a few decades of each other, mm-hmm. and then the smaller insurrections, the smaller little wars, the smaller little things within, mm-hmm. like a, like the the extreme violence in the seventies in Italy, yeah. and how that how that fed <clears throat> into the the crime and police films that were made mm-hmm. in that decade in right. that country. These things affected, and it's just it's something that it, you have to really kind of want to back yourself off and kind of get a fifty foot view of this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is things like that where I love talking to people like Matthew because. That perspective isn't something that I had mm-hmm. in my reign, in, in my viewfinder, in a way, mm-hmm. until talking to him kind of made me back up a little bit and think about it. So. And I like uh, to get perspectives from historians and, and teachers uh, who are also love film because they always, I know, have to bring a particular kind of compromise within themselves with what they know, their love of history and understanding what films are trying to do and storytelling are trying to do. And he yeah. mentions in your discussion that, uh, you know, he used to cringe at Rasputin, you know, and now he's come to, come to like appreciate more. Yeah. And um, I think that it made me think of a book that I'd like to recommend to Matthew if he's not read it, his book from the mid-90s that I always really enjoyed. It's called Past Imperfect. Um, the, the full title is Past Imperfect History According to the Movies. And it's yeah. neat because yeah. it's articles, it's a series, of, it's all articles written by historians who are also film fans, you know, and, 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 and rather than having the knee-jerk reaction to historical films, you know, understanding what dramatic license is and, and coming in and, and in the book, they tell you the real stories, you know, but then also, or, you know, behind the films, but then also have an understanding for why films do what they do. And of course, there are those instances where sometimes the truth would have made a better 
movie than what yeah. they ended up. We've seen those instances too. You this know, this is very true. That you, you get that a lot. Of, you get a lot of weird things like that when you start talking about biopics, where mm-hmm. yeah. you know, there's this desire in Hollywood to crunch uh, an mm-hmm. individual's story down to mm-hmm. a specific kind of three act mm-hmm. storyline yeah. that's yeah. fit for mass consumption. Whereas if you really examined and told uh, a more detailed story that actually fit the the facts more. Incredibly, mm-hmm. it would have been a much more intriguing story, much more unique, and therefore mm-hmm. probably more affecting as well. But mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's not something that Hollywood's always going to trust, right? So. Some, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, and and also along those lines too, uh, with Matthew talking about his heritage being Polish, that's great too to have yeah. the perspective of how you would find the Donetsky character interesting because of his heritage too. I thought that was pretty cool. See, that that was that was something that I thought was fascinating. He and I talked mm-hmm. about that a little bit before. Mm-hmm. That being his doorway in, mm-hmm. of learning that, wait, there's a werewolf and he's a Polish nobleman? Yeah, yeah. That is a fascinating window into the mm-hmm. desire to see these movies that I'd, I'd, never, I'd never considered before because mm-hmm. to my way of thinking and to most people's way of thinking that I know of, your doorway into these movies is I like monster movies or I like horror movies. Yeah. Not yeah. wait, there's a werewolf that's Polish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and with yeah, an attachment cool. like that to yeah. your own heritage mm-hmm. that you're very aware of because of the family that you grew up in, that would be fascinating to me. That yeah. would be the kind of thing that it's, it's it almost as if, and I, I, I tried to, to, to picture in my mind if, if I stumble across in my teenage years, knowledge that there was, a Scottish werewolf, yeah, you right, know, yeah, or an sure. Irish werewolf. Mm-hmm. Be like, what, huh? What? Yeah. Where? Mm-hmm. How did this? You know, and there's a whole series of films about him. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, yeah. How do I see them? You know, right. So I, I, I think about that and how odd and interesting that would be to me as well. Mm-hmm. But hey, any doorway oh, <laughs> into yeah. loving Paul Nashy mm-hmm. films is a good doorway, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, speaking of doorways, that he used it as an introduction to a Franco fan, or for a Franco fan yes. to introduce a Franco fan his, to Nashy. The fact his, that he yeah. used that this particular film, I thought was interesting to choose that. Which is an, yeah, an interesting choice, and it, won, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mean, because really of, basically because of what Klamowski does with with some of the visuals, and, and it's the, that dream, yeah. it's that dreamy slow mo. Mm-hmm. That brings uh, that brings that that subtle and interesting atmosphere. Something that Adrian talked about when he and I talked about this movie, which is that it immediately yeah. evokes an otherness. Yeah, that really works effectively within how the story is being shot, and mm-hmm. it really does make you immediately mm-hmm. feel that way. So it's it's, it's really nice, and it's mm-hmm. and that I'd never thought about this being a movie that mm-hmm. that would allow you to kind of mm-hmm. bring someone who was already under the spell of the kind of language storytelling of a Jess Franco movie. It, 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 that that that's alien to me. I would never, yeah. I would never have made that trip around that mm-hmm. that yeah. table to come yeah. to that conclusion. But it's, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. It makes a hell of a lot of sense. And it would be, uh, it'd be cool to hear uh, Adrian and Matthew at some point to if they circle around to Night of the Werewolf to get their reactions. Yes. To those films to compare it to, you know, to that film to compare it to this one because uh, there's another difference in because of Nashi directing the later one. Nashi does not tried to duplicate what Klamowski did, but Nashi does bring his own interesting ideas to depicting the vampires, but they're a very different kind of thing right. from what Klamowski did. Well, you and I have talked about this at length, mm-hmm. and of course we even did a commentary track for Night of the Werewolf on right. the Blu-ray, yeah. it, it, that comparing and contrasting the differences between the way those two films mm-hmm. tackle the same story... Mm-hmm. It's it it depends on the day of the week. Which exactly. Like well, more. I think really, both of us always end up with just yeah. between the two of us is really just ranking those two. Not really. Yeah, you're right. It's just there's some things that work better in the first one and some things that work better in the latter one. You know, I mean, Nashi did in a way fix kind of fix 
some of the story issues from the first one and update them a little bit or change yeah. them a little bit to I think make them a little more interesting. But I, in some but but there's also cases where you know Werewolf Shadow visually tops still tops you know not the Werewolf. So yeah, I mean it's I'm in the same way. I always those two just always kind of rest right side by side with me. You know, I do love getting these different perspectives. Me too. Yeah, and the 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 fact that. So many different people can find so many different ways into these films and ways to enjoy them. Uh, with with Adrian taking a look at the at, at this very same film and enjoying it because he's 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 seeing the things to enjoy, but he's also kind of tickled by some of the some mm. of the older yeah. film techniques and yeah. some of the older mm. ways of approaching these kinds of stories. Mm. So he has that he has that academic's mind mm-hmm. uh, in a different way than Matthew does, but he has that academic's mind mm. who studies film and, and actually mm. has, you know, good Lord, has a master's degree in this stuff right. and therefore can enjoy it and really get into it, but at the same time have that that feeling of observing it from above and kind of being amused by the older techniques and the older story structures and the way in which these stories were told then versus now yeah. and 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 see, seeing the gaps within the narratives and seeing the problems within them mm. but still enjoying the whole but still feeling the need to point them out because that's the analytical side of himself mm. when he's when he's looking at film no matter mm. what it is yeah and then you get Derek who is a monster kid yeah right Derek yeah. is a monster kid absolutely does it have monsters? I'm there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's pretty much, to a large degree, in, mm. in, in my in my usual way of looking at these things, that's me too. Oh, sure, To yeah. a large yeah. degree. I think it's myself. As, as yeah. much as I love to read about these things and dig mm. into them and try to figure mm. out why certain things have, have weird mm. resonance or mm. why things work versus mm. why they don't, at the end of the day, has it got a monster? Yeah. Okay, hit, <laughs> hit play. I'm good. I'm ready, to, I'm ready for it. <laughs> Then you have Steve, who has that. He's just writer. a nut. Steve just a nut. Steve's a nut. <laughs> yeah, but Steve has that writer's mind. He's yeah, got that yeah. that person who's always worried mm. about the narrative and therefore mm. paying attention mm. to how other people are telling these kinds of story, yeah. stories because he tells these kinds of stories himself. This is what he does for a living. He tells these types of stories, whether it's the the Doctor yeah. Cushing stuff. Yeah, and that and that is a really fun series for yeah, people the, out there who haven't read uh, Steve's Doctor Cushing stories. Are really, really good. Now, most assuredly, whether it's that kind of thing or whether it's his fantasy stuff, mm-hmm. Tournament of Death, any mm-hmm. of those kinds of things, his first thought, whether he means it to be or not, is to examine how the narrative flows and how well each piece fits into the next, mm-hmm. and so. That is fascinating because yeah. that allows him because he is he's turned into such a Nashy fanatic that it's the power of his storytelling that's drawing him in. So it's something different from Derek. It's something different from Adrian, and it's yeah. also different from mm-hmm. Matthew, whose mm-hmm. whose way in was to hear that there's a Polish werewolf, and then to yeah. go, oh wow, these werewolf movies are pretty freaking cool. And in other mm-hmm. words, yeah. he's a monster kid as well. Yeah. But his doorway in wasn't I'm looking for monster movies. It's this werewolf is the same ethnicity or nationality of myself. I am very curious about this. The same way almost anybody would be yeah, steeped in a particular in, in a particular nationality. Mm-hmm. So we have four different views, and there's a part of me that almost wishes that I had had all four of them. Look at the same movie. Yeah, that would have been. Yeah, that would have been interesting. That it would have been, been kind of fascinating. <laughs> I thought about that after the fact. Uh-huh. But it's because my initial thought was, no, 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 let's talk about different mm-hmm. movies so that there's mm-hmm. there's a variety of things being discussed. Mm-hmm. But now the idea of getting four or five different people mm-hmm. to talk about the same single film 
not that any of us would ever be able to, to hold ourselves to discussions of just mm. one particular movie. <laughs> right. It would always side mm. road into mm. oblivion. God yeah. knows how long it would take. But this is uh, this is one of the things that somewhere along the line, maybe mm. as long ago as five years ago, I saw this as a possibility for what we could do in this show. Yeah, which is not just be a, a forum. For mm-hmm. you and I to talk about these movies, yeah. because by that time we've been doing it for half a, half a decade, mm-hmm. but to allow other people in as well, to allow other people, and at first I thought it would be voicemails mm-hmm. and it would be emails mm-hmm. that we would yeah. get from people. That would be how we would include other people's voices. But now, to hell with that, Skype, yeah. That, yeah. things like this. This allows yeah. us to sit down with these people and to have them bring their perspective to us and then allow us to bounce off them as well. So in a way, I want to kind of tell you that I really now wish that we'd found a way for all three in each of those recording sessions for you to be a part of them as well. So that there were three of us, mm-hmm. because as interesting it is as it was for me to have these discussions mm-hmm. with these four people, I know that adding you to the mix would have been a joy. And I, 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 I still like the idea of you mm-hmm. listening to them after the fact. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and, and plus then, it gives me a chance to make fun of them without them being able to, to, to make fun of me back. <laughs> so that's that, that's what I like about it. <laughs> oh, the, sh- the shield of distance and time, of course. How clever you are, Mr. Gwynn. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I know it's just with the sheer scheduling nightmare of, just, oh, you know, yeah, because yeah. with you being able to line up, you know, but that doesn't, you know, not to say that, that there won't be some times and maybe I can, you know, I we can do this. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah, to do that because I, I would love to, believe me, uh, if time and schedule permitted, I would love to have set in on all of these conversations because, you know, because, uh, you know, all these guys are great and all these people we get. So, uh, but looking forward to pulling in more people and, you yeah. know, and. And uh, and 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 getting this thing, can keep this thing going. These discussions going. I am and, and as far forward. as films that, I mean, I can think of so many films. I'd love to get four or five perspectives on and nasty films. You exactly. know, Horizon from the Tomb, or you know, How of the uh, Well, I think How the, the Devil. I think, or just, the, I mean, I think gotcha. the biggie now would be that now that people can actually see the Beast of the Magic Sword. I yeah, think yeah, would be sure. We can pick the stuff. Yeah, pick the stuff yeah. that people obviously. Yeah, people that, that it's easy to get their hands on and can well, see not, really not good that, versions but, of. But yeah, well, well, not just that. It's that there are a lot of people who've never been able to see oh, that God, particular man, Beast of the Magic. I know that's like huge, man. I think that's why it's selling so well is because yeah. this is one that people have you know They've never been, been able to for, see. Man. Yeah, man, absolutely. But anyway, I just want to take this opportunity now mm-hmm. to uh, to thank. All four people mm-hmm. who were able to join mm-hmm. us, Matthew, Adrian, Derek, Steve, thank you very much for being yep. a part of this show, for being a part of this 10th anniversary episode, because we want to include mm-hmm. other perspectives, and you guys, you've got a yeah. different perspective, yeah. and that's what we want. Whether we necessarily agree with yeah. whether or not Adamson film is worth a shit at all. <laughs> I agree. No. <laughs> <laughs> we still want to get your perspective. We want to see what you think about this stuff. Yeah. Because Troy yeah. and I know what we think about these movies. Mm-hmm. We've talked about them for a damn decade now. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we're ever going to get bored with talking about these things. Remember, mm-hmm. this podcast grew out of the nights that Troy and I would get together to watch Paul yeah, Nashie films. Sure. Yeah. And talk about them. Mm-hmm. This podcast came directly out of that and our wish for this kind of podcast to exist and our sadness that our Spanish legend Mm -hmm. was never going to be somebody that we got to shake the hand of. Yeah. We lost that opportunity. And this has been for a solid decade a way for us to keep that flame alive, to make sure that other people Mm -hmm. can hear a voice in the wilderness and realize that, oh, yeah, that weird ass werewolf film, somebody else out there likes it. Yeah. And we are those other people. And there are a lot more of them out there. Thank goodness for it. Agreed. Coming up this year, 
more episodes where we talk to other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, now that Troy has brought it up, I think that we're going to have to uh, cover this. This uh, maybe it's a spaghetti western. I guess it's. Uh, you know, spaghetti I don't western. know. It's like I said, all I had to say was Patty Shepard as a gunfighter, and I was pretty much hooked at that point. So sometime later this year, yeah, the man called noon. And uh, whoever and, thought that Richard Crenna <laughs> would show up on the Nashi cast? No, and uh, who, whoever thought William Shatner would show well, up? Well, that's true too. Yeah. But, uh, and Steve and I are going to pull you into that, uh, I mean, excuse me, Derek and I are going to pull you into that, uh, uh, uh Adam Al Adam, uh, the Dracula versus Frankenstein. Uh, you know, I'll tell you what, I'm more than willing to do it. Uh, <laughs> I'm willing to do it. It won't be on the Nash, you guess. It'd have to be a bloody pit. That's right. Hey, we'll do it. That, that sounds good. We'll do it. <laughs> Ooh, man. I am committing myself now. Derek, if you hear this before I talk to you about it, oh, I am so sorry. So sorry for all the things I'm going to say. <laughs> Well, hold on a minute, All folks. Right. We'll uh, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and uh, we'll have a couple of uh, emails to talk about. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, oh, necrophilia. Ah, oh, oh, oh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema Psyops is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in it. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of here. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this movie. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How be did a rough you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Okay, folks, thank you. Welcome back. We've got a couple of, uh, well, we got a few months of uh, backlogged emails here to the Nash yeah. Cast, for which I apologize. We're going to try to get through a couple of these, and uh, this show is already long enough, so we may save a couple for next time. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and do another uh, Nashy or Beyond Nashy within the next few months, so that we can get to these pretty quickly in case we don't get to cover them tonight. So we'll start with the oldest first. This is from uh, Michael. He says, uh, hey, Nashy Casters. I've been getting caught up on your podcast for, um, from the last few months. Some good stuff here, as well as awesome news about the new Nashi Blu-rays. I ordered The Mummy's Revenge and Assignment Terror from Ronin Flicks, and I have to give them an A-plus for great customer service. Cool. The product was shipped in a sturdy box with free first-class shipping. I shouldn't have waited so long, but they are still available as of November of 2019. When these are sold out, the secondary market prices will be painful, so now is the time to grab them. They're still there, yeah, so you can still grab there. them, thank goodness, as of right now. So, yeah. Very much looking forward to the Fury of the Wolfman uh, Blu-ray, aren't we all? Oh, man. I have a cult action DVD with the naughty bits included called The Wolfman Never Sleeps. Yeah, we're hoping this Blu-ray includes both versions. Yeah, right. I like that title, too. <laughs> he says, but it will be great to get the whole thing in correct aspect ratio HD with extras. I've always liked Assignment Terror, as problematic as that shoot was, and it has very much improved the Scorpion's deluxe treatment. 
Patty Shepard was very cute in her mm. way. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to start chuckling here. Uh, Patty Shepard was very cute in her white go-go boots and green mm. mod dress mm. with the holes at the sides. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But man, did Troy Howarth give Craig Hill's character a hard time or what? I thought Hill was very good as Inspector Toberman. I usually like Howarth's commentaries, but I disagree with his assessment of Craig Hill's character in that flick. Uh, Troy just might be a little cranky that day. Who knows? I mean, he's... I understand. Sometimes he just gets up on the wrong side of the bed. Hey, I understand what he says in the commentary about the character. And Mm -hmm. I understand that he, like I, probably felt that, well, the movie needed to focus away from that kind of ca- that character and what was going on there. But I don't think he's the sleaze Troy seems to think he was. <laughs> anyway, anyway, anyway. Back back to back to Michael's email. Thanks to you guys, I ordered the Blu-ray for the corruption of Chris Miller from Amazon. Haven't gotten it yet, but after your episode covering it, I know I'll dig it. Also ordered the blue for The Devil's Nightmare, which has always been a fave. Erica Blank at her hottest is reason enough to love that oh, film. Yeah. But it's actually really good in addition to featuring the comeliness of Miss Blank. Also grab the insanely must-have Blood on Satan's Claw Blu-ray. Yeah, I just picked that up myself. I hadn't had a chance to look at it, but I'm very excited about having that. And uh, The Beast in the Cellar as well. These were only available in the Black Friday weekend sale, and woe is any monster movie nut out there who missed them. Yeah, and this is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, although yeah. I didn't buy the uh, Blood didn't. on Satan's Claw because I I have the uh, the British Blu-ray. Oh right, yeah. So oh, I didn't yeah. have that, so I did get that. I didn't get the Beast in the Cellar. I should have known. I, I bought have, the Beast in the did, Cellar. Yeah, I should have. If you're very nice, I might loan it to you. Ah, uh, well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> How nice can it be? We'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> Got, that sounds really salacious. That's, that's don't, don't, that's a, we just need to that's, edit that. That edit sounded that really, <laughs> really awful. You guys should do updated podcasts featuring Mummy's Revenge, Assignment Terror, and when they arrive, Fury of the Wolfman and Beast of the Magic Sword. With these new Blu-rays, the presentation is so much better for these films, it's somewhat like seeing them for the first time. Some of the old flicks could do with a podcast revisit anyway. And what better reason than for the new Blu-ray releases. Man, it's an awesome time to be a Monster fan. Yes, it is. Now, I agree with him in general. I have to say, um, it may be a while before we do a podcast on Beast and the Magic Sword because considering we just did a commentary on it, <laughs> I don't know if we're ready to yet again wrap our heads around. I, I, around yeah, I think, I think that we'll just defer to the commentary for a while. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Michael says, uh, keep the Spanish horror flame burning and we'll keep listening. Best, Michael. So uh, thank you very much for that one. I think that what we'll do is we'll limit mm. the, uh, this episode is already long as hell. Yeah. But that that's good. This yes. is a, it's, a, it's a 10th anniversary episode, oh, so it should be yeah, long. It should. But I think we'll limit ourselves to the uh, to the other emails for our next episode. Mm-hmm. Uh I just hope we don't get. Well, I, I say I hope we don't get a lot more in. So no, we, we have, wouldn't. Yeah, but then people. Maybe I tell you what. People don't want to hear us whine about not getting. They've heard us whine enough about not getting emails. Yeah, good so point we don't there. want to sound the opposite. I now. Thought about that. <laughs> but I tell you, I tell you what. Actually, if we get enough new uh, mm. emails, we may just do an episode where all we do is answer Ooh. emails. Ooh. That would be that, a good idea. That would be good. That would be. I tell you what, folks. If you've got some thoughts or comments about the Nashi cast and you want to send them in and get us to create a uh, an episode that's just focused just on mail, yeah. the emails and t- answering questions or, yeah. or seeing what discussions get, uh, mm. get, get mm. evoked through mm. those particular means, please mm. Send us more email. Mm. I think that would be a good idea. I think that'd be a good idea to do mm. in our tenth year yeah. here. Send, on the send show. us your Nashi haikus, and we'll read them. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely, definitely do that, do that as well. Yeah, <laughs> do that, that. Any Nashi poetry? Yeah, that's always up for. As long as it doesn't yeah. get too uh, yeah. too weird. <laughs> and I'm just going to leave weird out there to define as you wish. 
<laughs> I don't know how the haikus. Let's keep it to haikus. Yeah, how about yeah. that? Anyway, once again, I want to thank Michael for his email. Uh, we've got another one from him and several from a few other people as well. We'll get to those uh, the next time out. Yep. But we want to we want to wrap this show up because. Ooh, yeah. it's, it's a long one. Remember when we the, the, the episodes started to stretch to three and a half hours mm-hmm. in length and we realized we may mm-hmm. we may need to get over ourselves yeah. just a little bit? And, you know, for the record, I don't believe anybody else ever expressed that view. I think it was just our own self-consciousness, you know, because we were, well, yeah, that was when we were going so. through the film scene by scene, literally step by step, and then still going Doing off a lot on a million of, tangents. Well, and, you know, that, and that but it, it was around that time when the shows got really long that we were also starting to get a lot of emails, and so mm-hmm. it became a 45-minute yeah. long email segment at the end of the show yeah. as well. So, so. Yeah, and again, I, I don't think anyone ever complained uh, about our shows being too long that I know of, and no, all, but no, it's, it was true. just our own, you know, it's just our own self, I think it's just our own insecurity. It's just like, that's too, I, yeah, it's I like, do I don't feel, think I want to listen to myself. That Who would want to listen to me talk that long? I so do listen. start to feel a little, a little <laughs> concerned about my own ego if I was like, am I, am I worth four hours of somebody's freaking time? And it's like, I, I don't know that I necessarily am. I don't think that he combined we're worth four hours of anybody's time. <sighs> I know our girlfriends would certainly say we weren't. <laughs> I know for a fact. They would definitely say we're not. <laughs> they, they, you know, when, you, when you get to that point where they get that icy stare and yeah. you realize that you just need to shut the fuck up. Yeah, it's like, there you yeah, go. It's, it's the icy stare day, yeah. I'm going to go somewhere else. <laughs> I'll go over here, honey. <sighs> well, Troy... Yeah, Still. man. Hey, happy anniversary. Happy pal. anniversary to us. I just want to say... Happy anniversary, uh, baby. Got you on my mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say, uh, I wanted to, f- to express my gratitude to you oh, for, yeah. for staying for a decade doing this man, show. I, uh, I know that we've also continued, we've, we've continued podcasting over on the Bloody Pit as yeah, well. That's been a great time. Um, and uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having the idea in the first place, man. Thank you for, you know, that, that was great. That was great. Uh, uh, it's, it's the show that I wished, mm-hmm. wh- I wish it existed. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's why I thought, well, if nobody else has made it, then mm-hmm. maybe we can do it. Yeah. And that sometimes that's the best idea for doing any kind of story, movie, script, your podcast, whatever is just a simple wish to, this, you know that this it doesn't exist, I and I want to see it exist. You know? And in so. that way, I feel a kind of kindred spirit, a linkage in a weird mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. to Jacinto Molina, to Paul yeah. Mashey, because yeah. he made the movies that he wanted to see, yeah. and we made the podcast that we wanted to make. Yeah, I want to uh, say thanks to his family uh, and that, the help that that they've been to us and the support they've given yes. us for uh, for the podcast has been great. Um, for uh, Mr. Selena of Spanish Fear and Horror Rises from Spain. She was one of the very first people yeah. to reach out to us. You know, the late Dan Fisher, too, for all the help he gave us. And all the great podcast community. And, you know, it's, it's it's you know, over these past 10 years, I have to say the the downside of, of this, of course, has been uh, so many people that we've, from the Spanish horror, horror cinema that we've lost in these, these 10 years. And, of course, yeah. in these next yeah. 10 years, it's afraid we're going to see... Uh, you know, a lot more, more of them, them go. Yeah. Uh, we miss them all, uh, but we thank them so much for the the great pleasure they've given us, uh, the the great things they've given us to talk about and to view and enjoy. Well, the thing is, I couldn't have found a better co-host for this show. Well, thank you, sir. I, I couldn't have found someone who both enjoyed this enough to to do it mm-hmm. and would have the uh, the sheer capacity <laughs> to to be so eyeball deep in this stuff <laughs> that you would not balk at yeah. doing this show as frequently as we do that you would dive headlong into the idea of doing those commentary tracks when, uh, when oh, we finally yeah. got the opportunity yeah. to do that we were terrified but we uh, <laughs> we oh. held hands and got in jumped into it and did it so, we yeah. were definitely terrified but <laughs> yeah. it's uh, it's been a great experience and I just want to thank you for being such a such a willing participant yeah. in such a in such a in some ways 
dubious project. <laughs> Thank you. But yes, well, it's been a, you know, it has been a pleasure. And I will even confess, I like mummies slightly more now than I did when we started the 10 years ago. And so you can count that as a triumph. It only took 10 years. <laughs> it only took 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but also, before we go, yes, of course, the Molina family, mm-hmm. especially Sergio, who's yeah. been so much help, has always yeah. has answered every question we've ever put to him. Mm-hmm. But also, got to thank all the entire audience out there. Yes. Hundreds and thousands of downloads, uh, hundreds of thousands of downloads coupled with uh, innumerable emails, voicemails, uh, the number of times that we've been in public places and have been <laughs> have been shocked to discover mm. that someone recognizes Troy's voice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, true story. Yeah. True yeah. Story. Literally had people approach us and we were Monster Bash you know, a few years ago just because they heard my voice and said, you're the, yeah, no, you're the God Nash you cast. Folks, we couldn't do this I mean, we would do this even if you weren't listening, but we couldn't have done it for 10 years no, no. with any sense of, of, of doing something with a purpose if you weren't out no, there. I think a few I think a few weeks of going in and just seeing zero beside downloads probably would have quelled our enthusiasm after a few. Yeah. Probably, yeah. I think we just would have gone back to watching the movies together and talking about it. Yeah, let's, let's not publicize how stupid we are. But uh, really, if you're listening to this show, if you've been entertained by it, if you enjoy listening to us discuss mm-hmm. these movies, all we can say is thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to donate to feel our gratitude because no. we're happy you're there. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for uh, sticking with us. If you've only just discovered us, man, have you got a backlog to walk through. <laughs> so, once again, thank you for listening. My name is Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you again soon for more 10th anniversary fun.
me shiver. 